0: and friends, and you are my friends, and welcome to another edition of 605 The Super Podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership! The best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, the most influential wrestling podcast. Call somebody! I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah. Baby, baby. And I am very happy to welcome a long-time friend to the show, to the co-host chair for the very first time, and that is my friend and yours, the late Dan Farron.
1: Dan, welcome to the program. <laughs> well, thank you, Brian. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, though I am a, a little down today because... Uh, uh, I've been saving up all these stories for the show about eating rat poison and drinking my own urine. And <laughs> Jerry Gray beats me to it by one week, you know? So, um, I but, apologize. you know, this is, <laughs> th- that's okay. This is professional wrestling. There'll be plenty of opportunities to drink my own urine. A- <laughs> that's right.
0: That's right. I certainly will. You know, I made a joke here at the top of the show, the late Dan Farron, and a lot of people, yes. they're new to the show, and we have a lot of new listeners. They may not know what the story behind that is. They may not know your backstory. So I know you've been on the show a bunch of times, Dan. But for the new listeners, give them a little bit of your history. So if they're saying to themselves, who is this guy and why should I care what he thinks? So they know where you're coming from. And also, what's the story with the late Dan Farron? You know, they may
1: say that even after they hear my background, but uh, <laughs> no, I've, uh, I've been a fan since 1971 and got involved in wrestling out here in Southern California around 1990. So I've been around a whole bunch. I, I worked with Ray Mysterio when he was 16 years old. I worked with Conan. I've done a bunch of things. One time, Dave Meltzer referred to me in The Observer as a guy who's done a little bit of everything. And that's kind of what I am out here. Having written, I worked for Incredibly Strange Wrestling. Of course, Kurt Brown and I have been friends for 30 years, and and we've done a lot of shows together. And the uh, the good old uh, Dr. Mike Lano, the good doctor had a podcast or a radio show. Not once, but twice, he has basically referred to me as being dead on these shows. <laughs> uh, and and I I believe people have tried to correct him, and, and we've joked about it or whatever, but for some reason, he just kept referring to me as having passed away. And there have been many occasions I feel like I might have, but this is not the case. So that's why a lot of people refer to me as the late Dan Farron, which is a really funny joke until the day I actually die. But it still might be kind of funny anyway. I, I hope people <laughs> after I'm gone... See, actually, that name will stick with me forever now, whether I'm here or gone. That's It'll right. I'll always be the late Dan Farron.
0: Yes, you will. But is I mean, there's no backstory
1: there. You and Mike Lano always got along, correct? Uh, well, you know, when I've talked to Mike, uh, uh everything's been fine. Uh, I I don't think there's anything that's that's irritated him. I uh, I do know one time um, he for some reason came out to to me and Dave Meltzer at an Olympic Auditorium show and was talking to us, and he was very nice to me. And then I. Heard a couple weeks later that he was telling everybody that I was at the show kissing Dave Meltzer's ass. But, you know, the thing is, you can bring this stuff up to Mike sometimes. You can and confront him with it. But he will just sit there and just look at you with that freshly tasered look that he has. <laughs>
0: That's certainly a look a lot of us have witnessed. But to the story of the late Dan Farron, I guess, at least what Kurt told me here on the show, is that part of it was a mix-up because your friend Larry Doyle, had yes. just passed away. You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about Larry? Because I know he was around the wrestling business, and he has been gone for a while. And let's uh, let's share his story a little bit.
1: Yeah, Larry was a great guy. Uh, Larry was one of those guys. I met him the very first time at uh, a show out of Cal State, L.A. It was the famous, one of my favorite matches. It was it was Santo and Onita and Tarzan Goto. It was this wild, crazy six-man main event. And I met Larry there for the very first time. And we just kind of had uh, saw a lot of the same opinions and same feelings about professional wrestling. And uh, he said to me, would you like to do a show together sometime? And, you know, what it is is when you do wrestling, there's not a lot of people you can trust. And Larry was one of those guys that I could trust. And when we did the famous show out in La Puente with uh, Sabu and Terry Funk and, and Al Snow, uh, Larry was there uh, backing me up. And uh, I remember we, we talked about this on the, uh, the New Year's Day Star Wars show. Uh, but uh, I was laying in the middle of the driveway after, while this big riot was going on trying to stay low so nobody would come up and blame me. And Larry came up to me and and leaned over and said, the cops are here. And I said, I guess we're going to go to jail then. And he goes, oh boy, I can't wait. That was the kind of person that Larry was. Larry loved (laughs) professional wrestling that way. And uh, it was one of those things, it was very hard when he passed away because he was a good friend to everybody out here. And uh, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, for a long time after that, I didn't do anything in wrestling because, you know, when you're working you know, in, in, in small little areas like we are out here, nothing big. You either do it because you're making money or you're hanging out with your friends. And when, uh, when the friends start going that way, uh, it, it gets a little, it gets a little difficult. And you don't want to work that way, but always I find things that inspire me. I, I. I actually talk to Larry's children all the time and uh it's uh, he was a great guy. His brother's a good close friend of mine and uh we uh, actually uh, we always uh, we always try to remember Larry around the anniversary of, of his passing and uh he was a he was a guy that needed should have gotten a lot more credit for all the stuff he did out here than he did.
0: You know, I recently went back and watched that match, the uh the match that took place between Al Snow and Sabu with Tari Funk, doing the run-in. I've always loved Mm -hmm. it. I've always talked about how much I liked it here on the air. But after the last thing we recorded, after uh, New Year's Star Wars, I went back and watched. And (laughs) I always loved when the camera cuts to Terry Funk outside and he's under the, the van screaming. But now, more than ever before, I have such an appreciation for disheveled referee Dan Farron under a table. (laughs) <laughs> in the parking lot and you just the camera pans and you see you like you're you know, obviously you've been beaten up by the wrestler but you're, you're looking for like the moment where you can get up safely <laughs> you
1: know you well, can't. yeah <laughs> exactly well there's people running all around me and like i said on the show that there was that that crazy lady that that ran the place who wanted to come over and start yelling at me so i just stayed down i just figured stay down as long as i possibly could but when the cops rolled up I then i figured it's time to stop selling and time to get out before uh, something bad happens. You
0: hear her just screaming like a banshee on that. Oh, yeah. Just screaming. Oh, yeah.
1: I know. I always wanted to print up T-shirts that said everything was fine until the guy in the cowboy hat arrived. That's
0: (laughs) That's the funniest part. The guy in the cowboy hat. Oh, man. How many other shows did you actually promote?
1: Uh, well, uh, the shows my, uh, that uh, that were our shows, we did two or three of the uh, of the uh, the Cal International shows. I first started working with Johnny Legend and Danny Wolf. We did some shows called Hollywood Heavyweight Wrestling. That's when we started working with uh, 16-year-old Rey Mysterio and Conan and Chavo Guerrero and uh, and mostly a lot of lucha guys then. Uh, so, uh, but I have worked for virtually every independent program. and and company out here in Southern California at one time or another. I was supposed to work with XPW. Uh, I worked with everybody to the point where sometimes I would come out and do an introduction uh, and say hello to the audience, and I would have to stop and turn around and look at the at the banner behind me to see what group I was working for what 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 group of of letters I was with that week you know uh i was I felt like I was for the uh, for the ten years in the 1990s I felt like I was the um the commissioner for Southern california wrestling
0: you're one of those names that whenever you go back and you try to research things, your name pops
1: up all over the place. It does, doesn't it? That's that amazes me because I've, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a wrestler. I've, I've done a couple matches. I, I haven't wanted to. I, you know, I've only done it when I've been forced to. But uh, it's one of those things where I, I'm always amazed that the name pops up. Because most of the time, I try to stay back behind the scenes as much as possible. Because you know, I I never have never done this because I I have a big ego and I, I want to get out there. I do it because it's another form of entertaining people and and I enjoy it and uh, and I always want to see it uh, you know flourish and and that's what I try to do. Um, but uh, it's it's been nice to to have all these people recognize me and and have things come up and uh, my name pops up in the strangest places sometimes though.
0: Strangest amongst them being the 605 Super Podcast, and we'll uh, hear some more of these stories you have as we get going with the top 10. Of course, the top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records. Visit RamsorRecords.KungFuStore.com, R A M S E U R Ramsore Records dot kungfu store dot com and enter the promo code six oh five at checkout and save twenty percent on all purchases. I want to make mention this is pretty cool. For a while we've told you guys about the Steep Canyon Rangers their new album which it's not new anymore it's out out in the open actually is the name of the album. Well for the last two weeks two weeks in a row that album has been number one on the Billboard bluegrass charts. So we want to say congratulations to the Steep Canyon Rangers, Dolph Ramsor, and everyone on the team congratulations number one two weeks in a row on the billboard bluegrass chart that's your former job dan but of course once again store.com, the mid-atlantic wrestling of the music industry but with that dan let's get going with the top 10 your first top 10 number 10 this week disappointed lance russell ah! I don't know if I've ever asked you this, Dan, but when is the first time you started watching Memphis Wrestling, and what were your early thoughts of it?
1: I first got a chance to watch Memphis wrestling in the 1980s. I mean, I, I bought my first VCR in 1979 and started trading tapes as, as fast as I could with people. Really? And that's been one of the, Yeah, that's been one of the, the, the great things about the 605 is uh all of a sudden I'm hearing and seeing the names and talking to, you know, John McAdam and all these guys that that I used to like 20 30 years ago, but I was trading a lot of tapes uh, all the time so I could s- see that. And uh I started Reading the Observer in about 1985, and of course they had all the different tape traders in the back of there. So I I traded for a lot of tapes. I still have a couple boxes of videotapes here uh, that go back to the 1980s. And Lance Russell was somebody – even though uh, I didn't get a chance to see him until then, I had always read about him in all the different magazines, and it was just so great to see him. And then it was great a couple years ago to see Lance in one of his last appearances at, at Cauliflower Alley a couple a uh, couple years ago. He, he was just an amazing and a very nice guy. We sat and talked for a few minutes because I was born in Evansville, Indiana, so uh, he shared a couple memories with me about Evansville. So a heck of a guy, and again, it's one of those things, that's, it's, it's like uh, the end of an era when you start losing guys like that.
0: You got to see the end of the era of Los Angeles wrestling having studio wrestling. Oh, yeah. What did you think of the studio wrestling you saw out
1: of Memphis when you first started seeing those tapes? Oh, the studio wrestling out of Memphis was amazing. In fact, at one point, actually, for a few months here in the mid-80s, Memphis wrestling, in a way, did air on California television. Because Tom Renesto had taken over the booking for the infamous CCW out here, the California Championship Wrestling. And what they did was they started bringing in the tapes from um, uh, the shows in Memphis and running those matches on the show as they were making the transition. But that stuff was amazing because it was so much, you know. Studio wrestling was the greatest. I loved studio wrestling because there was just something crazy and unexpected about it. Something could happen at any moment. But the Memphis stuff, you know, whenever I would talk to anybody, it, and everybody would always say, "If you could see one wrestling group on TV on a regular basis, which one would it be?" And everybody said Memphis wrestling. That that was the thing because you never, I mean, from Tojo Yamamoto being painted yellow. <laughs> to lance himself uh, to Eddie Marlin coming out and getting busted open every week. I mean, all that kind of stuff was always going on. And it it was it was it was a great time. It was a great time to be a fan in the 1980s with all the different everybody was trying to get their stuff on TV and there was a lot a lot of wrestling out there. I wish
0: there was any footage at all of the show that aired on Channel 13 wrestling from Los Angeles because other than The one clip of Ripper Collins that I've seen. I think it's Ripper Collins. Yeah. Other than that, there's nothing. And, you know, you hear everyone. I've heard Bob Barnett rave about Dick Lane. You know, I've heard so many people rave about Dick Lane. And, I mean, there's some of him calling matches from the 60s and even, you know, the late 50s, -hmm. I think. But there's nothing from that studio. There's nothing.
1: No. No. No, I mean they started out on Channel Five here, and then they eventually moved to Channel Thirteen, and and all of us have done our our homework trying to, you know, we keep hoping that you know maybe someplace down in the basement of Channel Thirteen or Channel Five, you know, there's a room that everybody forgot about that has all these tapes there. But knowing Mike Labelle, the promoter, the, the way I do, um, there's not a chance that, um, that he left anything behind to save a buck. He, I'm sure he erased virtually everything. And I only was able to see Dick Lane live for the last two or three months of his, his run on Channel 13 because he was very shortly replaced by uh, Gene Labelle after that. But he really was just an amazing announcer. He was one of those guys like Lance like Gordon Soly, that could paint a picture and could set this whole thing up. And it, you could give you could probably give Dick Lane just two or three words or whatever. And he would go off and he would set up your whole angle. He'd get the whole thing going. It, it was just amazing what he could do. And that's a generation that's completely lost now because you don't do that anymore. You don't have one guy. Uh, out there announcing the matches. You don't have a guy where the, you let him go and do his own thing and, and and not have to repeat what everybody's yelling in his ear. And a guy also who's there to get the product over, not himself. Did you actually get to know Mike LaBelle? Uh, no, I didn't get to know Mike LaBelle. I mean, I feel like I do because of the fact that <laughs> I say it that way. Uh, because, I mean, I've ta- talked to a lot of the guys uh, <laughs> over the years who knew Mike LaBelle. But, um, you know, Mike was the kind of guy, you know, if if it wasn't making money, he wasn't about to he wasn't in it for, you know, for wrestling, for glory, for any of that kind of stuff. He was there just basically to make money. That's that's all it really was. And if he felt like something wasn't working, he pulled the plug on it immediately. He didn't care. That's why there was some some logic jumps and some things that happened where all of a sudden you'd be watching the show one week and then the next week, boom. That whole program was gone. I mean, it would break your neck how fast it would happen uh, if it wasn't working. There's that famous story that I think that Bruno Sammartino tells about uh, when he was out here and he was wrestling um, Killer Kowalski. And uh, they they set everything up so they could come back and do a return match. And Michael Bell said, nope, it didn't draw the way I wanted to. Uh, we're not going to do that. You
0: know, the only chance that there's any footage would be if the television station actually has any or if any celebrities – had early home video recording systems. We've seen that. Who was it? Was it, I want to say maybe it was Roy Rogers that they recently found he had recorded a World Series game that they had previously not had the complete footage Mm -hmm. of, and they found it in his archive. And I don't know if it's something like that, but like when you see that Ripper Collins footage, you start thinking, okay, they have this. This footage has been saved. There has to be something else in the studio archives, at least.
1: Yeah. I, I firmly believe, uh, from talking to people, that someplace somewhere somebody has something. It may not be a lot, but somebody has something, and it's one of those things that you know. You know, you keep thinking you'll go to like a, a yard sale someplace, and somebody will have you know three quarter masters there or something. Um, but uh, I keep I, I I know a lot of the shows, some of the shows, the Coliseum shows, and some of the other big shows they did. They uh, they piped into movie theaters nearby here. Uh, so, um, I have to believe that they videotaped those shows. I know that one Sunday night um, I came home uh, from a, a friend's house and uh, turned, and this was 1970s, turned on the, uh, the TV, the Spanish language channel, and found the entire Battle Royal show from the year before being broadcast. Really? It had some time available after like a soccer game or whatever, and they put on the entire show. So I'm positive that somewhere this stuff exists. It's just a matter of of getting into it before the janitor throws it away. Or the janitor is the one who has it. Yeah, exactly. That's another that's another possibility. Yeah. Or, you know, the uh, you know, the whole idea of the collecting thing, sometimes some people are weird about that. They get a hold of something and they just want to hold on to it. They want nobody but themselves to have it. And then they wind up, you know, sitting on it and, and no one gets to see it. And that that would be the shame uh, if, if nobody got a chance to see that stuff, because by the time that I got out here, the promotion was headed toward its last legs. The best thing that came out of the last few years of the Los Angeles promotion was the Guerreros and Roddy Piper. But that that classic stuff with Blassie and Tolis and all those guys that through all that years, it, just, it seems to me just to be a shame that that stuff does not exist anymore or at least isn't available.
0: Did wrestling ever have any highlights or clips played on the news in Los Angeles?
1: Uh, I don't believe so all that often. Sometimes, you know, Channel 13, because they aired the wrestling show would do something, but not all that often. The only time you would see a clip or whatever would be like an anniversary show. KTLA would do, uh, you know, the 50 years of KTLA and there might be a little clip or something. And even when, um, in the, in late 74, they did an anniversary show, the 50th anniversary of wrestling in Los Angeles. And, they showed some clips but those again were just clips from the uh from the Olympic or from the Hollywood Legion stadium there was nothing they showed nothing from the studio wrestling at all so i don't i, I don't know that's a, that's a very good question um they very rarely the uh, in the beginning, in the when you look through newspapers.com and stuff like that, you'll find a lot of information in the 50s, the 40s, into the 60s, and then sometime around the mid 60s, the newspapers and, and and mostly television here just could care less about wrestling at that point.
0: That's number ten. Disappointed, Lance Russell. <laughs> Here. i think he's talking about you uh dan but uh <laughs> number nine this week in the top 10 making a return to the top 10
1: sue the shooter oh wow hello dan well hello sue i gotta tell you of all the things about this show that i'm a little nervous about meeting you because uh this is my first time and I'm, I'm hoping you're going to be gentle with me
2: did you ever get to see the midgets out in los Angeles?
1: Why, yes, I did. I, I saw the midgets several times. Probably not the same side of the midgets that you've seen, but I have seen the midgets, yes.
3: Which midgets came to Los Angeles?
1: Well, let's see. There was Billy the Kid, and there was Cowboy Lang, and... What uh, about before-
3: Wee
2: Willie Wilson, from Florida?
1: But well, now we had a wee Willie Wilson out here, but he wasn't a midget wrestler. This was another wrestler in the 1950s. I've never seen the wee Willie Wilson uh, midget wrestler. Uh, did you ever uh, know Fuzzy Cupid? Oh,
3: Fuzzy Cupid, yes, me him and Julius Sneezer once had a wild night out together.
1: <laughs> uh, do you know you have to? You really need to 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 talk to Brian Sue about uh, getting your own. Broadcast on this on this network, you really do.
4: Oh, yeah I mean, (laughs) we can call it. No one will listen. The Sue the Shyster Show.
1: (laughs) No, Sue. No, you. You would be very, very popular. I mean, think about it. You've you've held the greats and near greats in the palm of your hand.
2: Did you know my
0: competition out in Los Angeles, the Chicken Lady?
1: Oh yes, Josephine. I know Josephine very well. In fact, when they uh, I used to go to San Bernardino Arena to see the shows, they would sometimes hold the shows till she got there.
3: I have a ridiculous
4: article written by Mike Lano where he claims she gave Dino Bravo gonorrhea.
1: Okay, um, I would believe that. I I would believe not. I'm I I don't believe that she that gave Dino Bravo gonorrhea, but I would believe that Mike Lano wrote that article. <laughs>
0: Well, it's the first time we've heard from Sue the Shooter in a while. Yeah, that is one of those great things where he claims into the Dino Bravo, who at that point, when he came out to Los Angeles, was a pretty young wrestler, good looking guy. That all of a sudden, of all the women he can get with, it's Josephine, the elderly chicken lady (laughs) from ringside.
1: Oh yeah, and, and Dino Bravo that time, I saw several of his matches when he first came out here. I mean he again he was a high flyer at that time. He was nowhere near as big as he was later on, size wise. Uh and I I know that all the women loved him, you know. So I would be uh I would be very surprised uh at that. Uh it sounds like fan fiction again, let's let's put it that way.
0: It is crazy when you see early Dino Bravo and then when you see late Dino Bravo, where he's just so blown up on steroids and oh, yeah. he can't move. And then you see early Dino Bravo, and he's actually good in the
1: ring. Do you know I saw a match where he pinned a uh, 500 pound man, Mountain Mike. They really? did this. this yeah, uh, Mike had been out for a while and he had turned heel. They brought him back and uh, they worked in the opener, and he uh, might just beat the hell out of Bravo for about 30 seconds, whipped him into the ropes. When he came off the ropes, Bravo drop-kicked him. Uh, Mike went over like a, a ton of potatoes and Bravo pinned him. That was it. Boom, boom, boom. Just like that. He got a nice push out here. Um, he, he really did. He was very popular. I remember he and Victor Rivera had a, a tag team going for quite some time and they were feuding with the Hollywood Blondes and they did the old thing one night where the Blondes uh, we're wrestling this mysterious tag team called the Avengers on the on the TV show, and uh, it was basically Bravo and 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 Rivera wearing white masks, and Gene LaBelle, always the master of subtlety, uh, <laughs> to sit there and say, "Oh, you know, fans, I don't know what's going on here, but one of those uh, wrestlers is speaking Puerto Rican, and the other one, he's speaking Italian." <laughs> Boy, they really. As much as I can get a kick out of Gene
0: LaBelle, they really took a big step down after Dick Lane left.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, but then it was going to be virtually no matter who you brought in at that point. Uh, I mean, he was he was Mr. Wrestling all throughout the 1950s and into the 60s. And, you know, uh, wrestling fans at that time used to be, you know, really, really you uh, you came into their house you were their their favorite nephew uh you know you gave all the the heels the hard time you always gave uh, the baby faces a pat on the back and when you make a change that way i remember the same thing when i first started watching wwf wrestling in baltimore uh bill cardell was the uh, announcer on that originally and after about a month and a half he was gone and vince came in and and my first reaction at like 15 years old was who the hell is this guy this guy's awful
0: yeah, you see, you got the television show out of Pittsburgh because the other show was Ray Morgan.
1: Well, no, Ray Morgan was a show that aired in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Bill Cardell show was the one in, I think, in Allentown. No, it was Philadelphia. It was out of Philadelphia for a while. Uh, they moved around those things around so much. But I used to watch uh, the Ray Morgan show in Washington on the Washington channels on UHF. And then um, locally in Baltimore, they would show the Bill Cardell shows. So they actually had two basically squash match type shows uh, that they were running around the same time. They would alternate them.
0: You know, Dick Lane wasn't just known for wrestling. He was also
1: known for roller derby, obviously.
0: Yes. Did you actually get to attend any roller derby at the Olympic?
1: Uh, I didn't attend any of the roller derby at the Olympic, but I lived close to the, the LA Forum for a long time. And they used to come and do these President Cups and all those kind of stuff there. And, uh, roller derby was just a kick in the head to see. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, I've, I've gone to some of the, the little mini reunions that the, the, the guys have had from time to time. And, uh, it was so funny to hear these guys would be, they'd be out there, you know, 65 years old and they still be skating. They still be rolling out there rolling around all the time. Uh, it was great. It was it, it was very much very different. You know, the, you get into that whole uh, argument over roller derby and, and roller games. Uh, the you know the roller derby up in San Francisco was much more serious than the roller games was down here. Uh, the 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 big heel manager for one of the uh, teams uh, also worked at a uh, a suit factory place, and so they would be you know he would you know be causing all kinds of trouble on the in the show, and then 15 minutes later he would show up in a commercial trying to sell you a suit.
0: I thought you were going to talk about
1: Miss Georgia Haas there for a second when you said No, that. it's not Georgia Haas. Georgia <laughs> Haas was great. The, this was a guy called El Fabuloso, they called it.
0: <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing. Roller derby and wrestling have so many connections. Those worlds are yeah. so similar. I know Dave Meltzer has pointed it out so many times, and he's done, of course, big articles on roller derby. But those two worlds are so similar.
1: Well, they very much uh, so are. I mean, Dee Booer, who uh, was b- Matilda the Hun on GLOW and also did a little bit of wrestling as Queen Kong. She also skated for the Los Angeles T-Birds for a while. Did you know her from uh, California? Um, I, <laughs> I've uh, she's very interesting. I, I first met her in the mid 80s. And uh, I've seen her at some of the reunions uh, over the years that the Glow girls have had. She basically is, is suffering from like a lot of people uh, are when I saw her at uh, California Island last year, the, all the injuries have kind of taken their toll. Um, so she's in a wheelchair now. But yeah, I've, I've seen her off and on. She is a very nice lady. If you ever read her book, uh and if you're a, a prime uh amazon member uh it's one of the free books that you can get um she's led a very interesting life uh in, in her book she only spends maybe 10 or 15 pages talking about wrestling the rest of the time she talks about how she was one of the uh first uh, people to find uh, to found uh telephone sex she started telephone sex lines things huh, like that really Oh, yeah. And she also used to work um, uh, strip shows and to do um, uh jello and mud wrestling, that kind of stuff back then. She's a very interesting lady.
0: I may have to check that out. I didn't realize Matilda the Hun had a book, but I'll uh, definitely have to give that a look in the future. But that is number nine this week in the top ten, Sue the Shooter. Number eight.
1: Uh-oh. Dan. Yes, I know that voice. Wow, I'm I'm having an Emerson, Lake and Palmer flashback right now. That's what's happening. Uh, Black Scorpion, I have a question for you, Black Scorpion. Usually, I don't answer questions, but okay. All right. Oh, it's. I want to know if you're still doing that magic show at the Orleans in Vegas, like you have been recently. Are you still there? No, I'm not still there. Oh, uh, because it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful magic show. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, you you managed to make my fifteen dollars uh, for ticket prices disappear. That was very good. that's it's i have no comeback for
0: that number eight this week the black scorpion i did not expect that uh i I have
1: stumped the black scorpion on my first appearance i am very proud i actually (laughs)
0: just got an email the other day uh as you're saying that let me scroll down my email find it i got an email from franz harari you know the the magician who's the black scorpion wishing me a happy chinese new year so there you go boy because no he's not the orleans he's in macau he's over in china well (laughs) <laughs> it's number eight this week, The Black Scorpion. Number seven this week is a man who uh debuted, I think, last time on the show in the top ten, Dr. X. And I want to play a little bit of audio. I know I played two of these last time. I got to make sure I don't play. I'm going to play this one. If this one isn't the right one, I'm still going to play it. It's relatively short. But here's Dr. X. He no say what government, what to
5: say, so government no like. So you'll be listening to Marty Gold. From the Great
6: Canadian Talk Show.
5: 90 to 9 uh, kick that there.
0: Well, there you hit Dr. X. And wow. of course, that's on the Great Canadian Talk Show. That's our friend Marty Gold, you've heard here on the show. Yeah. Well, I have another promo that he did for Marty's show. And Marty, by the way, if you're listening, if you have any more, send him in. But here's uh, one more promo from Dr. X.
4: The Great
5: Canadian Talk Show. Government. Buy media, buy newspapers, and they stay in the power. Marty Gold will tell it truth. 92.9
6: Kick FM.
1: And there he is,
0: number seven. This is wow. in the top ten, you know, Dr. X. Dr.
1: Uh, Doctor X sounds like he's been using the Boris Zukov Rosetta Stone app.
0: Uh, uh... <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully, Dr. X will be back on the show pretty soon. Like I said, Marty, if you have any more audio, send it in. But um, I recently heard from Dr. X, and I believe he really is uh, having some issues with the government. And <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he'll be back on probably in eight, late April or May. I would expect uh, Dr. X will make a, another appearance, a brand new appearance here on the show. But uh, at number seven in the top ten, Dr. X. At number six in the top ten this week, Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Yo wow. Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Totally awesome. I have a little bit of Yomaba news. Uh, Good. <laughs> don't get too excited. But uh, oh, okay. recently on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, the fine program that Scott Bowden puts out each and every week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, we had Nate the Rat as a guest on the program. And as we wrapped up, I asked Nate a question. I said, you know, this is my opportunity to see what he knows. He was around. He was a gopher or, you know, he was around at the time. That's the point. Yeah. And I said, do you remember who Yomamba the Jungle Savage was? This was a one time thing. This is the end of 1987. Here's the scenario. Here's what's, here's what was going on. And Nate thought about it for a second. And the quote was, I'm not sure. It was just some short Mexican guy. (laughs) So the mystery continues. I don't know if, if Nate is confusing him with someone else, but now there's a chance Yomamba may not be an African American. He may be a quote. Short Mexican guy. So we'll see what we can find out. Wow.
1: Boy, this thing, this case takes more twists and turns than, you know, than CSI, I tell you. I, you're going to need to basically bring in. Bring in some specialists to basically track this guy down
0: there's nothing i've said this to a couple of people in the last couple of days just uh in conversation there's nothing like pro wrestling no form of entertainment or sport politics anything that is widely covered there's nothing else like that where you can go as far back as 30 years in this case yo mamba's 1987 30 years yeah and there's still giant holes in history there's no yeah. photos, there's no videos, no one knows, there's no record of it, the people who are there don't remember. There's nothing else like that. There's no baseball game where all of a sudden someone's like, no. we forgot what the score was, we forgot who <laughs> fielded the ball in the third inning, like that doesn't happen.
1: What's going to happen eventually, Brian, is it's going to be like all the president's men. You're going to get some guy that's going to call you to meet you, meet him in a garage someplace in a, in a dark corner, and he'll have information for you that, uh, that nobody else has. Where's Ehrlichman? where where's
5: where's Haldeman
1: (laughs) put the palm tree on the on the uh, porch Uh, let me know and the uh, the palm tree is on the porch I'm going to hang up in five I'm going to count down four three yeah one of those kind of things
0: (laughs) well once again number six this week in the top 10 yo mamba yo mamba the jungle savage yo mamba the jungle savage I will tell you more about him later I certainly hope so. Uh-huh. At number five this week in the top ten, Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. Just like Dr. X, surprisingly enough, Brother Midnight will be back on the show in late April <laughs> or into May at some point. Uh, he may be helping Dr. X with these government issues at this present time. But uh, on the topic of Brother Midnight, uh, Dan, Brother yeah. Midnight, of course, is a masked wrestler, masked wrestling personality, and... Something was recently brought up, and I didn't know too much about it. Can you explain why on a WWF television show in the
2: 90s,
0: (laughs) there's a wrestler in a mask for a squash match, a jobber, for lack of a better term, although there are better terms, but a jobber named Dan
1: Farron. Why is there a mask Dan Farron? What's going on? Is it you? No, it is not me. Uh, Basically, what happened at this time was a friend of mine, Augie Loya, who wrestled out here as Thunder Machine. Wound up doing a couple different sets of, uh, enhancement, uh, work for the, uh, the WWF. All right. So he thought it would be really funny if he would to take the name of his old buddy, Dan Farron and, and use that out there. So you can find matches on YouTube of Dan Farron versus Mr. Hughes. You can find, I think, I think it was actually the original a Giant Gonzalez appearance. Uh it's myself and Luis Bicoli are running away from Giant Gonzalez. Myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh and uh, I, I just, I'm just hoping the WWE gets confused and sends me a check. That's what I'm hoping eventually one day. But uh no what happened was they uh he was scheduled to be in a tag match against the Steiner Brothers. And Scott felt that uh, Augie was too big to do the Frankensteiner on. So they switched out and they brought in the Prowler, who was uh, one of the Beverly Brothers. I I get confused which one it was all the time. But he was – they brought him in as the Prowler. But no one told Mike McGurk they had made a change. (laughs) So they introduced Ed Moretti uh, and then they introduced Dan Farron, And you see the Prowler start to take his bow and he like stops in the middle of it like, what? (laughs) And I'm I'm actually sitting at ringside for those tapings. I'm sitting down there, and there are two guys next to me. And I had done some other radio appearances on some other radio shows at that time. And the two guys said, "That's Dan Farron," and I turned to him and said, "No, it's not." And they and they said, "Who's?" I said, "I'm Dan Farron." And they're like, "Yeah, fine." I had to pull out my my California driver's license to show it to them to prove to them that I was Dan Farron.
0: It's like so, the Naked uh, Gun, is,
1: where all of a yeah. sudden they're like,
0: hey, it's Enrico Palazzo! <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, no, it's not. No,
1: it's me, Frank Revan. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and this thing has been like 25 years ago, and this thing still follows me around all the time. I hear about it all the time. It's one of those, again, one of those, you know, you can't find out who Umamba is. But you can see that damn tape of me, you know, wrestling as, as the the prowler over and over and over again. And what I love also was listening to the commentary when it was on TV. You would think that someone would say, especially back then, well, there's a reason why this man is wearing a mask. No, they just treated it like it was just some ordinary guy who just happened to be a mask on who had a full name. That is so funny. I have to go back now and watch that match. Man. Yeah, you don't see stuff like
0: that too much. But what was it like no. in a... In Southern California, when the WWF would come to town to tape TV, was it a big deal for all the indie workers?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the local guys out here at that point, uh, there was nothing going on. I mean, there was only a handful of shows that, that were happening because mostly in the 1980s you needed to have a license to uh, to put on a show. So whenever the guys would come to this area, mostly they would wind up being students of uh, Bill Landerson and uh, Jesse Hernandez out in San Bernardino, and uh, a lot of the people got their got their chances. And, and yeah, it was a big deal. You know, you had to be really good to be there, and you had to make sure you didn't mess things up or or you didn't do dumb things. Things. The trouble with the, the 1980s is there were a lot of guys who got into the business at that point who thought they were going to make easy money and they were going to be the next Hulk Hogan. And, and so, you know, you wound up with a lot of guys who own jewelry stores and, and used car dealers and whatever who got into wrestling knowing nothing about the history of wrestling except they were going to be Hulk Hogan. And uh, Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, was one of the agents at that time. And Augie told me a story about a guy who was an enhancement guy, a job guy, uh, not a very good one. I went up to Chief J. Strombo and said to him, uh, Chief, I- I'd just like to get some advice from you. Doing all these jobs, is-, is that going to hurt my career? And Strombo looked at him and said, what career?
0: That says it all, doesn't it?
1: That says it all right there. And uh, the guy was done a couple years later. Uh, it's just something about, I mean, uh, you know, indie wrestlers, I, I love them, but, but you know, there are different levels of indie wrestlers. So When I say indie wrestlers, I'm not talking about, you know, the the guys that are out there working every weekend and doing that stuff. There's just a lot of guys. Um, I knew a guy who had calf implants, pec implants, had all this stuff done to him, all this, this had all these op- different operations. And you know what his nickname was when he wrestled? Buff Bagwell. No, oh. The Natural. really yeah he called himself the natural did he understand the irony (laughs) no that's the best part about it they never understand the irony (laughs) they never they never see it coming you know they always talk about you can hear the bullet but none of these guys can ever hear the bullet if i had a nickel for every time i've been backstage and someone's come up and started talking to me about something that i wind up saying what the fuck is wrong with you (laughs) You know, I, I would be a very rich man and, and, and be someplace with Yomamba right now, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and drinking daiquiris on, on, on a beach somewhere.
0: Oh, wow. So, your philosophy is that Yomamba actually became quite successful mm-hmm. and is now on a beach.
1: Yes, I think basically he's like I I imagine him. He's like King Curtis right now. He's sitting out (laughs) somewhere on a on a beach someplace. He has a couple condos. He has three or four women, you know, who are uh, you know uh, there to to take care of him and keep bringing him drinks and whatever. And every once in a while, he'll he'll pull up some of the local kids and they'll sit there at his feet and he'll tell them stories about when he used to wrestle in Memphis.
0: We need to crack down on this Yo Mamba stuff once and for all, but uh <laughs> number five this week in the top ten, Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. At number four this week in the top ten is someone who is always very popular, Hot Dog or Hot Dog and Last, uh. or uh, Podcast in the Last, I'm not sure what we're supposed to call this uh, right now, but I did have an opportunity earlier today to record a conversation with Hot Dog, and let's go to that recording right now. Here this week at number four in the top 10 is Hot Dog, or as I sometimes am told to call him, Hot Dog and Lasto, or perhaps I should say Podcast and Lasto, based on your last appearance. But
3: Hot Dog, are you on the line? Oh, Lasto? Yes. Hey, hey, it's me, Hot Dog, the Gentleman Jerry to your luscious Johnny. (laughs) That's right. A combined effort, baby. You understand congenuity? Congenuity, C-O-N-J-U-T-Y, that word I so often use. All right. Hey, it's time to climb on board for another ride on the mighty Hot Dog and Lasto train. 60 nonstop minutes through the tracks of your mind into the exciting world of Hot Dog and Lasto. (laughs) This will not be 60 plus minutes. This will not be six minutes, Hot Dog. You're going to have
0: very limited time this week on the Top 10 here on the show. But here you are. You are at number four in the Top 10.
3: Number four? Can I get a horn for that, Brian? Uh, Thank you. You only honked it three times. Well, there was a tremendous response to the first episode of the five minutes with hot dog and lasso podcast oh god the fans no. loved it no you know no they no. were clamoring for more no some one people is. were saying that it should be a daily podcast <laughs> I, <laughs> I thought it needed some more fine tuning what do you think i i think maybe that's a good way to look at it it needs more fine tuning needs more fine tuning my bearded brother there was a little <laughs> bit of a misstep in there though where it sounded like for some reason i was calling it five minutes with podcast and yeah. Lasso.
0: That's right. You uh, you seem to have a little bit of an issue remembering your name and the name of the
3: program last time you were in the top well, you, 10. You honed in on it right there, TGBL. That, see, that's the very thing that should have been fixed in the editing room, right? Yeah. And you know what a perfectionist I am. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't allow anything on this air or to go out there until it sounds right to me, your humble wiener. <laughs>
0: Well, I can certainly appreciate that. I uh, have a very similar mindset when it comes to the programming. I produce hot dog. But once again, here you are at number four in the top ten.
3: Getting close to the top spot, but not exactly there. Not exactly there, but lights, camera, action. It's time for hot dog at the movies. What? That's my movie news and review segment where I talk about what's hot and what dogs to avoid at your local multiplex.
0: (laughs) Okay, I don't know where you're going with this, but let's uh, give this a shot.
3: Hey Lasto, oh, I saw a new teaser preview of the new film biography of Wrestling Superstar Paige that's coming out soon. Oh boy. Uh okay, tell yeah. me about this uh this upcoming film. It's a story that it, it's a story that had to be told. Great preview trailer, and it only cost me four tokens. A small price to pay. Four tokens? <laughs> four <laughs> tokens, a small price to pay, and I think it's gonna be a really big a shoe in at Oscar time. Oh boy. Okay. What other movies do you want to talk about? Hot dog. Well, I I also got to see that new documentary about the world of comedy wrestling. It's called, please make it stop. (laughs) (laughs) All the biggies are in this. It really blows the lid off of comedy wrestling. I tell you, actually the original title (laughs) was stop this fiddle fucking around, learn how to work or drop dead and please make it stop. (laughs) Sounds like a You know, I guess that film. looked a little wordy on the marquee, so they shortened it.
0: Yeah, no, no, I can certainly understand that. We don't like wordy titles here on this show, but uh, that sounds like yeah. a film I may want to check out.
3: Yeah, please check it out. I give it two horns up. And now it's time to reveal my Oscar picks. And by that, I don't mean picks of Oscar the Rapper from Men on a Mission. Of course. My actual Oscar picks. I'm going to start off with Best Actress. I go for Margot Robbie in I, Tanya. She gets my vote for her Incredible Body. Of work. What does this have Did you see to do with anything? One? I know I, I have not seen *I Tanya*. Well, you really should check it out when you get a chance. Something I heard about the Oscar ceremony, and this is a big surprise, so keep it under your hat. That the Academy is considering giving Vince McMahon the Irving Thalberg Humanitarian Award this year to stop making movies. <laughs> that would certainly be something in the spirit of Irving Thalberg. <laughs> well, that's just between you and me and the listeners, so keep it quiet. You know, I think I'm just going to go ahead and skip ahead to my pick for best picture. Okay. I predict the Oscar this year is going to go to Get Out, the Enzo Amore story. (laughs) Get out. (laughs) Is that
0: what what all the wrestlers in the locker room said?
3: Get out. (laughs) <laughs> uh and stay out i think we getting- <laughs> And stay out yeah that was the subtitle tune <laughs> in march 4th gang on abc hey i think that's all i got for you this week my friend
0: all right hot dog well like i said uh several times you were at number four this week in the top 10 anything you want to say to the listeners of the program before we leave today
3: hey listeners it's you and me and lasto against the world so keep on voting keep me up there in the uh top 10 contention and uh We're going to get to that top position someday if the good Lord is willing and the creek don't rise. Whatever the fuck that means. (laughs) Hey, my brother. Yes? We got to go.
0: There he is at number four, Hot Dog. And we'll see what he has in store for us next time here in the top ten. But number three this week, the very popular old lady, Mrs. Spencer.
1: Wake up, you stupid jackass. I think she's talking to you, Dan. Uh, Mrs. Spencer, listen, uh, I'm going to be a little late with the rent this month. You're a liar and a bastard. Well, I need the money to put on a, an independent wrestling show. Is that Who okay? Who are
7: you and what do you
4: want?
1: Well, I was thinking maybe instead of giving you the rent this month, if you would like to be a valet on the show, Go I could to arrange hell, that. you
4: son of a bitch, you.
1: You know, this sounds like every conversation I ever had with a sponsor when I was trying to get money to do Go a show.
4: hell, you motherfucking
1: son of a bitch. Except they were, I'm going to retire. Motherfuckers- the 605
0: can stress anybody. Off. Okay. All right.
1: <laughs> I know. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Kurt. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> the old lady. You've never uh, talked about the old lady. What do you think of these crazy clips we have here?
1: Oh, I I love this kind of stuff. I, I-, I love fans. You know, I love fans went back at the time when they believed it. I mean when they, they really thought uh, you know that this kind of stuff existed, and, and while she's not exactly a fan that way, she's one of those characters that you used to see at, at wrestling shows or, or hear about all the time. Um, I remember that there was uh, you know there, there were old women like her that used to go to the San Bernardino arena and they would get all dressed up and whatever, and they weren't rats or anything. They would just get all dressed up and they would sit at ringside and, and they would cheer for the people they like and they would boo for the people they didn't like and, and there was a handful of. Of, of older women who loved the Hollywood blondes, Jerry Brown and Buddy Roberts, um, and I remember they were feuding for a while with S. D. Jones and Porkchop Cash, and and these women did not like them, uh, did not like them all. They would sit there and fold their arms during the entire uh, time that they would wrestle, and um, it, it was really it was one of the, it's it's a time that doesn't exist. If you see that movie Wrestling Queen, the Vivian Michonne movie, there's a great sequence in there where a heel is is yelled at somebody's uh, mother and the guy is standing back there and the police are trying to hold him back and the guy is crying he goes no one talks to my mom that way you don't understand you got to let me back there He, he insulted my mom i miss those kind of people i really do
0: i think wrestling was so much better when you had old people At Mm -hmm. the shows. In fact, if I started a wrestling promotion right now, even if it was filled with the usual junior heavyweights that have to uh, make up every wrestling promotion nowadays, first thing I would do, make a deal with every single local old age home. And I would bust those people to those shows and just tell them to yell and scream. And I wouldn't even have to tell them. They'll just get into it. But that's what you want to see. You want to see that. You kind of have to create an ecosystem at the shows where people will react. Get some kids, get some old people, and just mix everything together.
1: And I used to go to shows at that one time that, those, all those people were actually from the same family you would have generations you would have the, the grandfather and the father and the, and the kids and it, that was it was something very family oriented about it you know like I, like I said before I mean I know they always talk about oh well you know wrestling today is you know it's been taken out of the little shabby arenas and, and is, is out there in the in the big uh, superplexes or whatever but I kind of liked it better when it was you saw the same people every week and everybody had their, their seat that they paid for to make sure they hung on to it every week and it was a much more communal thing
0: you want that where you have the event every week because then the show every week isn't just the wrestling it's right. the people yeah exactly and you know you need that you need an old lady sticking a hat pin you know up a heel wrestler's ass
1: Yeah, you need a stunt granny from time to time, right? A
0: stunt granny, (laughs) that's right. You're the expert in stunt (laughs) grannies, as uh, was uh, shown to national television, actually. Uh, And we described that here on the show a while back. In fact, we actually named one of the episodes Stunt Granny, now that I think about it. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
0: So uh, that's number three, our in-house stunt granny, the old lady, Mrs. Spencer.
4: You motherfucker, motherfucker, everybody!
0: At number two this week in the top ten is a man who has surged in popularity since he's debuted here on the show. It is none other than The Magnificent One. And let's now go via telephone connection to Sunset Beach, Hawaii. Here at number two this week in the top ten is a man who's become very popular here in very short time on the show. And that is The Magnificent One. And I believe he is on the line right now direct from Sunset Beach,
4: Hawaii coo <laughs> I am the eggplant. I am the walrus. You have made the biggest mistake of your life. Brian Last. I feel sorry for the promoters. Brian Last. The 605 You You have let me in the door now. You have let the prince of darkness in the door now. What do I come in at this week? Number two. Number two. Number two. Number two is number one for me. Did I want to be NWA heavyweight champ? They told me I was better looking than Jack Briscoe. Bigger than Jack Briscoe. better wrestler. First man to reverse the figure <laughs> four. Everybody knows the story. Yeah. Figure four headline. Figure four, I don't care. Biggest star of all time. Sunset Beach, Hawaii. Just spilled a glass of my own urine in my own living room. Don't even care. Don't even (laughs) care. Let me tell you something. Number two. Okay. Let me me serve notice to all of you right now. I don't know who number one is. I don't want to be number one. I don't want to work that hard. I like being number two. Number two lets me lay on the beach. (laughs) number two lets me lay in the sand and get rubbed by ladies all day long with suntan lotion yeah and surf the big ones yeah number two lets me be in my own town and do my do you think i wanted to be no i didn't not for a minute intercontinental champion make my own schedule do my own thing guess what brian lass i feel sorry for you now because you have let the Prince of Darkness himself <laughs> into your backyard, and you don't even know it. What did I do? Well, I don't understand what your grievance is, Magnificent One. Let me tell you something. How many, how many days ago was it? I wager to think that it was 38, 42 days ago that I said, it's all coming down. It's been a while, yes. And guess what? And guess what? The cusp of the new year, 2017, 2018. Who did I say would be on the top of the heap? The Magnificent One. Not sue the shooter. Big fan of the hot dog. Big fan of the gym. <laughs> and big fan of Jim Cornette's answering machine. <laughs> None of that means a fuck now. Because let me tell you something What's coming down the road. Because it's all coming down. Like the cobra and the mongoose. This is the epic battle. The ultimate. The triple cage match of a lifetime. Let me tell you something. We are taking over the top 10 now. Because number two is number one to me. I am the king of the top ten, and I'm bringing my crew with me. Your crew? Who? <laughs> Who? Lactose intolerant Bobby Jaggers. <laughs> Wait, Fetal alcohol syndrome David Crockett. Wait, hold on. These are your characters for
0: your own top ten? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Don't crack me up, Brian, lad. I will kick your ass. I will come right down there to- to Middletown, New Jersey, and kick your ass, right, Brian Lance. I'll be on the next flight. Don't interrupt me. Fetal alcohol syndrome, David Crockett, or as you may know him, David Crockett. <laughs> hiccuping, hiccuping, fabulous moolah. Hiccuping. Well,
0: what does that? What does that sound like? I'd like to hear a little bit of that character.
4: I happen to have her over here having cocktails right now. What? Would you like to come over, Lillian? Come over. No, come over here, right? No, but come over here right now. I wanted you to talk to Brian life and show him the new boss in town. Hi, everybody. This is. Hi, everyone out there. in the... Hey, Sugar Plum. This is Lily. Hi, everybody in the six hundred five universe. I just. Mr. Morocco. I just. Okay, that's enough? That's what enough the for hell you. What was that? I'm bringing out the whole battleship. I have moved the whole family down from Sunset Beach. Who else? Who else? You can kiss my ass, everybody that you've ever heard of, because from now on, it's going to be the flamboyant Mike George. It's going to be preemie Stan Stasiak. It's going to be mild to moderate psoriasis, pompero, furpo. That's right. <laughs> we are all coming. Micropenis penis ox baker. Micro penis ox He likes to hurt people. But not with his penis. Okay, I'm talking cows. about. I'm talking about. tranny Calhoun. Okay, wait a minute. I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking. About, I'm talking about easily startled Lex Luger. Okay. Well. I'm talking about Speaker of the House Rufus R. Jones. It is all <laughs> coming. <laughs> this is the ultimate conquest of the Cobra versus the Mongoose. I'm talking about house. Big Nipple Stan Hansen. That's right, Peggy Lee Pleva. Hold on. Hold, unhappy, on. Na- I, hold on. This is more than 10 characters already, I think. I didn't say it was 10. I ain't. Morocco 1 ain't. A more magnificent 1 ain't limited by nothing. Okay. I, I even shadow Roddy Piper. I don't, I don't care, mister. So <laughs> we have got Peggy Lee Pleva. We have got unhappy Humphrey. <laughs> unhappy Humphrey. Okay. He is a sad, fat man. Okay. We have, okay. Got, we have got mentally stable Luke Graham. And the last two that I'm going to delight you people with, ectopic pregnancy, King Curtis.
0: Okay, okay. That's, <laughs> I think that may be enough now, Magnificent One. Don Ho, male prostitute. Okay, <laughs> okay look. we Think we, about th- it. You people will get that on the way home. All right, well, listen, we have to end this segment now, Magnificent One, and I'm sure it's a high tide, so you want to hit the surf right now. But before you go, you are at number two. Any last words for the 605ers this week?
4: It has been your pleasure.
0: There he is at number two in the top ten, the Magnificent One, and what an appearance he had here this week, I can't wait to see where this is going <laughs> next time here on the show, but at number one this week in the top ten, making a big debut, it's Kevin, and I believe he's on the line right now, Kevin, are you there? Hey, hey, Dan Farron. Kevin.
5: Hey, listen, are you that, I, I, are you that queer newsletter writer from California?
1: <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually that, but, but I appreciate you asking me that question because oh, yeah. I, I understand that, that, uh as being Kevin, you need to make sure uh, of the people that you talk to uh, that they don't try to come out and, and, and spread around all these fake news and everything and, and ruin your, uh, your reputation that you have.
5: Oh, yeah. Gosh, I hear all sorts of fake stories about me and my brothers. In fact, I read some the other day that said we jumped from from all Japan to New Japan because Bruiser Brody went to New Japan. That's not true. It isn't. No, no, no. If we were trying to stay in opposite organizations as Tiger Mask, because I hate cats.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. I could understand that. Hey, listen, we talked recently. um, I I was talking to you about the fact that I I may need a kidney operation. Oh, no. And and you offered to give me one of your kidneys. I just want to make sure before I make arrangements for the operation, uh, you will show up, right?
5: Although well, I I don't know who told you that. It may have been one of those one of those fake von Erics on the internet like cousin Lance, but no. Oh. oh. You know, you do you know Dan Farron? Are you that newsletter guy?
1: No, oh no, I'm not I'm not a, a newsletter oh. guy. I'm 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 a wrestler, a, a masked wrestler who has uses his real name.
5: Oh gosh. Did I ever tell you why I started wrestling barefoot?
1: No. It was so I could crush cats with my feet. Oh oh and 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 do you find that's a good finishing maneuver in the ring in the ring? Have you ever watched one of my matches oh i've I've watched many of your
5: matches, yes, oh gosh, and I remember I remember one time me and Kerry and Dave were out on Lake Dallas, and we were fishing yeah, caught a lot of fish that day. catfish, no, no, all sorts of striped sea bag. we even caught a shark. Really? We, caught, we now, caught a shark in Lake Dallas. How about now, that?
1: When you catch these fish, do you what you do? Do you take the claw and hold it underwater and grab them and squeeze them, the fish that way? No,
5: no. We we, we do it the old-fashioned way, like I used to do in my grandfather's days. We take a fishing rod out and we throw it in Lake Dallas, and then we shoot the fish.
1: Ah, oh, okay. That makes perfect sense, especially in Texas. Oh yeah, gosh, it's a lot of fish, a lot of frogs. Do you feel the same way about frogs as you do about cats? Oh no,
5: cats are the lowest form of scum on the planet. If you ever read the Bible, it says, yeah. "Crush the cats." Oh, uh which part of the Bible is that? I don't know. We talked about it on uh on CTN years ago, but uh but I don't know
1: where this is going. <laughs> I don't either, but we should probably script it next time. What we'll do is we'll send a note to Pat Robertson and have Pat Robertson get back to us. Or the Bible has the cat scripture in it. That's what we'll do. There he is making his debut. A
0: uh, a a ill inspired uh, Kevin here (laughs) on the top ten at number one. I promise it'll be better next time. I'll have a little bit of material (laughs) planned. But uh, what's interesting is Kevin now is at number one, and we have our championship match. The champion. Denim Fritz against the surging handsome boogeyman and the votes are in Dan and the winner and still champion Denim Fritz of course this means next time on the Super Podcast for the top 10 the championship match will be Denim Fritz versus Kevin Wow. This will be a very interesting voting, but the handsome boogeyman was so dejected after his loss this week that he is not on the show. He has told me he will not return to the show unless he's voted back into the top 10. We'll see what happens next week. But we have a few notes here that were sent to me by Denim Fritz. Let me uh, get these here. It's a moonlit night here in Texas, and I'm just rubbing one
5: out in memory of old Rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it again. Brian Adias is wrestling's equivalent of a dry bologna sandwich. <laughs> dadgummit that makes 42 iphones i've crushed by trying to tweet with my mighty claw hand <laughs> did i ever tell you about the time i gave stella may french a sponge bath and a horse trowel? hubba hubba winter olympics at <laughs> winter olympics my wrinkled old ass my boy Kerry could have meddled in any event discus throw curling luge speed skating Okay, maybe not speed skating, but you get my point.
0: <laughs> and those are the throat-busting messages from Denim Fritz here this week in the top ten. And again, next week, next time we have the top ten, it may not be on next week's show, maybe on the week after. But Kevin challenging Denim Fritz. This is a big, big match, Dan.
1: i, I It sounds like it. You know what? Uh, the minute uh, Kevin started talking about all this stuff, i am I'm not joking. Our our cat has started meowing in the other room very, very loudly. He's very upset, but I think I know who, who he's who he's going to be rooting for. He's going to be rooting for Denim Fritz.
5: That's how I get him. I used to sneak around the sportatorium, and I would just go, meow, meow. <laughs> and then when I would see the little kitty turn his head to me, I would throw a saw blade through its head. Well, there goes the PETA endorsement for this show, oh, I'll tell you that.
1: Yeah. I used to do that with Ken Mantell. That's why we were close. That also explains Cannon Mantel's haircut for the IT <laughs> That's a
0: very, very good one there, Dan. But uh, that's the top 10. Of course, voting for the top 10 and the championship match takes place at slash superpodcast, the official superpodcast Facebook page by going there. A few notes here as we get going with the show, Dan. Want to announce now next week on the show, we're going to have part two with Dr. D. David Schultz. You hear part one later on the show. Also, Scott Teal for our annual state of crowbar press visit where Scott comes, talks about his books that he put out last year, some of the projects he's working on for 2018, a really cool talk that we do every year here on the show. And Jeff Walton will be joining the show again. Oh, great. Your old friend Dan, and he's going to be talking about Bearcat Wright. And Mark Lewin in the W.W.A. And it ends up being a much bigger discussion about some of the W.W.A. champions like Pedro Morales. But we're going to specifically talk about Bearcat Wright and Mark Lewin next time on the show. So a really, really cool show planned. And we have some other uh, surprises in there. We've I've actually just been recording content nonstop for the last several days. So we have a lot of stuff coming in the next several shows that I think people are really going to dig. But uh, with that... I want to make mention, I want to thank everyone who has contributed to Jerry Gray's GoFundMe page. Of course, it's tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. I want to thank everyone. It really helps out. Jerry's a good guy. All that money goes directly to him. And on that note, I'm very happy to say that going forward, Jerry will be a regular here on the show. The same way Scott Cornish or Howard Baum or Vandal Drummond are regulars, Jerry will be a regular on the show. And to demonstrate that, we're going to have a little segment right here, a few minutes with Jerry Gray. And we're going to talk a little bit about Jerry's trips to Japan, specifically the time he spent over there right when the UWF guys came back into New Japan. A fun, fun talk. Let's go to this right now. Let's spend a few minutes with our pal Jerry Gray this week here on the show. Jerry, you know, something we didn't really get to touch on uh, in the previous times you were on the show, but I wanted to talk a little bit about today was Japan. And specifically, I know you went over there a bunch of times, but I want to talk first about you as a fan. I mean, when did you first see Japanese wrestling? What was the first Japanese wrestling you got into?
8: Actually, the first Japanese I, saw, I would seen would have been when uh, Antonio Anuki started working with Johnny Powers in the Cleveland promotion. That was back in 73. But when I first started uh, seeing the tapes is when uh, Great Muda and Kenan Nagasaki, right prior to my first Toro going over there in 86, uh, Muda had given me some tapes of uh, Dynamite Kid and uh, Tiger Mask, some of those matches. So I thought that's the way uh, all the matches were going to be. So I was just, he, he, he tried to make me think that's the way every match would be in Japan. And I was just like, man, Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> kind of like the, The best match going. Yeah. Yeah. So then I found out a lot of, I mean, the Japanese women, when I would go over there, I liked watching them back in those days. I mean, they were so great and awesome workers, you know, all Japan women. I would be uh, watching them in the hotel. Usually they were like a lot better than most of the men at that time back in 86. But yeah, the first time I went there, a scout came from uh, New Japan to uh, Tampa to try to find some talent. And then they, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but. Matsuda came up to me and asked me if I wanted to go to Japan. I was like, yeah, of course. And then the first show, they, um, I guess it was like a tryout first. They had me on a Honolulu, Hawaii. I think that's on YouTube, actually. I just saw it. Um, against Muda, they yeah. brought me. It was a New Japan co promotion with uh, Leah Maia Via, Lars Anderson. That was a New Japan. Brody was there and a lot of New Japan wrestlers. And then uh, that was my first. Uh, show for them actually like i said uh, Noki was there Sagaguchi and all the the bookers and everything and then they brought me that year of uh, 86 was my first tour over there and it was right when they started i guess it was when they started the UWF kind of uh, like the nwo against uh, wcw type deal where they did UWF against new japan well
0: that's right when the Maeda. UWF came back all those guys who had defected yeah. after everything went down in 83 they all came back. Mm-hmm. I mean not all. I mean Siyama never came back, or at least didn't at that time, but no. <laughs> Maeda, Fujiwara, Takata, that whole crew came back.
8: Yes, and I was um, that was my first tour, like I said, over there, and on that tour it was uh Kevin Kelly was there, Nails was in WWF and Nails, Jim Duggan was on that tour. Yeah,
0: you had the UWF um, guys because a lot of the guys had the relationship with the all Japan office. So the Americans go to New Japan at that time is really interesting. And you had a lot of the guys that were coming out of Watts' territory, which hurt Watts, because every few weeks, Babyface had to get hurt and disappear for a while. But you had a lot of those Mid-South yeah. guys in New Japan.
8: Yeah. And actually, uh, Bruiser Brody was, uh, I guess, that was when he just jumped back to New Japan again. He was on that tour, too, with us. Um, so that was the first time I really got to meet him. And he was a really nice guy to me. He was quiet, and I was quiet. So he kind of liked me, and he asked me if I wanted to um, go eat with him one night. And I was just like, man, that's weird because he was not even talking to anybody else on the bus hardly so i got to know him then that was a really a privilege i mean no and then he had uh at that time the weirdest thing happened too he had asked some of the americans like kevin kelly myself and uh jim duggan to watch his back when he was working that nookie for some reason he thought somebody was gonna because he jumped you know from all japan to new japan yeah he was wanting uh us to come out to the you know well not to the ring but i mean standing out pretty far as the word. To watch his back during the match with Anuki. And I don't know what was going on exactly with that, but nothing happened, but I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but it was kind of strange. But, um, yeah. And then, like I said, uh, I ended up working, uh, I don't know if Maida had a lot of say, I guess, in Fujiwara, like who they worked. So when they found out that, uh, and I had trained in Florida and worked out with Matsuda a lot and everything too, and Louis Tillet and all, they wanted, they requested to wrestle me a lot. So it was, uh, I had a lot of good matches, Maida and Fujiwara, Takata. And then uh, one story was funny because uh, Kevin Kelly had won a lot of tough man contests. I don't know if the listeners remember. He was nails in WWE. He uh, was tagged with me one night against uh, Fujiwara, who is like maybe 200 pounds, a little over 200 pounds. And he had a lot of training with Carl Gotch. So I guess Kevin Kelly tried to get a little tough with him in the ring. And next thing you know, my partner's on the mat, six five, 280 <laughs> pounds, a big muscled up guy. But he's... Can't get off the, mat, off the mat for some reason. Fujiwara had him stretched and he wasn't moving until Fujiwara decided he's going to let him back up again. And Fujiwara was just smiling over at me and then he finally let him tag me and then we started working again. <laughs> that was kind of funny though. And he came back in the dressing room and told him he had a no good coach and he told me I had a good coach. So <laughs> Fujiwara? That was it? kind of a. Yeah. Yeah, right in front of me. He just said, You have no good coach. You have good coach. He didn't he didn't speak real good English but that was and Kevin Kelly didn't like him too good but it wasn't much he was gonna do about it. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, that was that was a thrill though to um get to know all the and then the U W F guys after I'd been there, you know, a couple of years of tours they would uh, actually uh ask me to come over in the dressing room with them, their dressing room and that's pretty cool. The Americans didn't like it too good sometimes because they usually weren't big fans of the UWF guys because they'd like to do a lot of uh, you know maeda with his kicks and everything. But yeah, I was um, going to ask
0: you how how you long know, did it take you to get used to those kicks? What was it like the first time you took one of those?
8: Um, well, like a, I'm sure you've heard the stories. They, they test you at first to see if you can, you know, if you're going to let them do it. And then uh, the first time he did it, eat I mean, right in the ribs, like, so lightning quick, too. You just got to wait till one of them you can catch, you know. And I just kind of caught him. And then before I got to know him, I caught him and got him in a Boston Crab and sat on him for real a little bit. And then they respect it, though. They like it, like when you fight back, you know. But some guys made the mistake of just letting them keep kicking them. And then they're going to end up beating the crap out of you the whole tour then. So mainly you just got to fight back. That's all true what people say. I mean, if you fight back and show them that you can, you know, you can wrestle a little. And then they'll they respect you for it. So yeah, Maida, he, he always liked me after first tour. We worked together. And then I think he would always request because I always ended up working either him or a nookie a lot of times. So I'd be in tags against a nookie with uh, either Dr. Death, or whoever was on the tour, you know, either Dr. Death would be my partner, or Dick Murdoch. That was a really nice being partners with him because he could really actually good as a worker as he was over here. I mean, he was like, he could do technical anything over there in Japan. I mean, he never believed the stuff he could do. I'm sure you've seen tapes, but oh, I mean, yeah. just house shows over there. I mean, when he had a lot of time to go, a long time. Well, I mean, he could do as good as that. I mean, anybody in the business, I don't think anybody could outwork him if he wanted to.
0: Do you remember the first time you saw Yamada Jushin Liger?
8: Um, yeah, he was, I think he was a young boy when I first went there because I remember he, yeah, he was a young boy then because Chris Benoit was, too, was actually at that time. Uh, he was, uh, you know, they'd carry, it, you know, the guys' bags and all that. And Chris Benoit was there, a young boy, and Daryl Peterson, Max Payne. Him and Chris, Chris Benoit were there together. Yeah,
0: that's that whole class. And,
8: sure. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, he was—they were nice guys to me. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I remember at Liger. He was—I uh, don't—I think he might have just started wrestling, maybe, but he didn't have the gimmick. I know because he needed that mask definitely. <laughs> you know the, the the way he just didn't have a the look really but he uh yeah he uh he wasn't Liger, definitely yet when i was there
0: how did the guys from what you saw treat the young boys like well, what was that like the first time you saw that whole young boy system when you got there in 86
8: well i had never heard anything I mean, Ken and Nagasaki, as good as I knew him and Muda, they didn't smart me up to the way it was over there, the customs, you know. So my first match for New Japan was actually in Hawaii, and I'm sitting in the dressing room with Kendo because we were good friends and Muda. And then here's Anuki sitting on the same bench as us and uh, Fujinami. And then Fujinami started taking Anuki's boots off for him. Uh, I didn't, I've never seen that like it before, you know. So I was kind of, I was kind of, I was kind of laughing a little bit. And then, uh, I mean, I thought he was joking. And then I was like, cause Fujinami was a big name too at the time, you know. So I was just kind of like a little bit of laugh a little bit. And then, uh, and told him to, in Japanese, you know, to stop, I guess, because <laughs> I don't know if he seen me laughing or what, but I was just like, oh, okay, that's a little bit different over here.
5: Oh, man, oh, you, ruined I <laughs> you ruined this yeah, whole he, he, thing. You ruined this whole slavery thing.
8: Yeah, he, he was like, no, no, no. He said something to him. I was just like, oh, God, I don't think I'll laugh at that again. Whatever happened. But yeah, the, um, but the. Yeah, the young boys would carry, you know, the carrier bags and stuff like that. And I guess they would even wash, I didn't, I didn't watch this, but they would wash a uh, Anuki's back and everything. and Or whoever, Baba, you know, whoever company it was, they'd wash their back and everything. And I mean, even top names. I mean, just like even people like Fujinami, people like that, disrespect, you know. Have you seen that, by the way, have you seen that uh, Anuki, The I don't know what he calls it, but the slap of where he gives you his power. He smacks everybody in the face, that, that thing they have on YouTube, like. 50 people were in line waiting to get smacked by a nookie.
0: <laughs> Isn't that amazing?
8: <laughs> you see that? Because have... he smacked me once in the face.
0: <laughs> really? What happened? Yeah.
8: Oh, see what happened? Was I tore I tore Yeah. I didn't know he respected me because what happened was I uh, <laughs> tore my. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. The way the way people my... try
0: to show you respect in wrestling, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's a little
8: different. Different over the, yeah. there's a different one than Jake's uh, respect. Yeah, I like this way better a little bit maybe. But the <laughs> but I, what I did, I tore my cartilage in my knee. I think I told you about that with Maeda. I was going going to do a Boston crab on him, and he was doing the counter to the Boston crab at the same time I did. And I just kind—I had bad knees anyway from amateur wrestling, and I tore my leg right then. I was partners with Rick Steiner, and I tore like a cartilage. I heard a pop, and it just—you could tell it was either a torn cartilage or ligaments or whatever. But I wasn't going to leave the tour, you know. Only one weekend, or a four-week tour, you know, because then you don't get paid, and then you're like a coward or whatever, leaving. You know, that's what they think, you know. So I just kept limping through um all the whole all the matches and they had to tape like uh, who was it there? George Wells. Remember him? He was a pro football player, I yeah, think, before he got Master in wrestling. Up. Like, uh, <laughs> he yeah, he taped my leg up. Uh, him and Doctor Death would tape my leg up every night like a football type gimmick, you know, when they hurt their legs. So it was like a um cast almost. I would have to limp to the ring like that. So I guess a nookie respected that that I wouldn't I wouldn't go home or whatever, even though I was Screwed up bad. I remember Benoit would go get me bags of ice all the time because my leg was so bad on me. And then, uh, so a Nookie smacks me. I was partnered with Dr. Death this night, and he smacks me in the face. I mean, so hard. uh, It was hard not to even go down. I mean, so I was like, what the hell was that for? I'm trying to wrestle with my leg torn like this, and he smacks me in the face that I never knew, you know, all these years. I guess that's his way of saying, like, you know, giving you his power or whatever. (laughs) So I was like, I just found out, like, not too long ago. But I heard he would smack some people sometimes. It was weird, like, uh, some of the Yakuza would uh, come and he'd smack them in the face, too, or something. He was smacking the Yakuza? Yeah, some weird stuff would go on. And then, yeah, I was like, I don't know what, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't want to know either, really. It was just like, yeah, Nookie just smacked this guy. I was like, God, what the hell's what the smacking stuff? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I never knew why he smacked me. I was like, God, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do the best I can. <laughs> My leg torn open. Yeah, it was so funny when I seen that tape not too long ago on YouTube. Well, he didn't, he didn't know that some of them too hard though. I noticed, you know, like the, uh, oh, but a few he did. Who was online. but a few, he did. Yeah. Some of the young guys, <laughs> yeah. the late, it like he hit the girl harder than some of the guys, you know, didn't Fujiwara, do it? On there.
0: didn't Fujiwara jump in line? I
8: think Fujiwara. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was and Fujinami too. Right. Seems like, <laughs> yeah.
0: So you have the power of Anoki.
8: He transferred it to yeah, you. Was, you
0: have the power of Anoki Right now I mean, you still have yeah. it.
8: Yeah. I know. I thought I had some kind of different thing going on <laughs> no but he uh he was definitely over i mean when i was there Jesus.
0: yeah i mean by the time you were there which is after the scandals in 83 and you know in the 84 in 86 i mean Anoki mm-hmm. was still crazy over
8: oh yeah definitely
0: would you say fujinami was clear number two
8: well they didn't want him to be but my Eda was over pretty big the uwf guy oh, yeah. you know yeah. too so I mean, but they, it was depend on who they wanted to be over, but I mean <laughs> you can't hold back the people, but what they their opinion is, you know, but uh, I thought my eat it was pretty over pretty big too, worked mostly with the nookie actually all the all the house shows, definitely every night he'd have like a six man tag it'd be me and whoever the Americans were on the tour Doctor Death, and you know Dick Murdoch or whoever it would be. <laughs> Oh, I got a funny story about Dick Murdoch, what what he wanted to do. Um, okay, it was a four-week tour. <laughs> four-week tour, right? So Murdoch decides the first. It was Murdoch and Bob Orton Jr. And Ray Candy was there. I can't remember who else, but um, that's the main ones. But uh, Murdoch tells Bob Orton Jr., the first day into the tour, okay, what we're going to do is this whole tour, we're not going to take one shower or wash our clothes at all. We're going to wear the same, you know, he had a sweatsuit on. And Orton's like, yep, okay. So he didn't take a shower the whole month or even, I mean, change his clothes, nothing. And he had stains all over, like Dusty Rose always talked about, Murdoch with his, his underwear, stains on it and everything. But he had stains all over, and then Orton finally broke down after like the third weekend, and Murdoch got so mad at him for taking a shower <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> i never heard nobody yeah he, he broke down and said i have to i have to i can't i can't handle anymore and murdoch was so mad i said i've never seen nothing like this i mean go a month without a shower after sweating every night and everything in japan too back then they didn't even use air conditions you know in the summertime or nothing in the building <laughs> so so it was like oh my god this is nasty that was so funny though he got so mad because he wouldn't uh Murdoch uh, Orton went ahead and took a shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. But yeah, what a what a worker he was, though. Both of them really, Murdoch and Orton. I got the privilege to be tagged with uh, both of them actually over there, but Murdoch a lot over there we were tagged a lot. And Matsuda was actually there with us on that tour. He don't usually go to Japan anymore, but he he actually went with us. Why? Um, I don't. I don't even know why he went. exactly, I guess just to visit some of the Anuki and all them. But he, uh, he was on the bus with us the whole time too. And he actually, I didn't realize how much uh, Matsuda could drink either. But he was keeping up with Murdoch. I mean, they were drinking. I'd say after the show, they would drink at least thirty to forty beers just on the bus ride back. Wow. Each forty beers. Yeah. I was like, you gotta be kidding. Matsuda even drinks like this. Yeah, he kept up with Murdoch. <laughs>
0: There he is, the golden boy, Jerry Gray, once again, tinyurl.com slash gofundgoldenboy. If you enjoy listening to Jerry here on the show, if you laugh, if you enjoy, if you learn something from his stories, then please consider donating to him and his fight. He's currently battling stage four cancer. Every little bit helps. Every dollar, every cent helps. Once again, tinyurl.com slash Boy. And from there, Dan, we're going to move on to a conversation I had with Greg Oliver. That's a name a lot of people know from the fantastic books that he's put out. Also, of course, Slam Wrestling, some great wrestling articles nonstop that Greg Oliver is behind. I wanted to talk to him about that because I think preserving wrestling history is such an important thing. And I wanted to talk to Greg a little bit about that, as well as his newsletter. A lot of you may remember the Canadian Wrestling Report if you're an old newsletter person. So let's now go to this conversation with slam wrestling's greg oliver i am very happy to welcome to the super podcast today a man who has done a whole lot to preserve wrestling history and get those stories out there and that is greg oliver a lot of you may know him from slam wrestling if you're old enough you may remember him from the canadian wrestling report newsletter but greg is on the line right now greg how are you today hey thanks for having me on the show the Canadian Wrestling Report, when you go back and you look at those newsletters, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? The, these creations of yours, when did it start, 85?
9: Yeah, yeah, it was all, it was 85. I mean, that how naive I was, I guess, when you look at it. <laughs> I mean, I was 14 years old, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look at those and I, I realized both that I got some wonderful opportunities through it and made some lifelong friends. But uh, on the other side is it's like, yeah, man, I was a long way from a true journalist at that point. So, I mean, there's good and bad to it. And it's it's neat that it's out there and and that entrepreneurial ability that that helps you in life. You know, you learn how to deal with people. You learn how to deal with a little business. All those things really help pay off over the years.
0: When you're 14 years old and you're putting out the wrestling report, the Canadian wrestling report, and you're writing about what's happening, a lot of the uh, WWF news at that time, because obviously they were big in your area. Did you ever think then, as 14 years old, that all these years later, you'd actually be making a living writing about wrestling.
9: Oh, I don't make a living at it.
0: (laughs) Let's be realistic here. Um, I, uh, I've been
9: very fortunate. Uh, I married well. Uh, My wife's got a really good job. And uh, when my son was born, uh, we made the decision. I stayed home. Um, So that was the last full-time job I had was like 2001. Um, Oh, that's, that's not true. That's my last full-time job with benefits. Uh, then I worked a number of other jobs uh, in the publishing industry. And then, then I stayed home with him ever since. And so he's 11 now. He doesn't really need me anymore. So I'm a, I, I'm a writer slash stay-at-home dad, able to jump up and help when necessary. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never made a full-time living at this wrestling. because I didn't. I don't think I ever pushed hard enough. I mean, I'm not Mike Johnson-like. Uh, and that's not an insult. I really respect what those guys do, him and Shearer and stuff. It's incredible. It's just I don't think that's what I'd want to do.
0: What I meant to say was when you were 14 years old putting out this newsletter, did you ever think all these years later you would actually marry well? <laughs>
9: <laughs> That's a very good point, yeah. Uh You know what? When I was at Ryerson studying journalism, I purposely had stepped away from all the wrestling uh, and just, you know, the whole Internet. And then the Internet boom coincided with WCW and and the rise of, uh, you know, all that wrestling again. And all of a sudden I was back in it. It was uh, kind of bizarre. All those old contacts were still around and I was able to get back in it without uh, much thought, really. And, And yeah, all these years later, here I
0: am. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. You know, this first newsletter was 1985, but it wasn't the beginning of you being a wrestling fan. Talk a little bit about when you first discovered wrestling and some of your early memories.
9: Oh, no, it sort of is. That's the thing that most people don't get about me is that it was Hulkamania that I got into wrestling with. And, you know, so then it coincided with us getting an Apple IIe computer. And uh, one of the first programs we got was a publishing program. And so my brother and I sort of fooled around with it and uh, came up with a wrestling newsletter because everybody was talking about the WWF uh, in the schoolyard. So that's how I started. Um, I didn't watch wrestling before that. I mean, I guess I sort of knew about it, but I was never a big fan uh, until Hookamania. Uh, yeah, so that's how it starts. And then, you know, my dad worked at an office. He was able to, uh, you know, do some of the printing for me, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden he took a few to the, to the office and I retook some to school and you put a couple of ads in the newspaper and then you realize there's a far bigger wrestling world out there. Um, and it's those guys like the Tom Burke, right? That put you in the, uh, in his newsletter and start yeah. getting other people subscribing. And then you learn about other those guys. And then, uh, you know, you didn't know about Meltzer when I started. It's not like I started, I started in a vacuum. I didn't know anybody else existed doing wrestling newsletters.
0: When did you first see another wrestling newsletter?
9: Oh, I don't think it was too long afterwards. Um, probably by the end. Well, Early nine eighty six for sure, because by 88, I was going to the conventions, right? You'd be meeting these guys, you know, that you'd been getting your newsletter, your your Wade Keller, who started up uh, with the torch, or Dave Meltzer, you get to meet, or John Gallagher and uh, Tom Burke. Uh, it was a wonderful experience to get to meet these guys and, and see they weren't really all that different than you. That's just, in some cases, I'm a little
0: bit older. Well, going back to 85, you know, this is the year of WrestleMania. This is really the year that WWF takes off because they also get on national television in America with NBC and Saturday night's main event. What was it about Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania that really drew you in?
9: It was all that pomp, the circumstance, the the color, the and, and, and you know, it's that MTV generation. I mean, it, it'd be foolish to dismiss the importance of, you know, watching Wendy Richter and, and seeing all, you know, you'd see her on MTV or we had much music up here, but... Uh, that idea, like there was the crossover, uh, wrestling was cool and wrestling was hip and uh, everybody talked about it. So uh, there was that. But I mean, as much as you get drawn in by Hulk Hogan, you stay because of a Varadi Piper, uh, you know, a Bobby Heen and those kind of guys that you really liked. Um, and then it didn't take long till you realize there was a heck of a lot more out there. And, and you start finding tape traders, you start finding other opportunities to watch wrestling, whether it was um, Stampede Wrestling finally got on TSN, which is our ESPN Uh, You had the chance to watch uh, BC All-Star Wrestling and and its Dying Days, which was actually broadcast nationally on the CTV affiliates. I mean, there there was wrestling out there, and and I don't think I had the respect for it that I do now. Like even the BC product for as bad as it was with Al Tomko still putting himself over when he was in his 50s, (laughs) um, still have a lot of fond memories for those guys who really followed it and really watched it. It was their hometown product. Uh, it wasn't for me so i think it was easier for to dismiss it and it's, you see a lot of that now too right it's like i never understood those continental guys or i never understood the tennessee guys pushing all the the chicken shit heels it's like well it was just a different promotion right we watching wwwf was really boring for some people but if that's what you grew up on that's what really matters to you
0: that's exactly right and you know everyone has that same experience and when it comes to what you grew up on you you named you know a lot of promotions in canada when they would start airing but in terms of where you grew up how big was wrestling amongst the other kids your age?
9: You know, I was almost like a little Pied Piper in some ways because I was the guy that would buy the uh, 10 ringside seats and then sell them to my other friends. Like, not for profit, just, you know, knowing that we'd all get together or, you know, yeah. if our parents all knew we were going together, it'd be okay. Um, so I ended up doing that a lot. And then as I grew a little bit older, I'd made some friends that had cars or I, you know, learned to drive and was able to go to other events and other places. So. It was okay in high school for a little bit, but certainly by the end of high school, wrestling wasn't as popular anymore, right? We're talking, you know, 88, 89, you know, going down a little bit. Certainly WrestleMania in Toronto, though. 1990 was a highlight. Uh, getting to cover that and, and be a part of some of those uh, events was,
0: was pretty magical. Were you able to attend Mosca-mania? Uh, <laughs>
9: <laughs> see Mos- mosca and Milta ruskin were were two of the key figures in in my life um as far as getting real access I, it's really? funny that way the way it works i mean you meet guys and you know whatever it is they they see they they see you and, and they they give you a break um johnny canine uh who was uh bruiser bedlam and yeah um he was the guy that you know, he let me start doing his um programs at his shows. And he really let me into the, the business kind of thing. Uh Ricky Johnson, who's the, you know, the people's uncle, uh, is a Toronto guy. Let me in and learn a lot of stuff, uh, this and that. But it was really it was by accident. My mom owned a little flower shop. Uh, we went around a corner to a little restaurant and uh, there was Angela Mosca and Milton Ruskin. So, you know, you gather up your nerve and you go over, you know, talk to them and they were doing pro wrestling Canada. Uh, and so, you know, that leads to come on down to the shows. And, and, you know, we get interviews with Road Warrior Animal and Ivan Koloff and Gino Burrito and a couple other guys, you know, backstage at, at, as long as, as well as Mosca and Abruskin. Um And Milton, and I stayed friends right until his death. Uh, and Mosca is not in good shape right now, but. Yeah. He's got Alzheimer's and stuff, but man, we, we stayed in touch a lot too. And he was always happy to give me a story. And, and uh, one of my favorite Moscow scores, this sort of ties it all in together. Well, actually, there's two stories related to that. I couldn't get him on the, on the phone to get, confirm that he's coming to my book launch. This was 2003. So we're jumping ahead a bit with the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians. But it was in Niagara Falls, and he lived on Niagara on the lake. And I got his wife, Helen, on the phone, and she says, Don't worry, he's coming. So Mosca came to my book launch. It was awesome because uh, my wife's aunt knew him through the football things uh, so she and, and through horse riding and things like that. So they were all excited to see each other again. Years later, we go to Mosca's book launch uh, because I helped out a lot with uh, Steve Milton who wrote it. I helped a lot with the wrestling side of things. And there's Helen, who I'd never met, his wife. And I, I go up to her and I say, Helen, you're not going to remember this story, but here's the deal. So I tell her the story about how you got Mosca to my book launch, and here I am at his book launch. So it closes the circle. And in the same way, you know, I went to Johnny Canine's funeral. You know, they thought they all thought I was a cop because I was the only one there in a suit. There was a lot of leather and a lot of biker kind of people. Um, first funeral I've ever been to where a fight breaks out. But it was interesting. It was important to me to go and uh, just sort of be a part of it. And it ends up being one of the more interesting funerals I've certainly ever been to.
0: You know, I can't say I knew him very well. I only met him a few times in 94 when I was 14 at Smoky Mountain Wrestling Fan Week. And I know all the stories. I know all the stories. We covered them here on this show and on Jim Cornette Show's. But he was always really nice to me. What was he like with you? Well, yeah, he was nice, for sure. But he also had hot and cold moments. I mean, he had a
9: temper. There's uh, no doubt about that. There were certainly times that uh, he went off the rails, uh, got upset about me, whatever I wrote, this and that. Um, One time, this was, again, years later, we're jumping ahead. I'm working at uh, Slam Wrestling. We do a big feature about him. And uh, I wrote about all the cocaine convictions and all those kind of things. And you know, Greg, Greg, why do you have to write all that shit? I said, John, is any of it not true? Because if it is, I'll correct it. But as far as I'm concerned, it's all true. And I i had done my research and he got really upset. And then there was King Kong Bundy there. Uh, he was he was in the dressing room. He just sort of stood up and just, you know, canine back down. You know, there's certain guys, I guess, that he wouldn't take on. And I I would think King Kong Bundy was a guy that most guys wouldn't want to take on. He's just kind of big.
0: And when it comes to Mosca, you know, we, we in America, we got to see him in the WWF. He was in Florida. He was in Mid-Atlantic. He had a lot of good runs. But in Ontario, just what level of star was he?
9: Well, you have to understand, he was such a big star in Canadian football. He's just such a fascinating star. Like, he got kicked out of Notre Dame for gambling. So a lot of Americans just never got to know him as a football player. And so he became a big star up here in Canada, won lots of great cups, uh, was a controversial figure. Everybody knew who he was. So therefore, it was a shorthand, right? Whatever he was doing in the ring, we already knew who he was. Uh, and I think that was a big help for him getting over and, and being a star. But, you know, he while he wrestled in many places across Canada, yeah, it was mainly the southern Ontario where he liked to just like to be right that's where his home was so he would he would perform here and do a good job
0: someone asked me this the other day and i didn't have an answer so i will ask you where is angelo mosca jr oh i saw him um well he lives not he lives in southern
9: Ontario as well he works as a um at a prison it's not as a prison guard it's it's more of a, a counselor kind of role but he's a good dude. I mean, they had a big event for Ange uh, essentially before he went into the retirement home. He's he's in a home for Alzheimer's at the moment. And, uh, you know, it's nice to actually meet Ange in person. I talked to Ange Jr. on the phone when I was working on the piece. and um, But, yeah, he's a good dude. So, and he's a guy that, you know, never quite was his father. You know, he just didn't, he had the height. He just didn't have the, well, notoriety or the drive or whatever it is, right, that makes a guy a star.
0: Yeah, you know, and he's a name who, you know, for a brief period of time they were really pushing him in Mid Atlantic. I think he won the PWI Rookie of the Year award, and then he was just gone. I mean, you really never heard about him much ever again. At least here in America, we didn't. So, like I said, it came up the other day. Someone said, "What ever happened to Angelo Mosca Jr.?" And I said, "I have no idea. Maybe he has still has that PWI Rookie of the Year plaque somewhere." I don't know. A lot, a lot of those. You know what? The
9: wrestlers don't. And, and I write a lot about professional hockey too, or not just professional hockey, just hockey in general, and. The hockey guys, by and large, keep the memorabilia a lot more than the wrestler guys. But then again, I think the hockey guys probably stay married a lot more than the wrestling guys (laughs) ever did.
0: (laughs) That's probably a very good point. Going back to this newsletter, though, you were covering contemporary wrestling throughout the run of the newsletter. And, of course, what you do now is such a great job of telling the stories of the history of pro wrestling. When did you first gain an interest in the story, the history of professional wrestling?
9: Oh, I think it was almost right from the get-go. I mean, I love spending time at the library, and, and you, you find a book like Whatever Happened to Gorgeous George, and, you know, I must have gotten it out of the, the Kitchener Public Library, you know, a dozen times, you know, and, and that just leads you down a rabbit hole is how I usually describe it. I mean, once you start reading one thing, that leads you to the next, and you want to know more, and and then all of a sudden, yeah, you're in way over your head. But it was probably the, the key factor was when we were doing slam wrestling, and we almost immediately we set up – what we called our um, Canadian Hall of Fame, and it was a way to honor guys from the past and a way to, you know, set it up on the site so you could write about somebody and have sort of a reason to talk to a guy like Al Tomko, right, and bring him up and and do a story about him. Um, So I I think that was probably where it really took off. But even now, it's like writing about historical hockey guys or historical uh, wrestlers or whatever. I I like that. I like history. I like writing about it and how things have changed and trying to put things in perspective. And I think we all need a little bit more of that. I mean, our our society's changed so much with everything's about what have you done for me now? Certainly, the internet is a big part of that, but the, the phones, all that, the way we eat, instant gratification that's so necessary now. History can teach us a lot.
0: It certainly can. You know, there's that expression. It sounds corny. It sounds cheesy. But if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. And it certainly is true. And there's a lot we can learn about wrestling that could be applied to today that we can take from the history books. And you've written many of those history books. And really, those are, I guess, the two main things you're known for today are the books that you and Steve Johnson have done, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books, and also your work on slam wrestling. Let's start with that. What's The story behind Slam Wrestling, how was it developed? And talk a little bit about what you do there.
9: Well, long story short is that uh, I worked at the Toronto Sun newspaper. I got a job there when I was um, still in journalism school uh, as a summer job, and I just never left. I was there 10 years, uh, which included my time when they decided to start a website. So this is 1995. You know, this web is this new thing that, uh, you know, Sun Media decided to start a website. And essentially, nobody knew much about it. Like I had a Freenet account at that point, I think, for email. And that's about all I knew about the internet. But I knew the guy that was running it. And I went to my boss, Hugh, and I said, when you go, I want to go too. He said, okay. And that was my job, you know, that. so I didn't know what I was doing. But I quickly learned and I had a great advantage because I'd worked at the newspaper, whereas all the other guys that they hired to do the grunt work, didn't know the newspaper business. So I knew who to call. I knew who worked at the Calgary Sun that did this kind of job. So those things were a huge help in my uh, career. But around the same time, we're developing content. And John Powell uh, was definitely the guy that pushed me and said, let's do wrestling, let's do wrestling, because he knew I was a wrestling fan. And um, they basically gave us the go ahead. The, the key was the Sun newspapers already had a number of wrestling columns. We had Bret Hart's column in the Calgary Sun. Uh, the Toronto Sun had always had a wrestling column. Uh, at that time, it was um, Glenn Coach Cole that was doing it. Uh, the Ottawa Sun had one that they had, Mr. X, who was actually the um, the sports editor, Tim Baines, was doing it. So we had immediate content. And that that's really all we looked at it as. It's like, hey, here's another section we're going to have with wrestling. Uh, and then because we always needed content, they let us do what we want. And that goes for a lot of canoe. It was a wonderful place to work uh some of the interviews I did there are, are mind-boggling. It's like, you know what? I'd really like to talk to Ralph Bakshi, who did the first Lord of the Rings movie, the, the animated one. And that led me then to talk to Saul Zantz, who was the guy that owned the rights yeah. to Lord of the Ring. And and I got to interview all these guys. Uh, Timothy's on. I got to sit down with Neil Gaiman when American Gods came out. I had to read it in a weekend because I was going to interview him on Monday. <laughs> So, I mean, it was a wonderful place to work, and, and the wrestling was a big part of it. Uh, but, of course, the key was there was traffic, right? People wanted to read about the wrestling. And, and ever since then, wrestling's basically been number two on the site uh, after hockey. So we were pretty fortunate that way. But, I mean, that's because people found us. And they found us early uh, in the history of the Internet, for sure. And uh, they stuck around. They kept coming back. Like, there's lots of people that have been coming to wrestling, slam wrestling
0: for 20 years. Well, one of the things you've become known for, uh, just like Dave Meltzer, and it's always a weird compliment to give this to someone, but you do a great job with the obituaries that you do whenever a wrestler passes away. And I'm always so curious, because you do such a good job and you put them out so quick, do you actually build up a database of information ready to apply it to a specific story if you think someone may get sick at some point down the road?
9: Uh, Yes and no. Um, The fact is, like, when One of my jobs at The Sun was I worked in the new, in the uh, library. So I, I understand the importance of being organized. And, and my wife may disagree. I don't think this house looks very organized. <laughs> it doesn't. But uh, that's a big part of it. So I know where my stuff is. I know how to get to it. I know what I have and who I've interviewed. So I'm able to get to some of that stuff fast. Uh, the second part is, yeah, like most news agencies, we do have some that are banked that uh, we may use down the road. Um, and that's the unfortunate reality of life you hear about somebody's not doing well you plan a little bit and uh, you get ready
0: and you do a great job because you do it the way a reporter would I would imagine if a wrestler died and a major newspaper was covering it I mean it's covered the way it would be covered in a newspaper you do a great job with that of all the obituaries and all the classic wrestling features you've done are there any of that for one reason or another because of either your relationship with the participant or elements of the story was especially hard for you to write?
9: Yes. So, well, absolutely. I mean, there's guys I cried about. I mean, like a guy like uh, Willie the Wolfman, Farkas. Like, you know, he was a friend of mine. He was uh, one of the sweetest men I ever knew. And, um, you know, when he died, my son and I had actually been to visit him just around Christmas time. And he he was in the hospital. We went to visit him and he got out of the hospital or what's the best way to describe it? We got there and he was getting out of the hospital. Uh so like when we showed up. So we traveled home with him, uh, to his house and he was always so sweet. He always wanted to give presents to my son. Uh he was just the sweetest man. Um so that one I cried with. Um, you know, there's a few other guys that were important in my career that way, but they became friends. And that, that makes it hard. Even Rotten Reggie Love, who was a recent one. I mean, I didn't write a straight up report on him. It's more of an editorial, more about my experiences with him. Because that's important to me. Others are challenging in different ways, right? Trying to find the facts or you have to call, you make that call um, to, you know, Chief J. Strongbow's wife, Mary, and you go, is this true? And and she says, yes. And then you can run with it. I mean, that's a step that most of these internet journalists don't do. But then again, they probably, they've never taken the time to create those personal relationships, right? To dig up the phone, to sit down with a guy. Um, you go to these events right? Like it's, uh, while well, running the Titans in Toronto, we've done six dinners up here. So, you know, Baron Mikhail Sucluna comes up because you learn that his wife, Gloria, was from Toronto. So he came up to one of our dinners because he could come up and see family. So it, it, it's been a wonderful ride getting to know people. And, and when, you, when they're gone, like the Baron, um, you know, you, you miss them.
0: Well, it's really what it all is. Like you said, it's about relationships. And if you can build those relationships and have them develop the way a normal relationship would. It's just it happens to be with someone who may be the subject of a story or a segment. Then you have that ability to get them on the phone and confirm things or have them deny things or expand upon things. And it's a, it's a good thing and it's a necessary thing if you're trying to report truthfully, as you do and as I attempt to do here on this show. One story you wrote that I found so difficult to get through, not because of anything you did, but just because of the nature of the story was your obituary on Bob Sweetan last year.
9: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, see
0: now there's there's a good example. I held that story. I interviewed him years
9: before. But when the hell are you going to use it? Why the hell would I ever have a news reason to do a story on, on bruiser Bob Sweetan? Right. I mean, the guy was a scumbag, you know, molested his own daughter. Three strikes are out. I had all kinds of stuff I didn't use. I mean, I, I already had everything archived, like talking to his, his ex-wife and all that kind of stuff. I'd talked to his brother. So I had a lot of stuff. And you're right, it was a really hard one to write. But an important one to write. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There are times you do have to sugarcoat stuff and take stuff out. That happened with the Phil Watson stuff. Because I didn't have anyone on record talking about all that kind of stuff. You know, he got charged and was later uh, acquitted for molestation charges. But, I mean, that's the fact. He was charged. He was found not guilty. This so, is Phil Watson, you said? Phil Watson, Whipper Watson's son. Yeah. So there's all kinds of stories about that. And I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and badmouth a guy who's gone, but it doesn't take very much digging for you to learn more about that.
0: But for instance, like with that story and to the point you had made previously, it wasn't just you talking to Bob Sweetan; It was you talking to family. And that's where I'm so interested in what you do, because it's one thing for you to say, hey, I have to do a story on Baron Mikel Sakuna to use that uh, as an example. You know, you can call Bruno, you can call Danucci, you can call various guys. It's another thing when you actually start contacting family and getting more of the story. And I always find that really impressive. And again, that Bob Sweethead article is very difficult to get through because of the content of it, because of the, the truths, the really sorry truths of it. But it was a great job that you did because you actually tried to get the story.
9: Well, I had the story. That, that's, that's, that it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, Brian, yeah. is that, you know, sometimes I do hold stuff. And that was a great example of, of holding something until there was reason to run it. And, and that, that always happens. I mean, you just don't know when you're going to need something sometimes. Um, um, yeah. No, I, I appreciate the words on that one. That one is a tough one to write, but an important one to write. And I didn't want to sugarcoat it either. So.
0: And what are some of your favorite stories? Let's talk about something good now. Let's talk about something happy. What are some of the favorite pieces you've written?
9: Well, there's not just me. Like, I take a lot of joy in what other people do. So when we did the Slam Wrestling book that ECW Press put out, I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity to look back at some of the amazing things we've done. Jamie Hemmings, she did this amazing piece on Barry Orton. You know, I basically hung out with him for a couple of days. And what a fascinating character and, and an overlooked yeah. part of the wrestling business. Yeah, uh, Like that's both of the kind of things that are really neat to me. Uh, I, but then there's guys that I know are big Undertaker marks. And, and my John Powell, who I mentioned earlier, when he got the interview of The Undertaker, he asked him about the change in uh, his uh, ring music. And all of a sudden, he wants to talk because nobody ever asked me about this. This is interesting. Uh, John Cena was at an auto show in Calgary and Jason Clevett sat down beside him and said, hey, tell me about Samoa Joe and UPW. And all of a sudden, Cena lights up because you don't get to talk about this stuff anymore, right? If you're talking to Joe Blow, who runs you know, the the local TV station, he doesn't know about that stuff, but we do. And so that's your entry point a lot of times, uh, who you know, how you know them. And, and that's a lot like what you're doing, too. I mean, this guy leads to this
0: guy, and you get some good stories, and it's all awesome. And when it comes to your stories, obviously, you're writing all the copy. But how much of a hand do you have in picking the photos that are applied to each column? Oh, I'm doing everything. You're doing everything. I, yeah, it, it's my it's
9: my part-time job is the best way to describe it. I mean, like we, we talked earlier about not making a living. Well, I don't make a living, but you know what? I some of the things get taken care of, right? So my phone and my internet bill and whatever, you know, that that's sort of what I get out of this besides all the joy and the way th- you don't always know how something's going to pay off, right? So, you know, hanging out, you know, down the road. Uh, so there was an old actor named Billy Van. So hopefully I'm working on a biography on him down the road, but, I got in touch with Reggie Love, who died, but i have been to Reggie's house. Reggie lent me all his pictures to scan. One of them I scanned was a picture of Reggie with Billy Van and with John Byner, who did the old Bizarre show. So I've got this great picture of all three of them. Well, talking to John Byner for a story about Reggie Love gets me a quote about Billy Van. So all these things sort of intersect. And it, it's that's what I really love about this writing business is you never know what you're going to get, and it makes it fun. And so, yeah, this guy may lead to this guy, may lead to this guy, and I'm always looking at that picture too. It's like, so Carrie Williams talked to Ron Simmons this week for a story that's next week. Well, here, I need a question about Ron Simmons for this story that somebody else is doing. So I'm an assignment editor. I am doing the photo editing, and it leads to maybe it's time to talk about Lano because I know where <laughs> – all these photos come from, like, again, my job at the Toronto Sun, I worked in a newspaper. I understand how copyright works. I understand how photos are taken by photographers, who owns them, how they should be reproduced, all those kind of things. And uh, so, yeah, there's people out there. And, and But that's a lost art on the Internet, right? How many times do you see photo credits anywhere? Right. Uh, but we try to do that as best we can. I mean, you're never going to be perfect. And I think people understand that. Uh, even in a newspaper you get stuff wrong so uh, we we try to do that anyway
0: well that's one of the things i've noticed in your books is that you always have at the end of it a section that not only says you know these are the photographers but it really explains and i always found this interesting because i always try to do this kind of thing with tape collecting and you do it with photos it tells you who owns what collection you know this person has this collection and this collection and these negatives and this so it kind of gives you a basis of, okay, this is how this person ended up with this, this is where this comes from. And you bring up Dr. Mike Leno and I'm, I don't want to pile on too much here, but that's where the issue really comes with, with this specific topic is enough people, a lot of people, people with credibility have, I'm not even going to say accused, they've proven that he's used photos, or I shouldn't even say used, he has, I guess, submitted photos under the claim that he took them that were clearly not his. Is that the best way to say it? yeah it's it's a perfectly fair
9: way to say it, so I even have a great example so besides all the photos, he's contributed to my books and and you usually can tell the Lano photo because it's off center and blurry but um <laughs> it's true. I mean he was there at a lot of these events i mean nobody can deny that i mean you can see him in a lot of shows and whatever, and that that's fine i mean credit to him he 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 hustled he got out there to stuff so I was a part of the Iron Sheik documentary that uh, the Megan boys did. I've known the Megans a long time, and um, they uh, they relied on me for a lot of things. And then we did a Sweet Daddy Seeky one, which hasn't had wide distribution yet, so it's really hard to find. But it exists. Anyways, doing the Sheik one, you know, Lano obviously wants to be a part of it because he sees a payday. And he sends me all these photos that are his, he claims, uh, of the Iron Sheik. One of the photos he sent me was this famed photo of the Iron Sheik sitting on this big box. And it's like, this looks really familiar. And sure enough, I looked into it and it was a Walter Is Jr. photo that was in Sports Illustrated. And that famed <laughs> one with Hulk Hogan on the cover. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're not trying to rip off some nobody's image here. You're ripping off like, you know, one of the biggest names <laughs> in sports photography so from that oh no that was just an accident just an accident no it wasn't mike and we know that and then from the writing perspective i mean i we've all seen the emails from mike too and it's just hard to follow and um i try not to talk badly about people but uh it's hard to be on mike's side and and he's he's his own worst enemy
0: no one wants to speak bad about him but he does enough things that you kind of if you want to tell the story honestly it comes across like you're saying things bad about him but on this topic, is this something you've ever had to deal with in general in terms of people giving you, th- you know, if you're, if you're trying to do a story on someone and you have a source for the article, I shouldn't even say source. If someone will go on the record and interview for the article, but you know, they're just telling you complete bullshit. What do you do? Well, um, you get better at that for sure. <laughs>
9: That's a big part of it. Cause there's certainly things in the past where I've gotten, um, snookered. you know, you 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 screwed up. Uh you and the internet's nice that way because things can disappear. Uh, <laughs> whereas you make a mistake in print, like there's one. Th- I got I got in um, big trouble once at the Toronto Sun when I I was doing the birthdays, and uh, I listed a guy who was that was dead who was alive. I wished him a happy birthday, and so I got in big trouble over that. But it, it was an honest mistake, and I should have looked into it. So you learn from these experiences. But I mean, that mistake is there forevermore. Whereas on the internet. It's like, well, it was there. Where did it go? (laughs) And and so, yeah, there's always going to be people feeding you lines, wrestling especially. yeah, Uh, The guys are always trying to uh, put themselves over. That's the only way to put it. I mean, hockey players don't do that in the same way because their stats speak for themselves. Whereas wrestlers, yeah, it's about titles, but it's about more than titles, isn't it? Right. It's like, well, I was I was the big star here. I was the brains behind the operation over here. Sold every this. night. I did that. Yeah, exactly. So, well, Dusty, of all guys, I mean, one of the greatest compliments I ever got was Dusty Rhodes telling me that, you know, my books were in the um, uh, the library at NXT and he would he would refer kids to them. And that that's like, wow, that's mind blowing. But, yeah, he'd love to say that how, you know, every night was a sellout. like he would do it in such a joking fashion because he knew that's all the guys ever said. And it was so true. That's what they said. It's like, yeah, I sold out every night, you know, and sure enough, it's easy to look at that kind of stuff because of guys like Don Luce and Scott Teal and J. Michael Kenyon that have gone out there and researched all these, you know, the attendances and stuff. So you can see when somebody's full of it now.
0: You just brought up J. Michael Kenyon and I'll quickly ask you about him because I know you dedicated, I want to say the book you did, Heroes and Icons was dedicated to J. Michael Kenyon. He obviously passed away not too long ago. We did a few segments on the super podcast about him, but what was J. Michael Kenyon like for you to deal with? I mean, it seems like obviously he meant a lot to you, but talk a little bit about your relationship with J. Michael Kenyon.
9: He was your classic character, man. uh, He was so much fun to hang out with. I got to hang out with him a couple of times at the college rally club. Uh, He came up, he didn't like to fly. So he, he and, um, his wife, Joan, was the one for the thumb, as he'd said, right? That was his fifth marriage. <laughs> so, like, they came up on the train uh, from Portland, or they, they lived out near Portland, Oregon, I think. And they came all the way to Albany, New York, by train. Um, and they wow. were great friends with Red Bastine. So Red and Carol McCutcheon was, was, was Red's wife. So they would all hang out and have a great time. So, I mean, that speaks right there. that The guy was obviously a bit of a character and an oddball but he had an incredible opinion. He had an incredible memory. And you know what? It wasn't just wrestling. That's what everybody, we we often forget. So one of the jobs I worked at when I was at Sport Classic Books, we did total basketball and it was modeled on the total baseball idea. And uh, we did total basketball, which had never existed. So all of a sudden you have to create a big database of, you know, stats and then find all these people to help you. Well, Turns out, Jay Michael Kenyon was the world's leading authority on the Harlem Globetrotters.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah.
9: Wow. Exactly. So, I mean, he basically helped put together the whole Glo- Globetrotter section that we had in the book, uh, and he was working on a on an autobiography with Al Bianchi, an old uh, coach, uh, when he died. So he knew his basketball. I mean, he co- he covered the Seattle uh, Supersonics for years. So yeah, he was a, he was an amazing guy. I was lucky to get to know him. Uh, You know, there were times he was testy and short with people. I mean, that's just who he was. You know, like, oh, you spelled this, like the wrestling police idea, right? He put himself in charge of being the wrestling (laughs) spelling police. And, and, you know, I'm glad somebody did, but yeah. yeah, Somebody's got to do it. (laughs) You know, you spelled Don Leo Jonathan wrong and you get an email. So you just sort of learn to live with it.
0: Well, I brought up that you dedicated heroes and icons to him, but... That's obviously not the only book that you and Steven Johnson have done. Talk a little bit about this, because now there's a whole series of books, and these are really informative, and really, I think, something that any wrestling fan that cares about wrestling history should have on their bookshelves. It's on mine. I think I have almost every one, if not every one, you guys have put out. But talk a little bit about how this started and what you guys have been doing, because it's now just a series of books.
9: First book I did was Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Canadians. and um, So Steve Johnson got a copy of it. I didn't know him. He got a copy. He got in touch with me and said, hey, I grew up, he grew up in upstate New York. So he knew a lot of the same wrestlers that I did. And there was a lot of overlap between them and who was in the book kind of thing. Right. So like a guy like um, Ilya DePaulo is in the book as a transatlantic Canadian kind of thing and how important he was. But, you know, he wasn't actually from here. He was upstate New York, Buffalo and and that kind of Blaisdell. But um, so Steve wrote me and you know, you realize Steve had real credentials. Like I never, I guess I never really felt like a real journalist in some ways because I was writing about wrestling and doing all this other stuff. But then all of a sudden Steve comes along and he sort of mentored me in a way that, uh, you know, here's how you do those extra calls. Here's how you're doing some of that stuff. And it really helped me a lot. And we just decided to work together. Uh, and Tag Teams was the first one we did. It was a lot of fun. It was uh, It's still, I think, the best selling of them. Um, I think it's in its fourth or fifth printing. Again, we're not rich, but we've done okay. And um, then that led to heels, which naturally led to what was going to be baby faces, but we ended up doing heroes and icons because how do you do a guy like Undertaker? Yeah. Like that's, what it, what, that's essentially what it came down to. It's like, well, he's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He's somewhere in between. So that's how we come up with the anti-hero idea. Uh, so that's where heroes and icons come with. And he's very iconic. There's no doubt about it. So that's that's how we ended up there, and then I think we're we're in the process of doing one more book. Um, It's going to be called the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, uh, the Storytellers, and sort of fill in some of the holes that we missed. So, uh, like the Bears or you know the the midgets and uh, the smelt wrestling, all that stuff, right? (laughs) There's so much we missed. So it's going to be awesome. And again, it's Steve uh, is really driving this. He's such an incredible researcher. Whereas I'm a little bit more organized. I'm a little bit more the people person. So it works out really good. We're a good team.
0: What are some of your favorite wrestling books? Uh, Drawing Heat, by far. Oh, um, yeah.
9: It's uh, it's the one about Bearman, Dave McKigney, yeah. and uh, and also about The Sheik. So it's really both those guys are, are key to the book. And it gets a little bit into Tunney and the whole Toronto thing. So from that perspective, I mean, it's the wrestling I sort of knew. But I loved that book. And when Scott, Teal reprinted it, he gave me the privilege, besides the fact I helped them uh, a lot with getting pictures and things to make the, the second printing even better. But um, Scott allowed me to write the coda about what happened to all the guys. And so that was, again, another fascinating story. So you're talking to the guys about the accident that killed Bear Man McKinney, that killed uh, Adrian Adonis, and killed Pat Kelly. July 4th,
0: 1988?
9: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that was a part of my newsletter, because, you know, that's back when I was doing that. So. I got to revisit all that kind of thing and talk to guys like a Rocky De Sera who's not a big name that a lot of people would know his His brother Bob probably did more as as UFO in Germany than they ever did here, and just talking to him about well what was it like, and you hear stories about you know drinking contests with adrian and and sweet Daddy Siki saying that you know I had a premonition, so I didn't go on the tour at all. So it, it, that's really fun. In fact, that's probably worth getting the reprinted version Yeah. Uh, just because of what I did there. And that's, I'm not trying to blow my own horn there, but I, I really am proud of what Scott allowed me the space to do there.
0: I actually have that uh, reprinted edition, and I will uh, also encourage everyone to check that out at crowbarpress.com.
9: Absolutely, yeah. No, anything Scott does is is top-notch. Other books, I mean, I like them all. Uh, They all have their elements. But I mean, I'm lucky in a sense that I get access to some of them that maybe other people didn't, like the Gary Hart one, because, you know, they needed to get word out. Well, how do you get word out? You send it to the journalist that, you know, is going to be able to spread the word. So a couple of those examples like that are hard to find, I do have them and, and treasure them. And certainly Gary's is one that that's really well done. I don't know. There's just so many. <laughs> There's so many. I have a lot in my bookshelf. Probably, I must have 200 wrestling books easy.
0: It's pretty crazy to think about where we were in, let's say, you know, the late nineties, right before Mick Foley's book came out. Yeah. You know, your bookshelf may have had six books at the most. If you found everything that ever been <laughs> been written, if you had an original Fall Guys and an original, whatever happened to Gorgeous George, you may have a few books on your shelf, but otherwise- You probably didn't. And then it was pure dynamite and followed pretty quickly behind that by the McFoley book. And now we have all these books and really they are just such a valuable resource to people like me who care about wrestling history. They're great. And your books are certainly some of those. As we begin to wrap things up here today, Greg, tell the listeners a little bit of how they can maybe follow you on social media or stay in touch with you or specifically slam wrestling. What's the best way for them to get there?
9: Well, we're in a bit of transition at Slam uh, Wrestling just because the parent company has been sold a few times and now it's switching publishing back end stuff. But just if you Google Slam Wrestling, uh, you can go to Slam dot uh, what is it Slamret dot com I think gets you there now. Uh, things like that. But just Google Slam Wrestling or OliverBooks dot ca uh, is the list of uh, all my books. I've done 13 different books now, so seven uh, seven hockey books and six wrestling books. Uh, including a hockey book I did with my son. Um, so that's aimed sort of at kindergarten kids called duck with the puck. Um, <laughs> so that, that's one everybody should be getting a copy of. Um, and then, yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's just Greg map, uh, MEP. Um, that has to do with my wife's nickname, but, uh, anytime you've been married, as long as we have, you're sort of stuck together. So that's, uh, how that goes. Um, but yeah, and, and on my Facebook, but that's uh, that's a little bit more personal I guess and and I, a lot of people have to make those decisions. It's it's a weird world out there now that wasn't there when, you know, even a few years ago. Yeah. And, is this my public forum? Am I doing this? Who's this guy on LinkedIn? Does he have a wrestling connection? What do I do? <laughs> Twitter. Oh my god, who's following me now? I don't get this. So <laughs> yeah. I tweeted to Natty Nightheart, but she didn't tweet me back. It's like, you know, what what's happened to the world, right?
0: There he is, Greg Oliver, and I encourage everyone to check out his books, and in fact, we'll probably have another one as a book of the week here on the show pretty soon, and of course, check out Slam Wrestling to read the fine articles that Greg puts out. When a wrestler passes away, I hate to look at it with these eyes, Dan, but you know, so many people would always look forward to Dave Meltzer's obituaries. Well, Greg Oliver's obituaries are really great, and they're usually the first ones out. They're out there pretty quick after someone passes, so right away when you want information, he does a great job of getting it out there, and he does great articles all year round, not just obituaries. So once again, check that out at Slam Wrestling. And from there... We're going to move on now to a conversation I had with Judge Richard Boner. Now, that name probably doesn't mean anything to anyone unless you're a criminal in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. But Judge Richard Boner wasn't always a judge. In fact, he used to work as an attorney, and he was an attorney and a partner in Mraz and Boner, and they were the law firm that worked with Jim Crockett Promotions for many years. So we're going to hear all about the judge's experiences working with Jim Crockett Promotions. A lot of interesting things I never knew about, including the fight to stop people from putting out bootleg merchandise interesting stuff here let's go to this my conversation with judge richard boner we are going to talk a little bit about jim crockett promotions today here on the show and i'm very happy to welcome to the super podcast judge richard boner your honor it is an honor to have you here thank you sir right to be here before we get going with your background, your history with Jim Crockett Promotions. For the listeners, can you give a little bit about your background, how you ended up working for them, but just your background as a lawyer?
7: Yeah, I, I'm a native North Carolinian. I grew up uh, in Lexington, North Carolina, which is a barbecue city, about 90 miles uh, northeast of Charlotte, where I currently live. And before I became a lawyer, was a newspaper reporter, had a journalism degree, and uh Decided to go back to school and uh, graduate from law school at UNC Chapel Hill in 1975. Came down to Charlotte uh, to practice and uh, originally was a criminal defense attorney. But in 1980, I went uh, to a law firm that did civil litigation and and also did uh, uh, business uh, representation. And uh, the firm represented Jim Crocker Promotions, Inc. and its subsidiary, Charlotte Sports Promotions, Inc., and uh, so I spent seven years there as a partner in the firm, and one of the clients that we represented and that I didn't work for was uh, Crockett.
0: Was it a big benefit to you to have that journalism degree and the journalism background going into being a lawyer? Absolutely.
7: Uh, I uh, I could draft pleadings. I could draft uh, briefs. I could draft memoranda, basically sitting at a typewriter uh, and Writing a news story or writing a, a column came in handy, uh, as far as preparation for being able to basically compose, uh, right there, uh, at a typewriter. Uh, I kept a typewriter at my desk. I, I didn't like dictating, uh, letters and so forth. And I found it was a lot easier from my background just to sit there and type it, uh, type rough drafts off on a typewriter. And so, uh, yeah, the back, the journalist background came in really handy as, as a lawyer and later as a judge too.
0: In 1980, you begin to work at the law firm as a partner. At that point in time, what was your knowledge of professional wrestling? Did you ever watch it? Were you at all a fan? And specifically, when we look at the Carolinas' then versus now, there really wasn't major sports other than college sports. So what place did Jim Crockett Promotions and Wrestling have in the Carolinas? Well, Crockett, uh,
7: Crockett had a weekly television show. It uh, aired every Saturday Saturday on WBTV channel three, uh, which was a CBS affiliate, uh, here in Charlotte. And, uh, growing up in the fifties, uh, I, I watched the, the, the Saturday wrestling show, uh, and I remember, um, as a child, uh, having uh friends that we would sometimes get in wrestling matches. I remember Billy two rivers, the, uh, the Indian wrestler, and he had a war dance, he did, and I remember, remember him. I remember Rip Hawk. I remember sweet Hanson. Johnny Weaver, George Becker, the Bolos, all those guys. So, yeah, we grew up with it. You're right. The only only sports we had other than professional wrestling were stock car racing and then the college sports, uh, basketball and football.
0: How big, like, for instance, a Johnny Weaver and a George Becker tag team, uh, a top babyface tag team, a popular team, how big were they in the Carolinas? I mean, was it something where the good guy wrestlers were, were known and loved by everybody?
7: Yeah yes sir absolutely and, and I remember Sweet Hansen and, and Rip Hawk were partners and they were the bad guys and the guys wore the mask bolos uh and of course the Crockett's, uh in addition to the TV show they would go to local YMCAs to have the uh, the the matches and they were they people would show up uh for them uh and yeah the, the Johnny Weaver and George Becker the good guys yeah they were they were everybody's favorites uh you know not many people pulled for the bolos because they cheated and nobody pulled, not, not many people pulled for Rip Hawker or, or Sweet Sweetheads or the bad guys.
0: Before 1980, had you, when you were a criminal defense attorney, had you ever run into or done any work with any wrestlers?
7: No, it was not until I, I became a member of the firm that represented uh, Crockett that I started uh, actually getting to meet them. Uh, uh, and uh, that, that was one of the fun parts of. Uh, of representing that company was basically being able to get them to know the people behind the celebrity face that, uh, that they had. I mean, getting to know them as individuals as opposed to celebrities.
0: Was Crockett one of the bigger, if not the biggest clients that the law firm had? Well, it was one of the biggest
7: we had. We also represented some businesses. Uh we, we represented the bus company in Charlotte. Uh did all their defense work anytime they got sued uh because somebody would get hurt during an automobile accident or a collision between the bus and a car. We did all the defense work for them. Uh we also had some uh, we had uh, other business clients, both professional and commercial uh clients, but yeah, Crockett was one of the bigger clients uh, that we had in and uh, we were fortunate because it was nice
0: to be able to say that, you know, you represented them. I mean, people say, you represent Jim Crockett? I said, yeah, we do. And I assume that because you represent Jim Crockett, you also represent some of the wrestlers if any issues arise because they have this law firm they could just tell the wrestlers to go talk to.
7: That's correct. Uh, it, we we did individual uh, legal work for the wrestlers. Uh, for example, uh, when Ricky Steamboat, his real name is Richard Blood, when he and his wife bought a house uh, in Charlotte, I did the real estate closing, did the title search. And then if a, a wrestler got a traffic ticket, uh, we would handle that. Our firm also represented Ric Flair uh, during his uh, first divorce. Uh, I didn't do it. One of my partners did. And then, of course, anytime they need a legal representation, uh, they were referred to us and we and you know so we got to know them again as individuals and, and you know regular human beings as opposed to uh, celebrities
0: how big of a problem were traffic tickets for those wrestlers driving all over the carolinas and virginia
7: well they would you know like anybody else they would get like a speeding ticket or you know uh, i don't think i ever had a well i did have one that was charged with the uh, driving while impaired, uh, that I had to handle, but, uh, they were pretty responsible because uh, they knew they had to be able to, uh, those days they had to be able to drive between cities to get around because Crockett pretty much was uh, back then was uh, in the, in the, uh, er- early eighties was still a pretty much a regional operation, in North Carolina, Virginia, and South Carolina. And, uh, uh, so they had to basically travel by highway to get where they were going to be for a match. But, um, I know we had one case where Ric Flair and I th- and I can't remember who the other wrestler was. They were minding their own business in a bar, and and two couples were but decided they wanted to, to basically uh, uh, insult wrestling about it being fake and that sort of thing, and. And so there was a fracas, and and I know uh, I think Rick and the other lo- other wrestler got uh, got charged with assault uh, by one of those folks, and my one of my partners uh, handled that. Uh, uh, as I recall, they were found not guilty. But you know, occasionally stuff like that would come up.
4: what
0: did you think of Ric Flair? He was a big celebrity in the Carolinas at that time, and a pretty wild personality. And you're working on his first divorce, first of many. What what did you think of him?
7: Rick was a nice guy. I, I wait, you know, again, that, getting to see these guys behind the scenes, he was a nice guy. He was courteous to fans, very mannerly. And, you know, he was nothing like the the flamboyant, uh, obnoxious uh, person that you saw on television during the broadcast. He he was just a very uh, somewhat reserved individual away from the ring. Away from the ring. <laughs> I just want to clarify yeah. that. Yeah. He was a nice guy. I mean, you know, he was just a, just a genuine, genuinely nice fella.
0: And you were, I know this doesn't concern wrestling, but you and your firm were a part of the loss or represented Jim Crockett, I should say. Didn't he have a lawsuit against the city of Charlotte, but that was over the sports stadium, correct? Uh, we had, there was a
7: lawsuit that we brought in federal court in the eighties, uh, the, the, the Crockett's, their subsidiary, Charlotte Sports Promotions Incorporated owned the baseball park, the old baseball park uh, that was then called Crockett Park. That, that park had been a part of Charlotte since back in the thirties, uh, and it was where minor league baseball had been played all those years. Uh, the, the Charlotte Sports Promotions had the double A Baltimore Orioles franchise, uh, and they played there at Crockett Park. Well, Crockett Park was, was surrounded by a neighborhood all around it. And uh they didn't have any problems uh from you know most of the time they they used the park. But the city of Charlotte uh amended their noise ordinance and uh one of the provisions of the new ordinance provided that uh if you exceeded a certain decibel level uh at any point on the property line uh then you were in violation of the ordinance and you could get a citation. Uh in the off season uh The Crockett's would rent the park out sometimes for concerts, and they were concerned that they would rent rent it out uh, and that uh, some promoter would go to the expense uh, of having a concert, uh, and then some of the little ladies in the neighborhood might complain about the noise, call the the, uh, police, and the noise control officer would come out and tell them, we're going to give you a citation or you're too loud. And it was going to make it difficult to continue renting out the baseball park for concerts, and so we we thought that the new ordinance, as it was written, was unconstitutional. So we brought a lawsuit in federal court uh, against the city to restrain its enforcement of the new ordinance. uh, Before Judge James McMillan, uh, one of the federal district judges, who was well known because he was the judge that entered uh, the uh, holding a ruling that required busing to achieve desegregation uh, of the uh, Charlotte school system back in the uh, early 1970s. And uh, anyway, Judge McMillan uh, ruled, in our favor, ruled that the ordinance as it was written was unconstitutional. Uh, The city appealed, and uh, we had to go go up to Richmond to the Fourth Circuit to argue uh, in defense of Judge McMillan's ruling. Uh, As it turned out, we won in part and lost in part. The the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals judges ruled that part of the ordinance was unconstitutional, but unfortunately, they did uphold the part regarding the decimal level. And so uh, I don't know that really it made all that much difference in the long run because uh, the park, the grandstand, which was wood, caught on fire one night and it burned to the ground. And, uh, so the Crockett's had to use, uh, you know, regular bleachers, uh, metal bleachers, uh, that, that following season. And it wasn't, but a few years later that they sold the, uh, the franchise to a local businessman and Crockett park, what was left of it was, uh, was sold. And it is now apartments that no longer exist.
0: And when we talk about Jim Crockett promotions, obviously that was named for Jim Crockett Sr., who had passed away in the early 70s. But when you're doing business with them, when you're representing them, it's not just Jim Crockett Jr. I assume you get to know all of the Crocketts, David, Jackie, and Francis as well. I got to know
7: Mama Crockett, uh, Jim Sr.'s uh, widow. Nice lady, beautiful, genteel, southern lady. Uh, I got to know Jimmy. I got to know David. I got to know Jackie. I got to know Francis. Francis managed the baseball franchise, Uh, that was her operation. Uh, And of course, Jackie uh, helped out uh, with the wrestling. Uh, David uh, was integrally involved in the wrestling, as was Jimmy. But yes, I got to know all
0: the Crockett's. When you represent them, how often are you talking with them? Like, how often were you doing something on behalf of Jim Crockett Promotions? I would say probably
7: at least. I'd say monthly. Uh, My law partner, senior law partner, uh, Crockett actually was his client. Uh, And so he dealt with Jimmy and David more than the rest of us. But, uh, uh, you know, I I had my share of work with them. But I'd say the firm probably dealt with them. One of the lawyers, either Jack or I, or one of the other lawyers would would have dealings with uh, with the the company uh, and Jimmy or David, I'd say at least monthly, if not more frequently
6: than
0: that. You brought up the Ricky Steamboat home ownership or uh, buying a home with him and Bonnie did you do a lot of those kind of deals land deals for wrestlers
7: no, that one I, I remember. Uh, we did some other real estate work for the Crockett family. They owned some land, uh, in Southeast Charlotte, uh, a building where they la- they had their offices at one time. They moved, uh, out to, uh, this uh, location from uh, where they started. But anyway, we, we dealt with the sale of that property and its development. Uh, it was purchased in two different parcels, uh, by, uh, developers and, uh, we, we helped negotiate the terms of that sale uh, for the Crockett family. But the Rick Rick, uh, Rick Steamboat's uh, individual purchase, I think that is the only real estate deal, uh, real estate transaction that I recall doing individually for a, uh, one, of the, one of the wrestlers. I think it's possible that Jack or one of the other guys did some, but that's the one I remember.
0: Well, I know you briefly mentioned to me off air. Uh, so let's talk about this here. Andre the Giant's situation. Of course, Andre owned a farm in, what, Ellerbe, uh, North Carolina, I, th- I believe. Right, yeah. Now, what yep. exactly happened there? You know, Andre uh,
7: Andre traveled a lot and uh, was on the road. And so he was talked into hiring this guy, who, as it turned out, later was a con man, to manage his property, his farm there in Elbert while he was on the road, and we found out later that this guy basically was spending Andre's money on himself and just going through it like water, and uh, so we ended up bringing a lawsuit against this guy who had taken off for parts unknown. Uh, one of the things that the guy had done was uh, got signed a uh, note and and deed of trust owned the property that gave as I recall First Union Bank a mortgage lien on the property and uh, Andre found out about it after the fact after it was already done and so we brought a lawsuit uh, in Richmond County North Carolina county seat of Rockingham against this con man to re- try and recover some of the money and also to try and get that uh, mortgage lien removed and uh, could not get it settled uh, we ended up having to go down to Rockingham to try the case uh, and the town is not that large. It uh, you know it's a small southern town. The, the the word got around town that Andre the Giant Ruzumov was in town, and so it was like the circus had come to town. Uh, we I remember one day during the lunch break, we went to eat at a restaurant uh, within a block of the cor- of the courthouse, and we were seated in a back room. But that didn't stop people from coming back there and peeking around the corner and and wanting Andre's autograph. and there were people, as I recall, who actually came into the courtroom, to, you know, to see him. Andre did not speak very good English. He could speak English, but it was somewhat broken. And so, during the trial, when Andre was testifying, one of the lawyers for the bank. Kept objecting because we were asking leading questions, and and we were having to do that so that we could communicate with Andre. And so we had w- another wrestler, and I don't remember who it, the guy's name, but another wrestler that was going to testify as a witness in the case, and he was from Canada and spoke fluent French. So we told the judge, the superior court judge, that we could put this, uh, we could get this other wrestler to act as an interpreter, and we could have him translate our questions. Uh, into French and let Andre answer in French and then he translated back into English. Well, the bank's lawyer wasn't satisfied with that. He said, well, your honor, he's going to, this guy's going to be a witness. And the judge, I remember saying, well, I speak very fluent French and if he mistranslates, I will know it. So (laughs) I remember that we actually got this other wrestler sworn as a translator and used him to basically communicate uh, without having to ask leading questions of Andre to get through it. Um, We got the case settled uh, with the bank and got a monetary judgment against the con man. I don't think they they ever recovered anything from it, but we at least had the judgment. And later that evening, uh, before we left town, we went to Andre's house to have dinner. Frenchie Bernard uh, and his wife were living at the house at that time and taking care of it. And so we had dinner with Frenchie and his wife, uh, my law partner, Jack, and uh, Andre. And I I still remember uh, watching Andre drink a bottle of beer, and it was uh, I, I'd never seen somebody pick up a bottle of beer with their hand, and all you could see was the very tip of the bottle. I mean, Andre's hands were so big; he literally just basically his hands swallowed most of the bottle, and you'd see him pick the bottle up and see him put this little tip of it to his lip, and in about three three swallows, the beer was gone uh he could go through a bottle of beer in you know and no time but I, I still remember that i mean vividly uh also the other funny thing i remember is going into the going into the bathroom which was very ornate and and seeing this this thing that was not a toilet i didn't know what it was i later found out it was a bidet it was the first time i'd ever seen one but andre had one <laughs> in his bathroom. was it a big
0: one <laughs> considering andre's size
4: oh
7: it, uh, I, I, no, I don't think he used it, but uh, but it was there in the bathroom. And I had to ask what it was because I didn't know, uh, had no idea what it was. I thought that was an unusual toilet, but uh, it, it was a bidet. First one I'd ever seen. <laughs>
0: Well, like you said, Andre was a big touring attraction, not just in America, but worldwide. And he was going to Japan regularly during these years. That's right. So what was it like for him? I mean, I can't imagine what that sort of scam would be like if I was here 24-7, able to deal with it. What was it like for him having this happen to his property, someone he trusted, someone who conned him? And Andre's not really able to be home. I mean, he's always on the road. He's always on the go. Did Did he ever express to you what he thought about the whole thing while it was happening?
7: Obviously, he wasn't very happy about it, but I think Andre, to a certain extent, was a very trusting soul, and I think he probably was a uh, an easy mark for this this con man. I think possibly the language barrier helped this guy do what he did, but uh, he never spoke about it. Uh, I never heard him speak about it later, but I, I'm sure he was very disappointed. I mean, as I recall, he he this guy took a lot of money, a lot of money from him, and and I and. And I doubt very seriously that he ever reco- recovered any of it. Uh, the guy basically took off in parts unknown. He was not at the trial, and it just basically disappeared.
0: I would assume that in a situation like that, it's probably typical for the guy to disappear, in four, even though there's a judgment, no actual oh, yeah. collection to take place.
7: I don't know if, if I don't know that if I had stolen money from Andre the Giant, that I would won't be <laughs> want to be anywhere near him. <laughs> That's
5: a good point. <laughs>
7: That's a very good uh, point, especially after I saw, especially after I saw what he did with the beer bottle. So, uh, <laughs> uh, the guy had the biggest, the guy had the biggest hands. I mean, I, his hands were huge, as was the rest of him. But I mean, I, I still remember. that I've
0: never seen anyone that had hands that large. Did he ever tell you why he settled in Ellerby of all places? No, I don't. I, I don't know.
7: Other than that, he obviously wanted a place to call home. This place was out in the country. It was north of Rockingham, out in the country, and you know, it was very very nice, quiet place. I mean, he had had land there, not just the house, but there was land. It was a farm, and I think he just wanted a place that he could call home, that was away from wrestling, away from you know, big cities, and away from the life that he led. Most of the time, it was a place where he could just basically unwind. And I and I think that's probably why it was attractive to him.
0: You have brought up several times your partner, Jack. This would be Jack Mraz? That's correct. Yeah. Now, how long had he been representing Jim Crockett Promotions?
7: I, I joined the firm in 1980, and I think Jack had represented them. He he went back to the time when Mr. Crockett Sr. was still running the operation. So it had been years. I, I couldn't give you a definite number of time, uh, of years. I, I joined Jack in 1980. I used to run with him uh, at lunch at the Y and was looking to leave. Uh, the, uh, I was with the city of Charlotte at that time as an assistant city attorney, and and it was, we'd talk when we were running, and he told me, you know, why don't you join us? And so I said, okay, fine, that'd be great. I'm going to private practice. would be great. So, But I, I know he'd, he'd represented, for, I, I would say, probably back to at least 20 or 30 years, because uh, I know he, dated, he went back to the days when Mr. Crockett Sr. was in control of the company.
0: And although I think timeline-wise you would not have dealt with him, I'm going to ask you anyway, just in case you did, did you ever have any dealings with John Ringley, the former husband of Francis Crockett?
7: I did not. I, I did not know John. I knew uh, I knew Francis's kids. Uh, matter of fact, later on, I taught one of her daughters. Uh, I was teaching a course in a paralegal school here in Charlotte, and one of Francis's daughters was one of my students in one of the classes I taught. But I never got to know John.
0: And when you're working for them in these early days, from 1980 to, let's say, 1984, when really the expansion for Jim Crockett Promotions really kicked into effect, was it just like a small family business? I mean, is that the way it seemed to you even though they were a hugely successful promotional operation? Did it just seem like a small family business?
7: Yes. Yes. Uh the the, the all the members of the family, uh well, Miss Crockett. I don't think she was actively involved in it, but uh it was a family business. I mean, Mr. Crockett senior started it and then you had the, 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 the all the kids uh Involved in some way. I mean, Jimmy, uh Jim Jr. and and David and Jackie and and Francis. Like I said, she ran the the baseball operation, so they all had a part in it. And they, I think even their kids, when they got old enough, actually uh, did some work for them. I'm not not a lot, but I mean, they they were, they had they had uh, involvement uh, in the base around the baseball park or whatever. Basically, the guys I dealt with had most contact with uh, uh, was. Uh, Dusty Rhodes and then Rick Steamboat I did work for and then Johnny Weaver I I would see but I think Jack probably had more contact with him than I did
0: Johnny Weaver of course wasn't just a professional wrestler after he retired I believe he became was it a sheriff's deputy is that
7: right that's correct you know Johnny after he quit wrestling in the ring became a commentator on Crockett's television broadcasts and and then after that, uh, he went uh, through basic law enforcement training and became a Mecklenburg County deputy sheriff. And he did that for 19 years uh, until his death. John uh, John was involved in transportation of prisoners. That was his primary responsibility. And he would drive prisoners you know, around, get them to court and whatever. And uh, he had an affinity for it. I think he... Uh, John was such a nice guy, I think he could get along with anybody, but it also helped that a lot of the older prisoners knew who he was, and even the younger ones who, d- who did not see him in his heyday as a wrestler found out that he had been a professional wrestler, and that kind of gave him an ability to get along with him that maybe another deputy would not have. I, I remember he uh, would sometimes, when the prisoners would find out that he was Johnny Weaver, uh, they'd ask for an autograph, so John started carrying around a stack of photographs that he would autograph. If somebody <laughs> asked him for in the jail, asking for one, he'd sign it. Matter of fact, uh, my son wanted one, and so John signed one for my son when he was a kid. Uh, but yeah, uh, he he did it for nineteen years. He um, uh, one day. Uh, well, he, he he fought cancer. He had had, had a, a cancer scare and went through treatment and got past that uh, one morning. He didn't show up for work and his, his co-workers were concerned about him and they couldn't get it, couldn't get in touch with him by telephone. So they ended up sending somebody out to his house. And unfortunately he had had a, a heart attack and was dead when they found him. He died. He was in his uniform. He'd been obviously planning to come to work and had a heart attack he, and and died. Um, I went to the wake uh, for him, and I remember he was dressed, they had him dressed in his deputy sheriff's uniform. I think he would that's what he wanted. And his ex-wife, Penny Banner, who had been a female uh, wrestler for Crockett, she was there to talk with her. But, yeah, uh, John, John spent 19 years, as I recall, with the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office.
0: A lot of wrestlers would end up making the Carolinas their home after their mid-Atlantic wrestling run. Did anyone else end up working either in the courthouse or for the local police departments?
7: I know that Gene Anderson uh, was going to become a law enforcement officer. I think John had probably talked him into going to work in the sheriff's department. Gene went to uh, the basic law enforcement training, which has a component where if you got to get in good physical shape. And unfortunately, during that uh, training, and I think he was running when it happened, uh, Gene suffered a fatal heart attack and, and died. Uh, but he was going to become a law enforcement officer, and again, I think it was probably with the sheriff's department because I suspect that Johnny had talked to him into, you know, about going to work with him and uh, as, as a member of the department.
0: Did you know Gene or
7: Ole Anderson at all? I knew who they were. Uh, I did not have direct contact with them. I knew that they were with the Crocketts at the time we were representing them, and uh, but they were not one of the. They were not wrestlers that I actually got to, you know, do work
0: for. You mentioned Dusty Rhodes before, and that kind of sets us up perfectly to talk about this period of time where Jim Crockett Promotions expands. All of a sudden they have a jet, then they have two jets, then they're buying other companies, they're expanding to other parts of the country. A lot of things that some people trace to the downfall of the company, but they were really riding high there for a little while. Dusty Rhodes is a key figure in that. He was the booker. Tell me about your experiences with Dusty Rhodes.
7: Dusty again was a guy who I got, to, I, had, I was fortunate that I got to see away from the celebrity, the face, the public face that, that he gave. Uh, the Crockett's back in the mid 80s were going head to head with Vince McMahon, who, uh, now WWE fame. And so they began to expand from the regional base that they had had. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of effort basically getting them licensed to do matches in other states. I remember California was one of the places, there were some states in the Midwest, and so they were going to go national. They bought uh, a twin engine Grumman aircraft because they had been flying the wrestlers on commercial airliners, and I think Jimmy thought it would probably be cost-effective to fly these wrestlers on their own, on the company's own aircraft. So he bought a twin engine a Grumman aircraft from a soft drink the owner of a soft drink bottling company in New Orleans and I was involved in closing that purchase he also later bought a Learjet and I remember uh, they were going to buy out a wrestling promoter that had East Texas and West Louisiana Bill Watts and, yeah Bill Watts and, and uh, Dave Johnson who was a business manager called me as he often would and said I need you to go down to you know, fly with Jimmy or uh, whoever to close this deal so uh, we we got on Jimmy's jet to fly down to Dallas Fort Worth where we were going to sign the papers. And I'd never been to Dallas. Uh, uh, Jimmy and I and I don't know uh, Dusty uh, were on the plane. I don't. It may have been Dave Johnson too. But uh, we we're riding on the plane, and and our, Dusty was sitting in front of me during the flight and i remember he had his cowboy boots propped up on the seat in front of him and he had bifoc- his bifocals on and we had the wall street journal was checking to see how his stocks were doing which i thought we here. <laughs> was funny i mean yeah uh and and we were flying over downtown dallas we were actually going to land at a private airport and we're flying over dallas of course i would never seen it before and i'm looking down there at that city and I made the comment, I said, that looks like downtown Charlotte. And Dusty looked at me over his bifocals. He said, shut your mouth, counselor? He said, you could take the whole city of Charlotte and put it in one corner of that place and not even be able to find it. And, you know, and I, I thought it was kind of funny, I looking back on it. But uh, also, the other involvement but I had Crockett found out that, uh, that there were some screen printers in North Carolina who were taking photographs out of the wrestling magazine that Crockett published. And uh, using them to screen print T-shirts with wrestlers' photographs of pictures on them, and selling them at flea markets. And matter of fact, I found some of them in a convenience store up near North Wilkesboro when we stopped there. But anyway, we were asked to bring a lawsuit in federal court against these folks to shut down their screen printing because they were violating the C- Crockett's copyright on these photographs. And so we sued all of them we could find in federal court, and I got a federal judge to sign a search and seizure order, which allowed us and the U.S. Marshals to go into the homes and businesses of these people and look for the T-shirts, and if we found them, seize them. And on a Saturday, another lawyer and I split up with teams of U.S. Marshals to go raid these places. And and uh, the group of Marshals I was with, we went north of Charlotte, up into the mountains. Uh, we stopped. On. The first stop, I remember, was I think was outside Statesville. Uh, a little town outside Hidden Night, I think it was the town, and uh, stopped this lady's mobile home. That's one of the people that was uh, living in a mobile home. And I remember, I think uh, it scared the dickens out of this lady because we show up on a Saturday morning wanting to search her trailer. Uh, and then we didn't, I don't think we found anything there, but we went on up to another place. And same thing, lady is at home, her husband's not there. That's who we're looking for, but we'd search her house. We end up that later that day in uh, outside West Jefferson, North Carolina. And up in the mountains and uh, late Saturday afternoon, we go to the sheriff's office there at Jefferson with the marshals. We're looking for some, uh, some help in finding this guy's home. And I remember the sheriff sitting there in a flannel shirt and he asked one of his deputies to take us out to the guy's house. And so I'm riding in the back seat uh, with uh, uh, one of the private investigators that the Crockett's had hired to locate and find who, who was doing this screen printing. And I was riding in the back of the marshal's car and I remember one of the marshals, we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, on a dirt road, way back in the holler. And I remember one of the, the marshals looked over his shoulder at the, at the private, uh, private eye and said, are you packing? And I'm thinking, packing? What are we getting into? Uh, I mean, <laughs> are there gonna be gunfire or something. So anyway, we, we get to this home, brick home, and the guy we're looking for, just as we'd experienced earlier day, what we, we, he wasn't there. But this little old lady, little white-haired lady, grandmotherly lady was there, and I had to read the order to her, and I'm telling her, ma'am, I've got an order from a federal judge that allows me to search your house, and we're looking for these T-shirts, and if we find them, I'm, I'm authorized to seize them. And they had a, a, a garage, a basement garage, and we pulled the door up, and sure enough, there's a whole box and boxes and boxes of T-shirts. Some guy from up lived next to her. Some guy in bib overalls came down and he's talking to her. I wouldn't let these guys search my house, these federals. I wouldn't let them come. And she really started getting upset. I don't blame her. I mean, you know, nobody wants somebody they don't know going around their house. But anyway, she started getting upset. And One of the deputy marshals said, told the guy, I said, come over a minute, buddy. I need to talk to you. And uh, they went over kind of off to the side. And the guy in the bib overalls said, uh, well, uh, I've got to be going. I'll see you later. And He got out of there. Anyway, later on, I asked the marshal on the way back. I said, what would you tell that guy? He couldn't leave fast enough. He said, I told him if he didn't shut his damn mouth, I was going to arrest him for obstructing the federal officer. He was coming back to Charlotte with me. <laughs> uh, and uh, we get the, we get these, uh, get these all these uh, T-shirts and, and put them in a van that we had with us and uh, bring them back to Charlotte. Got back late that night. Well, we'd worked out a deal with these screen printers. Most of them were just good old boys. They were doing this as a sideline. Side and they didn't have any money, and if we had gotten a judgment against we couldn't collect it. So we worked out a deal with them that, said, that basically says, you will turn over to us every screen-printed shirt you've got, and you will sign an agreement that you want, won't do it anymore. And if you do, you, you can get held in contempt of court for violating the, the agreement. Anyway, some of these old boys from the mountains brought a load of shirts down to Charlotte. I'd arrange for them a date and time to show up to Crockett's headquarters. And they bought a whole bunch of shirts down, and I'm there in the offices with them. And one of them saw Dusty go walking by it. He says, is that Dusty Rhodes? I said, yeah. You want to meet him? And they said, yeah, can we? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get. You know, I said, I'm not going to tell him that you've been making money off of him by selling shirts with his picture on them. But, you no, know, I was you. And So I, I took him back there and introduced him to Dusty. And, you know, they were just, oh, they were, you know, they, they would thought that was greatest things since sliced bread you know they're just ecstatic uh but yeah dusty was such a, he was a nice guy and, you know he like i said he 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 did more than just wrestle he basically was the booking uh, guy the talent manager for him and his real name you would see it on the credits on the tv show virgil runnels jr i doubt any of the fans knew that his real name was virgil runnels jr uh, they, they probably didn't know who that was but that was dusty, dusty rhodes as he said dusty rhodes the
0: american dream I don't know if this violates any sort of confidentiality, but I'll ask you anyway, and you can always tell me to be quiet. But do you remember the price they paid for those two planes?
7: No, not offhand. I know that. Uh, I know that. Uh, I remember when they were bought. Uh, I was in. I, I was involved in going down to Louisiana uh, for the Grumman, the first plane that was bought, the big twin-engine plane, and that was another story. What happened there? But, uh, no, I, I, I know that, the, that they were lucky to get the Grumman because the, the guy who owned it was a soft drink bottler there, a prominent guy in New Orleans who was going through a nasty divorce. And so they were able to buy that plane because he was having to, to liquidate assets due to his divorce.
0: You said there was more to the story in Louisiana from buying the Grumman. What's the rest of the story?
7: Well, Dave Johnson calls me up and he says, we need you to go down to fly down to Louisiana tomorrow. I mean, it was like the night before, or the day before I get this phone call. We need you to fly down to to Louisiana, Mark. We're going to close the deal on aircraft. That's okay. And so the next day, I drive out to Butler Radiation, which is a fixed base operator at Charlotte Douglas International Airport. And we're going to fly on a four-seater Cessna, small single-engine aircraft down there. I was told... Uh, that you know we could go down and back, in one day we were going to close the deal in Charlotte. We were going to go down there and pick up the, the representative of this bottling company, pick up the aircraft, and bring it back to Charlotte, and then actually sign the papers in Charlotte. I think it was for tax reasons, as I recall. But anyway, I'm driving out to the airport, and it was after somewhere around noon, maybe between 12 and 1 o'clock, and I'm listening to the news. And there's a story about the space shuttle Challenger blowing up. It was the day the Challenger blew up over Cape Kennedy, and all the people, uh, all the uh, crew members were killed. Uh, And uh, we get out there. I get on. We get on this little four-seater plane, and we're flying in headwinds all the way down to Baton Rouge, which is where we're going to pick the plane up. All the way down there, and all of a sudden, this short trip turns into a marathon, and I, and I had to call my wife. I remember and tell her I'm, it's going to be late tonight before I get back. Um, so we finally make it to Baton Rouge hours after we probably should have already been there. And there's the plane. We get on it, and it was a nice aircraft. It, I mean, it was. Had, I remember it had a global transponder, which meant that you could fly it internationally. And it it was cush. They'd had leather seats and chairs. It had a galley so they could fix it. Whoever wanted to could fix a meal and serve it. And we're on the aircraft. We're going to fly down to New Orleans and pick up their representative, the owner's representative, and then fly back to Charlotte. Well, sitting there waiting to take off. And we're sitting there, and we're sitting there. And finally, I guess it was the pilot that told us, we can't do it. We can't take off. Why? Well, one of the engines just threw a belt. And it's like 5 o'clock, 5.30, and they said, we're, you know, somebody's going to have six, and they can't do it right now. They're going to have to do it overnight. So we have to spend the night in Baton Rouge. Of course, none of us, I think Dave Johnson was on that trip with us. Uh, uh, none of us brought anything overnight. We didn't bring the cha- change of clothes or anything because we figured we are going to be back in Charlotte. But I remember we had to check into a hotel that night. And the next morning, we get back to the airport. The aircraft is... Fixed. And so we do fly on over to New Orleans or down to New Orleans, pick up the uh, person, fly back to Charlotte. I remember we closed the deal late that next morning, and maybe it was around lunchtime, that morning out at Douglas Airport. But I still remember that. And I, I, I don't think I was involved in the purchase of the jet. I don't, Jack may have handled
0: that. In terms of the purchases of other wrestling companies, you brought up Bill Watts, I want to ask you about that, but did you have anything to do with any of the other transactions? I know that Jim Crockett got involved with the Kansas City promotion, with the Florida promotion. Did you have anything to do with any of those transactions?
7: That was not one of the transactions I worked on. That probably was one that Jack did. And the Bill Watts one you worked on? Yeah, that was the one in Dallas. And I remember that because, uh, fly, well, I remember flying down with Dusty and making the comment about uh, Charlotte and, uh, compared to Dallas. And that, but also, I remember we, uh, we we landed in a place called Millionaire, M-I-L-L-I-O-N-A-I-R-E. That was the private airport. And obviously, it was well-named because folks who had a lot of money and owned planes kept them, their planes there. And, and I remember the other thing that struck me was, they had the ladies working there that looked like models. I mean, they looked like runway models, girls that you would see in Sports Illustrated, Swimsuit Edition, or Playboy, or whatever. Just gorgeous ladies. I thought, gosh, this place is great. And uh, I remember we went into the an office building there in Dallas. This was during the time when there was a downturn, I think, in the oil business. And so there were uh, office buildings standing empty. And I remember we went to this one building, and I still recall going into the restroom And just marveling at the gold-plated fixtures, how fancy this restroom was, gold-plated fixtures and dark paneling and everything. But, yeah, I was involved in that, that. That's a trip I still remember very vividly.
0: A lot has been said about the downfall of Jim Crockett promotions. A lot of people have blamed Dusty. A lot of people have blamed Dave Johnson. A lot of people have blamed Jim Crockett Jr., you weren't there at the very end of 1988 you ended up becoming a judge in 1987 but up until the time that you stopped doing work for them did you have any thought did, did you have any anticipation that there was coming soon a downfall that there was going to be a financial crunch based on the amount of money they were spending for planes and for mid-south wrestling or anything else that didn't
7: cross my mind i know that the period was a very active period i mean they were again they were expanding i've I was uh, having to deal with boxing and wrestling commissions and states where they were going to go to 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 get uh, licensing so that they could actually conduct matches there. And I remember they, it seemed like that, as I recall, that the expansion was very rapid. I mean, it was happening in a short period of time. Uh, no, I don't think that I was, that it occurred to me, well, they're, they're going to get overextended. I, that's exactly, I think, what happened. But, uh, it never occurred to me that, you know, that there was going to be a problem. They, again, they were going head to head with Vince McMahon. I mean, it, it, that, that was their main competitor at that time. And so they were having to, they were having to spend money, obviously, to, 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 to expand. And, uh, but I, I don't recall ever thinking, well, you know, they're getting in over their head.
0: A lot of people have blamed Dave Johnson, even though not too many people know who he actually is, but they always, they've heard, I think, Dusty Rhodes and other people say it was the accountant. It was the accountant. From the best of your knowledge, from your involvement with them, was Dave Johnson a reliable CPA? Did you think he was doing a good job?
7: When I dealt with Dave, I never had any inkling or any thought that he didn't know what he was doing. I mean, I, he was my contact person a lot of times when I had like when I was doing the licensing work, uh, filling the applications out for the licensing, Dave was my contact person, and there was never any indication that I had that that anything that he was doing anything wrong or that he didn't know what he was doing. I mean, I, I never had. There was nothing that indicated to me that he was basically going to be a problem or that he was going to cause a problem for Crockett uh, down the road. Uh, so no, I never. There was never indication that I had that anything was wrong. Uh, my work was uh, was basically the the legal work was again was dealing with getting them licensed. Uh, mo- most states, oddly enough, had boxing and wrestling commissions, and I. I remember thinking to myself a couple of times, why, why do they have this? It's, you know, why do they need it for pro- wrestling, professional wrestling matches? But m- most of the states they went to, I think, just about all of them that they were going to expand to, I had to go deal with a state wrestling commission to, uh, to go and fill out the application. And, and again, Dave Johnson was who I would call because I had to get stuff to put into the applications or to send with the application. So Dave was basically my contact per- person during that period. I mean, I may have dealt with Jimmy or David some too, but by and large, they. I, I, was the guy I went to?
0: Did you deal with any states that wouldn't license a particular wrestler for one reason or another?
7: No, no. We, as I recall, every every application that we made was granted. There was no problem in getting it, uh, and and I don't recall ever having a, a state commission turn turn them down
0: things really became much more adversarial after you left between Vince McMahon and Jim Crockett promotions with various predatory business practices being done to hurt Jim Crockett. Was there anything at this point, did you have any issues with Vince McMahon directly up until the time that you stopped representing them?
7: I did not deal with Mr. McMahon. I know Jimmy, you know, Jimmy, I'm sure did. Um, but I, know, you know, I know that they were going head to head that, 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 uh, that was a vivid impression that I had because, again, they were they were moving out of their territory, the regional territory they had occupied. And so McMahon obviously was expanding, too, at that time. And so they, they were going to be going head-to-head nationally. But, I no, I never had any dealings with Vince McMahon. I remember his name being mentioned when I was with the firm. Uh, but, no, I, 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 w- I never had any dealings with him.
0: Typically, was everyone very anti-Vince McMahon from what you heard? I don't think they were the best friends. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, you know, and you're going. To, he's your chief
7: competitor. You're going head to head with him for the business. And you know, so I don't, I'm sure McMahon probably felt the same way about the Crockett.
0: You would end up leaving private practice shortly after the UWF sale in the spring of 1987. For the listeners, can you please let them know why you left the law firm and what happened next?
7: Dating all the way back to my years as a newspaper reporter, I had always been fascinated by, uh, watching judges work in the courtroom. I, I, when I was a newspaper reporter in Salisbury, North Carolina, which was a newspaper I worked for after I graduated from college, uh, my beat was covering the courts and I was always fascinated when I'd get a chance to talk to the lawyers and talk to the judges. And, and I always thought that it would be fun to be a judge. And so in spring of 1987, uh, Governor Jim Martin, who was Republican governor uh, of North Carolina at that time, uh, he offered me an appointment as a Superior Court judge. And so this was my golden opportunity to to fulfill that dream that I had. And so I told my law partner that I was leaving the firm to go on the bench and take the appointment. And uh, I was sworn in April the 23rd, 1987 and never looked back, Uh, stayed on the bench and for almost 28 years, retired at the end of uh, 2014 after, well, again, almost 28 years wearing the robe.
0: You had been fascinated by the way the judge worked the room going back to your days in journalism. Was it all that you thought it would be? Did you enjoy being a judge?
7: Oh, Best job I ever had. Best job I could ever have. Uh, I, I often said, and, I, and it's true, that every uh, be, being a judge is an intellectual exercise. It's it's a challenge, an intellectual challenge. And until the right before I retired, I don't think there was ever a day that I didn't look forward to getting up and going to the courtroom, putting on my robe. And, and I uh, I got an opportunity to travel all over North Carolina, go to places I otherwise never would have gone to, from one end of the state to the other, and. And met a lot of interesting people, uh, and um, I had some mixed feelings about retiring, but I'd put in my time, and uh, it was time to kind of slow down a little bit. So I I decided to to hang up the robe at the end of uh, 2014, and, and I really haven't regretted. I miss the people, but, uh, and I miss the challenges that I had, but it was the right thing to do at that time.
0: And all the years you spent on the bench? Did any wrestlers ever show up in your courtroom? Did the, you know, the
4: Freebirds ever show up in your courtroom or Ric Flair? No, any?
0: no. but I did see John, Johnny Weaver.
7: I would see Johnny around the courthouse occasionally, uh, run into him on, you know, he, again, he was doing prisoner transport. So I would see Johnny, uh, run into him in the court and, uh, you know, in the hallway or on the elevator and we'd, we'd talk. Um, uh, and I, again, I, I remember when he died, uh, hearing that he had had a heart, massive heart attack and, and died and w- went to the, uh, to the funeral or to the wake uh, uh, to see him and remember that he was dressed in his deputy sheriff's uniform. I think John really was, was proud of the fact that he wore a badge. And, and I think that's why Gene, was gonna, Gene Anderson was going to do it. I think John probably sold him on it.
0: All these years later, when you look back on your time around professional wrestling, representing the wrestling company, what's your lasting memory? That it was a fun, it
7: was fun. I mean, you know, you're involved in basically show business. I mean, that's basically, it was like representing actors or actresses or, or music, musicians. I mean, you're involved in a, in in a form of show business and it, it was, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was work, but it was fun too being associated with it and, uh, uh, I still talk occasionally about the fact that, that we represented the Crockett's, and, and and about getting to know Dusty Rhodes, and getting to, to know Rick Flair, and getting to know Roddy Piper, and Tully Blanchard, and and Rick Steamboat, and all those guys. I mean, it, it you know it, it it was a good time, and I'm I'm glad I I'm glad I had an opportunity to do it because I got to, again I got to see folks, the ones that I dealt with individually, the wrestlers got to see the the real
0: person behind the the public face. There he is, Judge Richard Boner. I want to thank him for appearing here on the show. I also want to thank my friend Otis Gibbs and of course, Jason Boner, the judge's son, for helping me put this segment together. I really appreciate their help. And I also want to wish Otis a very happy birthday. I believe he's in Europe right now. He's a friend of the show, a friend of mine, Otis. If you're listening, happy birthday. I hope you're having a good tour and I hope to talk to you soon when you get back here. But with that, it's time for Book of the Week. And this week's Book of the Week is don't call me fake the real story of dr d david schultz by dr d david schultz and of course our friend john cosper i just got this book i haven't had a chance to review it yet i just flipped through it a lot of really cool pictures a lot of pictures i have never seen before for everyone who wants to talk about mr t and dr d there's a picture of them Shaking hands, smiling, seemingly (laughs) chummy in this book from the night that he was allegedly fired for attacking Mr. T. And that's something we're going to talk about in a future segment with Dr. D. Uh, We have a multi-part interview. You can hear part one shortly here on the show. But if you want to check this book out, you could do so by going to tinyurl.com slash superpod amazon you guys know how it works by going to that link you don't spend any more money than you would normally spend you don't do really anything differently than you would normally do at amazon except you punch in that link at that point anything you add to your cart we get a little bit of credit we get a little bit of love a little bit of support from those fine people at jeff bezos's gargantuan company amazon.com so by using that link you support this show you don't have to do anything you don't have to spend any extra money if you're gonna shop and you use this link it helps us out hook a brother up And while you're there, check out Don't Call Me Fake, the real story of Dr. D. David Schultz by Dr. D. and John Cosper. You can get that and so much more. You guys know how it works. Anything you need, movies, music, books, gardening tools, bulk denim, whatever it is, tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows put no effort into their program, yet they still want you to support them. You have to ask yourself, why? Why should I support this jackass? You shouldn't. I believe in only supporting things that don't suck. So with that said, you need to ask yourself a question. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to supporting them or us... those guys fuck those guys support the super <laughs> podcast support your super podcast i was very entertained by listening to your f formulate there for a yes. few seconds Dan. i
1: was, was trying to hang with you i was gonna to try to do it at the same time but you, uh, you basically <laughs> you pulled back at the ledge there and i went over like wiley e. coyote well. <laughs> you certainly did well <laughs> with that
0: wiley let's go to our next segment it is part one of my conversation with dr d David Schultz, I've been looking forward to talk to Dr. D here on the show, and I think everyone will dig this conversation. We're going to talk about a lot of things here in part one. One of them is bounty hunting, and we all know Dr. D famously became a bounty hunter after he left professional wrestling. He actually got a lot of media for it. He was on Joe Franklin. He was on Morton Downey Jr. He really became a nationally known bounty hunter. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and also how the worlds of bounty hunting and wrestling mix together. Also a little bit about how Dr. D first got started with Herb Welch. This is a lot of fun, this talk, and I had a great time talking to Dr. D. Here's part one of my conversation with the man who just put out the book, Don't Call Me Fake, Dr. D, David Schultz. I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast today, Dr. D, David Schultz. He's a man who fascinates and captivates wrestling fans to this day. Dr. D, welcome to the program.
6: Hi, thank you, Brian. Good to be here, buddy. It really is. I'm just sitting down here relaxing, enjoying the good weather here in Tennessee and uh good talking to you glad you got me on
0: i'm glad i was able to reach you on the compound there i know you have a lot of things to do but before we get going with this conversation i want to of course at the very top here tell everyone that you have a new book that you have done with john cosper a friend of the show a great wrestling historian called don't call me fake the real story of dr d david schultz what made you decide that this was the time to write a book
6: well, you know, I tried to write a book two, two, two different times in the last 10 years, I guess, and Vince McMahon always stepped in and squashed it. Uh, he would tell the companies that was writing it, the people who were writing it, if you write this book, then you don't write none of my books. That's what I was told anyway, you know. And it seemed like nobody wanted to write what I wanted to write. They wanted to fix and everything and add what they wanted, and I said, no, 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 no. We're going to tell the truth, man everything's going to be truthful in this book. If it's wrote, it's going to be truthful. And, uh, John can vouch for that. I told him no shortcuts, no lies, no nothing. And as John was writing it, he was, he was, I mean, he was fascinating because John, uh, You know, he's a pretty smart fella. But when I started talking to him and telling him things, he's going, oh, my God, oh, my goodness, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, no, you didn't, did you? And uh, then we got into the bounty hunting part of the book. You know, that was my next life after wrestling with bounty hunting. And he was at all on the bounty hunting. And, uh, you know, my wife has read the book four times, and she said, I can't believe I'm sitting here reading this book for the fourth time, but every time I read it, I pick more stuff up. And she said, I lived this life with you, 48 years, and we went to high school together. And she said, I still can't put the book down because I want to see what's going to happen the next time, you know, what? what's going on here, What you know. And I said, well, that's a good sign, ain't it? And she said, yep, I, I guess it is. <laughs> uh, but it uh it's a fascinating book i mean I, I enjoyed it uh going through it and you know we had to stop somewhere because uh, john told me he said david if we keep going we're going to have a thousand page book and people don't want to read a thousand pages uh, then well maybe they do and uh he later he said you yeah, know they probably do if it's this good <laughs> yeah. and uh you know but it's i think it's almost 500 pages 400 from our pages but It's a fascinating book, and everybody that's read it has said, "Oh my goodness, I just can't, I can't hardly put it down because I want to see what's happening." You know, and it's not the typical uh, wrestling book. You know, it's it's telling just like John Stossel. We started off with him right at the first of the book because we was trying to get the story out there how I became a bounty hunter. Well, 250 pages later, we got off of John Stossel in wrestling. But it is very, uh, very good, very well put together. And we had a couple of people, a couple of companies that actually wanted to run with this book, uh, but when they talked to you and they say, well, we want to do it the way we want to do it, we want to change this, we want to change this. I said, no, 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 that's not, no, no. And he said, uh, you will get out to more places. And I said, the money and stuff is not that important. I want to get the facts out here about me that people don't know about Dr. D. David Schultz. Well, they got an uh, honest view of me after they read this book, and they turn around and say, oh, my God, he is an asshole, lady." <laughs> no, not, not, not really. I was telling John that, and he's uh, kind of laughing about it, you know, but uh, it's a absolutely fabulous book. I've even offered people, you know, they say, oh, I don't know, man, I don't know if I want to read the book. I say, well, I'll tell you what, you read it, and if you don't like it, I'll give you money back. And they go, oh, I, I, I know. You know, some of them cheap people I know. there's <laughs> A lot of them cheap people running around, you know, that don't want to spend a dime for nothing. They sure are. You know, but we, yeah, we catch up with them down here, down south. They will finally give in. and I may have to take a couple of chickens in on trade, but that's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well,
0: you know, you mentioned bounty hunting, and we're going to talk about all the wrestling stuff, but I want to start with that because, I know that you're very proud of your wrestling career, but I always got the opinion from afar, because I I haven't known you until this conversation here today, but I was always have the opinion that you really had a lot of pride about how successful you were, and I guess how successful quickly you were as a bounty hunter. Is that correct?
6: Yes, yes. I was after Vince McMahon, you know. Uh, Vince got rid of me because of Stossel. I kept wrestling overseas, different places, local play. I mean, I was doing pretty good for the two or three years. But after TV, you don't get on TV, people come up and they start cutting your price when you yeah. you go. And I demanded a high price, you know. And finally, uh, I had some guys come to me, private investigators and stuff, said, would you be interested in bounty hunting? I said, well, well, I've heard the story in the Old West. What's up with it? You know, and they explained to me and all this. And uh, the first guy I went to get was a motorcycle uh, guy, the Diablo motorcycle Gang up in Connecticut. And they said, nobody wants to go get this guy because they're scared of him. I said, why is anybody scared of somebody? And they, he said, well, if you go get him, you'll get a handsome payday. Like, I don't know exactly what it was at that time, $10, fifteen thousand dollars dollars whatever. So I went in two days and had the guy, took him in jail, put him in jail, and uh, they paid me. I was like, oh, this is okay. So thousands of pickups later, I did that full-time for about 17 years, and I brought people in from Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, Puerto Rico, uh, Jamaica, San Domingo, uh, all over the United States. I brought in murders, rapists armed robbers. I mean, I had them all, you know, and I had the people calling me from all over the United States to work for them, you know, bondsmen and insurance companies all over the United States wanted me to work for them. And then, you know, it got where they wanted you to do it by a phone call. I said, "Hey, David, you know, can you go pick this guy up?" He said, "No, no, 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 no. It don't work like that, you know. I've got to have paperwork from you. I've got to have arrest warrants. I got to have real arrest warrants. I got to have all the facts. This here, this here, this here." And now they don't for these people probably a year and kept telling the court, they're going to find them and nobody could find them. So they called me. And as of today, there's never been nobody that I hadn't found. Now, a lot of people I would be working on looking for, they would get busted by the police and that automatically take the bond, off the bond. And I wouldn't have to look for them no more. But for not finding somebody, I found everybody. Um, I worked for, for the FBI. They had, uh, they had a guy and two girls. The guy had two girls kidnapped. Uh, I think he was 14, 15-year-old. And they looked for them for three years and couldn't find them. So they called me in their office and made a deal with me, we uh, which we really need them after I found them. But I found them and brought them home within six months. And they have been looking three years for them. They had no idea where they were. So anyway, that story's in the book. I won't tell too much about that, but it was a long, hard, you know, hunt there. I brought in other guys that was, uh, part of the Shower Posse and, uh, Jamaican drug gangs and, uh, bad boys. Uh, I didn't have no, I mean, I didn't have no trouble after I found them, but they were really hard to find. And it tells about that in there too. What went on when I thought I had them, I'd hit the house and they'd be out to eating dinner. And then, you know, they come back, the police car is sitting at their house. So I missed them. Now I got to go keep going with my informants and all, and one of them had a license in Virginia. He had a brand-new license sent to him every two or three weeks with his face on it and a different name. Uh, I mean, you know, the police stopped him, it showed he wasn't wanted at all. But I found him in Atlanta, Georgia, and the police come up to the room with me because I had to report in at a big hotel. And he said uh, they went to the door and he they asked if he was the person I won't say his name for you it'd be in the book and he said no it's not me showed him Tony ID and they said Doc that's all we can do man that's it we don't we can't do nothing else uh, he has ID that he's not wanted I said okay so y'all are through with him said yep. So I grabbed him by the hair, pulled him out in the hall and handcuffed him <laughs> and, and pushed him back in the room and told the cops, I said, I'll be out in just a minute. They said, oh, we hope you know what you're doing. So I got him back in the room and I said, hey, here's the way he's going down, man. I know you're the guy I'm looking for. You're Andrew. And I know you've got ID in these bags. And I know you've got drugs in these bags. So if you keep insisting you're not him. I'm going to let the police come in, and they're going to search your bags and get a warrant for it or get somebody, a dog or something up there. you going to jail here for a long time, and then you'll be extradited back to Connecticut. He said, no, man, you got me. It's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. So I let him put on a pair of pants and shirt and took him out and cuffed, locked the door, and his uncle was in another room in, in the hotel, and I gave him the key to the room and said, here, here's Andrew's key, man. Y'all might want to clean that room up. And, uh, you know, it wasn't up to me. The Police said, we're through. We can't do nothing, you know. So they took him to the airport, put him in jail, held him there until I got ready to leave and brought him out and put him on the plane. And there we went. But I, that was a hard one, man. I, I, I missed him about five, six different times in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi. I was one step behind him because he was so powerful. Everybody was telling him where I was and what I was doing and the questions I was asking and all that, you know. But, but you got uh, your you man. Know, I, I, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I always got them. And, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes it took a little longer, and sometimes it was pretty quick, uh, you know, faster than they thought. But, yeah. you know, when you're bounty hunting, though, see, the bondsmen, they get, a, they get a paper from the court saying, hey, this guy skipped bond. You either bring him in or pay the court. And they've got about six months to do that. So they go out and look for this guy themselves and all their other people they got looking for him. And they go to the people's houses and scare the hell out of everybody and tell them they're going to sue them, take the house, because they signed the bond. And it just scares the hell out of everybody. And then they can't find him. now the boy that's running gets really scared, and he was probably in the house hiding all along, and they couldn't find him looking for him. So now they come to me and say, hey, "We ain't got but 30 days left. We got to have him." You know. Now I got to go to these people and talk to them and confess them that I'm there to help the kid or the guy, whoever he is. You know. And um, most time they told me where they were or gave me a phone number, and from a phone number I can automatically get the address, no matter where it's at, whatever it is. You know, with my contacts I had. But you know, you go in there and you're already on the downside because these people, that, that guy's done left because they don't scare the hell out of him, you know. And I usually got them in another state uh, somewhere. I mean, you know, I'd go to California. I'd get a tip that afternoon, jump on a plane, go to California, pick them up and be back the next day. And um, But these people, uh, you know, they're dangerous people now. They'll hurt you if they get a chance. But most of the time I've found that people that has jumped bail does not carry a gun with them when they're on the street. See, that's one thing I learned a long time ago, you know, when I first started. You know, these guys are not going to be carrying a gun on them walking the street because if the cops stops them or they have a problem, they go to jail, and then they do not get out on a bond until they're confirmed by the, uh fingerprint through the United States fingerprint system, FBI, and all that because they had a gun. Now, if they don't have a gun, they can go to jail and get bonded right out. I mean, you know, they go in and say, hey, my name is Jose Gonzalez, okay? Date of birth, February 15th, sixty-five, whatever. And they said, okay, Jose, uh, your bond is $10,000. They make a phone call. Their drug dealers got them out within 30 or 40 minutes, an hour. Because, I mean, it's not a big charge. It's just drug charge, you know. But if they had a gun, they couldn't get bonded out. They would be held until all the positive identification made on them. So, you know, that gives you a good indication that people don't have goodbyes. And all of them don't. I got a lot of guns off of people, you know. And, I mean, a lot of them had guns on them, but the majority of them don't, especially the young kids that are running, you know. But the old-time drug dealers and all, oh, my God, you got to watch it. got to watch their wives, their girls, their boys, boys, all of them. You got everybody to watch, you know. But uh, it's exciting, though. It, it keeps your blood pumping, your heart keeps you alert. And then sometime after you get the guy, you say, oh, my God, I'm lucky to get out of that without getting shot. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's a good life, though. It was. Now it's getting where you have to have a lawyer with you uh, if you break into a person's house. And when I was doing it, you kick a door down. If it's the wrong door, you say, oops, sorry. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just move on. Oh, yeah, it was all over. I mean, anyway, I mean, you know, but now if you kick a door down, you better bring somebody out of that house that's wanted. Uh, you know, the guy you want or somebody you better bring out in cuffs and take them to jail because if you don't, you're liable for all the damage and the people they sue you and uh, you know, it really gets complicated. Uh, you know, these people in these drug houses, they know everything they say. You walk in, they see your gun, they say, oh, this guy pulled a gun on my kids. I mean, they make all kind of accusations about you, but most of the time the police know they're lying. But if you're in a different state, nobody knows you uh, like Illinois, see Illinois, you can't go into Illinois and pick up anybody because they don't recognize the bail bond system. Illinois has their own huh. bonding system through the state of Illinois. So they threatened to put me in jail up there. If I took people out and I brought six or eight out, but I brought three out at one time, one night. <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, I it was just, they, they, they agreed to go with me and, uh, You know, I didn't force him to go. Uh, You know, it's just a way you can do it and get away with it without being, you know, locked up. But nowadays, the way I hear it, I mean, I'm always getting calls wanting me to go find this guy, find this guy. Every once in a while, I'll go do it, you know. But, you know, guys that will call me and say, David, I need you to help me on this guy. He's down here in Alabama, and he's going to shoot somebody. They said he's very bad and mean. He's on a $200,000 bond. Can you help me? Well, see, the police won't help them because the police, its a, you know, they're not, the bondsman is a civil matter, contractual matter with them. And the police, you go up and tell them, hey, that guy's in that house. Well, you know, they can get in a lot of problems by going in there trying to get a guy they don't know, and they check the computer, and sometimes they don't put him in the computer. The, you know, the federal computer, they put them in local computer, but not in the, the NCIC computer. Now, they called me up. Uh, I'll give you one instant here a couple of weeks ago. A guy called me up went down here and everybody's good at him. They, the big barn this here, And uh, I said, okay, uh, you want me to go with you or you want me to go get him? Well, I just want you to go with me. So on the way down, I met him up the road and went down there. And I said, now, are you going in the house? He said, oh, no, I'm going to the back door. I said, so you want me to go in the house? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm saying you. You go in. Yeah, yeah, you go in. (laughs) I knocked on the door. The guy comes to the door. I grabbed him by the hair, pulled him out, threw him on the ground, handcuffed him, dragged him out, put him in the car, and hollered for the guy in the back. He was hiding back there somewhere. I don't know where he was, (laughs) but he come running around. I mean, I don't. I mean, he didn't give me no resistance, and I didn't have to physically, you know. I just kind of guided him to the ground, you know. And uh, told him who I was and handcuffed him. And, you know, he didn't fight or nothing. Uh, would not been no sense fighting, but, you know, not with me. You know, my baby needed a new pair of shoes. I had to arrest him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
0: let me ask you but, this, hey, because you, yeah. you said that sometimes you would get calls from people that would want you to grab someone, and they wouldn't yeah. they wouldn't have the paperwork. They they would just want to say it to you over the phone, and you wouldn't do that. You wanted to do it by the book. What would you say are the most common misconceptions about a bounty hunter and what a bounty hunter does.
6: Well, most time people say a bounty hunter uh, you know, they say that the word bounty hunter, they don't understand how the judicial system works with bondsmen and all that, you know. But they think you can just go out and grab the guy and throw him in the car. Don't have to have any paperwork. And uh, you know, that's wrong. You gotta have authorization from the bondsman to act as their representative. You have to have a certified copy of the rearrest warrant with you on that guy, you have to have identification on that guy, and you have to have identification on yourself. And a lot of states demand that you follow their regulations now, used to as 1872 Supreme Court decision that said you can go across state lines or the states or whatever you have to do to get the guy and bring him back. You can still do that, but you have to follow their local laws and regulations. So, you know, it's not as easy as people think. And uh, if you don't have that paperwork and you grab somebody, they can actually get you for kidnapping. And people say, oh, we can do a citizen's arrest. Well, I wouldn't advise that. I think that's Andy Griffith. I think that's Andy Griffith stuff. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah. I've never been able to do a citizen's arrest. But if you've got them and back to Illinois now. I said you couldn't go into Illinois, but if you know a guy's wanted and you you have paperwork on him, you can't take him out forcefully, but you can hold him and call the local authorities and they'll come pick him up and hold him for Connecticut or whatever state you're working for, and you'll go to Cook County Jail. Now, if they find drugs or anything on him, whatever, it's a different story. Now, he's got to be prosecuted there and cleared before you can ship into Connecticut, which could be years. So, that's when you go in and try to smooth things out and get them out of there and i've never had a trouble getting them out i've had the police tell me they're gonna arrest me if i bust down the door on the house but uh it never happened i didn't have to but uh, I, I very seldom had to break in a door after i learned how to do it and uh you know i had all kind of uniforms with me i had fedex uh Overnight Express. I had boiler Maker Utica boiler Maker shirts, and I had all kind of stuff, you know. And if I was going into apartment building, people will always open the door for a ballermaker uh, <laughs> uh You know, they want that heat. Yeah. You know, and they'll open that door for you if you're a utility man or heat. You got to look like one. You will know, put a baseball hat on. You stop at these uniform shops and get different uniforms, and they just see the uniform and they open the door for you. Now you can get to the basement. And after you get into the basement, you can find your person. The phone number on all them phone boss like New York City, has 2,000 families in one building. And, you know, I'd go in there at 2 o'clock in the morning and get one guy out of 2,000 families. And police, I'd say, y'all want to go with me? Go, oh, no, 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 you go do it yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's a bad place. But everybody knew me. Everybody knew I wasn't a snitch, and everybody knew I wasn't going to tell anything about the drugs. Waste of time for me to say anything to anybody about drugs or anything in New York city. Cause they don't care what I tell them. They're not going to act on any information I give them because they don't know that, you know, they have to go through, uh, they say, how do you know it's marijuana? Well, I don't, but I mean, it looked like it. And, uh, they'd say, well, you got a test kit. Nope. So you don't know it's marijuana. Nope. I mean, that's what kind of questions you get if you do that. And he said, well, yeah, a big bag of, uh, Okay. Now, how do you know? Well, that's what they told me. Okay. You don't, you didn't test it. I don't have no tester. Uh, okay. See, it's a bunch of crap that I tell them anything because it ain't going to help nobody but hurt me. And you know, that's why I got such a good name in New York city. People knew if I told them, Hey, I'll give you a thousand dollars. Tell me where this guy is. They tell me most of them would tell me. And the next day, I'd come back and pay the guy the reward. And I'd tell him, I'd say, hey, don't go out here and buy your a uh, big car or something. I'm giving you $5,000, this guy. You know, oh, no, I wouldn't do that, Doc. Okay. Next time I go around, he got a new car. A new one, but newer than what he had. And they think people can't put that together. You know, they got the reward for telling them somebody, <laughs> <laughs> you try to help them out. And then you say, what's the use? You know, yeah. they're not going to listen to me anyway. They're lost calls and people say, why do you give them that money? Well, I couldn't find a guy without it because they got too many snitches. They got too many, uh, what they call lookouts. They got them on every cut. They know when you're there on the block, As soon as you pull up the words out, Hey, Doc's on the block, man. You know, and I just set in my car, and I had drug dealers come up and tell me, "Doc, man, why don't you move back over on the other side, man? Go to Brooklyn somewhere. Don't be up here. You messed my business up." And I said, "Well, you can tell me where this guy is, and your business can go back, and I'll leave." And he'd look at the picture, and he said, "Man, he's over in that building there, third one, the second floor, or whatever." And I go get him, and I would leave, and you know, they carried on with their business, and you know,
0: the period of time where. You became a bounty hunter, coincided with that period where you had that lawsuit from John Stossel, who you mentioned earlier. Was that period of time just for you like a crash course in how the legal system works?
6: Yeah, and over the years of bounty hunting, you you learn a lot about that work. And, you know, the the Stossel, I was never sued on that Stossel case. Vince McMahon's the one that got sued, and he's the one that paid the $425,000 to John Stossel and never asked me a question. I never went to court. I was never charged with anything. And then after he paid him $425, he comes up and says, oh, we're suing David for $425,000 that I paid John Stossel. Why? Why? Well, you signed a contract that you was uh, responsible for your actions uh, around and in the ring, around the ring, on the floor, whatever. Well, if you call that a contract, which was proven it wasn't a contract, it was just something he picked up for himself, and I was one under no contract when John Stossel that deal happened, and that's the reason I wasn't sued or anything else. Vince is the one got sued, and then he turns around and sues me and puts lien on all my property, him and his lawyers and all that, all my property, in different states, to want him want me to pay him the four hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. And his wife said, uh, in one day, he said, well, we're just going to take his, uh, you know, money for all the entertainment tapes and all that until he pays the $425,000. And that's where the lawsuit got in there, all that stuff, see. And they drove that thing out about seven years. And, uh, you know, and then there was a tape that they got, uh, Vince McMahon's lawyers and his people that took from my lawyer that. Implicated some of the people in the WWE, WWF, as sexual predators, I'd call them. And the tapes, my lawyer said, if you give that tape up, you're going to lose it. But if you don't give it up, you can never talk about this stuff again because the court has ordered you to give it up. It's discovery. So she said, if you give it up, you're going to lose it. Baby. And I just want you. I said, well, maybe I should make copies. And she said, no, copies are no good in a court of law. And copies would just be a record of what is on tape, and that's not going to be admissible, so you couldn't use it. So anyway, they got it, and the court ordered them to return it to me. I never got it. That's been almost 30 years. They refused to return it to me, and the court ordered them to return it to me, and they come up to it. Oh, we uh, inadvertently lost it. What was on that tape? Oh, that's what I'm going to talk about on the next book. <laughs> <laughs> that means we didn't want to put it on this book because Miss McMahon would have squashed it probably or tried to. So we didn't even talk about it at that time, but, uh, it's some heavy duty stuff. It fit right into what's going on today in the government and, uh, you know, all the sexual allegations and stuff. And it's a shame really what was on the tape and, uh, you know, plus uh, there's other things that needs to be brought out uh, that uh, that I have. You know, I have probably eight or ten depositions of different people and different things. And right, you kept and, all the depositions
0: throughout the years, correct?
6: Yeah, all the depositions I was given to me returned to me when I settled the case with Vince. Just uh, you know, all of them was given to me, and I started reading them, and I said, "How can they?" You know, they, I mean, they even, they said I extorted, uh, I tried to extort $5 million through Heraldo. I've never met Heraldo (laughs) or any of the reporters. I don't know any of the people. And they, 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 let me tell you, I was telling somebody the other day, if you're not a billionaire, don't try to fight a billionaire, even if you're right, because they will run you in the ground. They'll try to break you and they'll take every dime they can get from you. And they'll have you on um, more like Vince has got no tell how many lawyers on retainers and they'll have deposition after deposition after deposition and they'll dry you out. Oh, yeah. And then they say, Hey, we're not going to pay him ever a dime. And if he's awarded a uh, hundred dollars, I'll go to my grave owing him that. You know, I won't pay him, I'll appeal everything. I mean, this is what my lawyer was telling me he said. And I said, Well, let him go. So you know, I can't do nothing. I mean, my lawyer dropped me after seven years and said, I can't fight Vince no more. Well, I wonder why. Well, I'd say my opinion of it is that Vince paid him off like he pays everybody else off. And, of course, my lawyer said, I can't, you know, I can't do nothing no more, you know. And uh, I tried to talk to him and said, man, you agreed to do this all the way through to the end. He said, well, this is the end. I can't afford to fight Vince man." Well, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? you get all this money from me you know, to sue him and take it, you know, but I've had very bad experiences with attorneys. I've had one or two that was okay, but most of them, oh my goodness, mm. <laughs> they ought to be in the hall of fame of thieves and liars and scammers and they know every little trick in the book and it all comes down to if you go against them, you better have a lot of money. And if you got a lot of money, leave him alone. <laughs> just go home. You don't need that little <laughs> damn. <program. laughs> but, uh, oh, man, they just uh, they try to just, just try to destroy you with lies, lies after lie after lie. They tried to say I had an attack dog that uh, tracked down bears and killed bears. Whoa, that's uh, interesting. That's what I said. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people up north there probably know what kind of dog I had. It was a Bouvier de Flounder which was about 160 pounds, and he was capable of tracking a bear down, but I never hunt bear, and they, uh, you know, they had one guy on there that uh, they said, oh, did David, uh, did the dog try to hurt you? He said, no, the dog was great, man, and then they got mad because the guy said that. <laughs> well, we heard he was a bad dog. Yeah, he was AKC registered and a uh, support dog, so it couldn't have been that bad, you know. But that's what kind of stuff they try to turn on you.
0: That may you be know. my new favorite Dr. D story, that Dr. D is so bad that he has yeah. a support dog that hunts and kills bears.
6: Yeah, yeah, and it's in <laughs> depositions, all this stuff, and plus guns. They asked him, they said, does the Dr. D have guns? Yes, he does. And they said, do you think he's got one now? Yes, he does. In this deposition? Yes he does. <laughs> and and the woman in there weighed about five hundred pounds, had the lips all red, lipstick. she started hollering.
2: Oh, oh, Doctor, you got a gun. You got a good people
6: started running around the deposition when i mean, It's like uh, uh it's like one of them shows where you got three women up uh big heavy set women singing that.
4: Wahoo, woo
6: you know. We
4: gotta gun
6: And they were trying to talk to them the lawyers and I said, Hey My lawyer said, David, uh, have you got a gun? I said, do you want to know, Eileen? She said, yes. Yes, I do. All of a sudden, oh,
2: he has got a gun.
6: I mean, it was a comic comic strip, man. And uh, they asked me, they said, "Uh, will you put the gun up on the counter here and leave it up on? I said, nope. They said, will you put it at our desk out front? I said, nope. He said, what will you do? I said, I'll lock it in your safe, but you got to give me your combination to your safe. He said, no, we're not going to do that. I said, well, I'm not locking it up there." Then I agreed, finally, give my attorney the shells out of it, and I put it back in my pocket. But when I pulled it out for the counter, you could hear that big, heavy-set girl again.
2: Hi, my guys!
6: And people already running again. It was like, I mean, really, a cartoon could have never been so, uh, you know and uh
0: you were licensed licensed to carry and you're a bounty hunter
6: yes i was licensed uh and and i told them i have a license for this gun to carry and i think i had at that time that was before they started uh reciprocating different states and all that but i had rhode island i had uh connecticut uh i had uh different ones i mean missouri uh tennessee florida alabama mississippi you know and uh you know, and and then we agreed that I'd never bring a gun into a deposition again. Now we agreed that amongst all of us, right? Now two days later, we get a court order from a judge, sent it to my attorney and me. David Schultz will never be able to carry another gun in a deposition. If he does, he'll be locked up for this year, this year, this year. And we'd already agreed, you know, in writing that I'd never bring another gun in a deposition because everybody's scared, nobody wants to talk. But they sent me a court order from the judge. But yet they can't give me a court order and and enforce it, getting my tapes back. But that's another story for another day, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I tell you, it's a, I mean, it was a rough world out there. When I was in New York and uh, all up there, Northeast, and, you know, I didn't have much trouble in Minneapolis because we worked so many different states from Minneapolis, you know. Uh, But up there, you're in the middle of all that, man, you got some of the, uh, you got some of the big time crooks up there. Oh, yeah. And, we certainly uh, do.
2: <laughs>
0: we yeah, certainly Yeah.
6: Oh, yeah. They're around. They're everywhere. Scammers. And, uh, you know, and if you ain't careful, you'll get a hold of one of them and they'll make you they convince you that they're doing right. And they will take everything you got. And it ain't no recourse for you because they can't find them anymore. They I, got, the I got route.
0: recourse. I'm going to call Dr. D and his bear killing dog. To go
6: get my. There you back. go. That's yeah, I mean. get that bear killer. Yeah. <laughs> well, they asked the guy. You know, they asked him. They said, "Do you think that bear could have killed a bear? I mean, that dog killed a bear." He said, "He probably could have, but did he ever attack you?" He said, "No." <laughs> he said, "Did he attack anybody?" He said, "No." But he was. Uh, he could hunt bear, right? And he said, "Well, that's what y'all are saying." I ain't never know David go hunt no bear. But if I was a bear and he was hunting him, I'd be moving because he's going to find him. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it's kind of like a comic story once you start tearing it down after it's over, you know. But, uh, you know, one thing about it, though, if you're going to be a bounty hunter, you've got to be smart about it. These these guys go out there. I remember here a few months ago, there was this two bounty hunters got shot in Texas, went in to get this guy in a car dealership. And they rushed in on him. The guy had a gun. pulled it. Shot both of them. And they shot him too. All three of them dead. But you know, you don't do that. I mean, that's stupid. You know. Do you like the movie Midnight Run? Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's a great movie. I right? watched it, and parts of it would have been very possible, and the rest of it was uh, just entertainment. But the uh, the idea of what they was doing is absolutely right. You know. Yeah. That happens. I mean, things like that happen every day and bounty hunting, uh, unless you don't know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, you know, you can, I mean, there's, I brought people back from, I I brought some high government officials back that skipped out on bonds.
2: Wow. Really?
6: Yes. And you'll read about that in the book. (laughs) And these guys skip out and, uh, you know, and they get on a bond because uh, it's like a domestic dispute. And then you start reading the police report. And, you know, this guy beat the heck out of his wife. He threatened to kill her, tried to stab her, all this. And, And once I caught up with him, he was in Tampa, Florida, I believe it was, down there close to Tampa. And the guy that was with me was Ken Passarello, Mr. Universe. He was former Mr. Universe. And he took the trip with me to cover the back door. And as I went to the dealership, this guy said, you have no authority here. And they've already called the police down there because it's a dealership. I said, well, yes, I do, and you're under arrest. He ran into his office. I went behind him. He grabbed the telephone up like he's going to call. I jerked it out of his hand and grabbed him and clean the desk with him. You know how you sweep a desk down? Oh, yeah. <laughs> just cleaned his desk down. <laughs> he hit the floor. I handcuffed him. Here come the cops. And lo and behold, one of the policemen used to wrestle with me under a mask in Pensacola, Florida. And he said, David Schultz, man, don't you remember me? He said, no, you wouldn't do that because I was under a mask, but I knew who he was. And he said, wow. And the guy started to holler, Hey, he can't do that. I know my rights. So, you know, I'm just here and blah, 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 blah. And the guy said, I'd advise you to shut up before David gags you, <laughs> you know. So we did have to gag him, get him out, and put him in the car, and he screaming the whole time. After we got a couple hundred miles up the road, he calmed down to like a baby wrestler's trip, you know.
0: Who was the masked wrestler?
6: Uh, uh, You know, his the Red Baron he went as, he was under a mask, and it was in Pensacola, Florida, in about 1976, Seventy five, seventy six, and he was doing, you know, he was down there working under the mask, and I had no, I had no idea, you know, how small this world is. You run up on a cop, he's called to a, a pickup, and it's him. And he said, David short, <laughs> Dr. D., ma'am. And I, I, at first, I thought, yeah, right. I mean, you know, he's friendly, so I wanted to be friendly. And then he said, I used to fight you in the ring all the time. you beat the hell out of me every time. I said, well, that one I mean, that was a gimme. <laughs> I mean, it's a small world out there, who you find. And, uh, and, you know, when you're picking people up, when you're bounty hunting, you know, I know they got a couple of bounty hunters on TV that do this stuff, and they want to save everybody's life and tell them all about religion and all that. But let me tell you, New York City is a different entity, a different place, different mindset. Everything up there is different. It's like, uh, you know, I used to tell people, you go to New York, they'll eat you up, man. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's like a jungle. Uh, you go to a jungle, you don't know how the animals treat, they'll eat you up. It's just like New York. If you don't know and you walk along there, they spot you in a minute, who you are. Yeah, And they say, oh, my God, here's one. We're going to rob him in just a minute. We're going to get him right down here. <laughs> and, you know, you'd be surprised how I many robberies go on that never gets reported because they're embarrassed. I mean, people don't want to tell you they lost everything they had in the hotel room. and Some girl made a move on. They went to the hotel room, and she handcuffed him, put him on the bed, took everything he had, and left the room. So they don't want to tell everybody, oh, hey, uh, I did this, you know. So they let it go. They don't even worry about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. They. uh I mean, you know, it's a cool world out there, and people don't understand. You know, I've been around the world probably six times or more. And, you know, I went to Cairo, Egypt, and got people uh, uh Saudi Arabia, the edge And I've had people turn their stuff in. Call me from other countries, turn their stuff in because I could get them back into the country, and they couldn't get back because they didn't have a passport. And I, w- I would get their passports, from the state's attorney's office, and go and get them, because they have to put their passport up. And when they leave, they have a San Domingo passport, but they can get out of the country with that, but they can't get to the United States with that. So it, it's a you know you got to have all kind of ways you pick people up there's a, a lot more than people think it is, and uh, you know, and I I mean I'm way I'm I'm in the thousands I picked up, and I did it over seventeen years and. Finally, I had to start slowing down because it was getting really, really tough. And I imagine today out there in New York City, uh, it's super tough. You know, my biggest thing in New York though, you know, was I was down on the Grand Concourse, which is down around Harlem, New York, Hell's Kitchen and all that, which yeah. is super bad place.
0: Yeah. Especially back then. Oh yeah.
6: Yeah. And I was over there going, I thought it a little puppy over there is a rat. i said my god that's a rat that ain't no dog boy oh yeah a rat comes out looks like a dog and uh you know it might have been a bear eating dog i don't know but no it wasn't that big (laughs) but you know he did uh, he did though he was a good 15 pound probably wow rat wow yeah (laughs) hey one, one last question i know you're saving the tape Talk for
0: the book two, but just I'm, the one thing I am curious about is what year would this tape have been from?
6: What year? Why now? Hang on, with my dog getting a hey,
4: leave it alone. Don't eat that bear. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Go ahead, do that one more time. I'm sorry.
0: The um the tape that you talked about earlier, I know you're saving it for book two, but yeah, what year is it exactly from?
6: That was uh, that tape was about. Let me let me think here a minute now. That was about nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety, I guess. When was Tony Alton Boy, uh, I don't know if you know him or not, he was like Sure. Uh, he lived in Connecticut. One, okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh he was Vince McMahon's right hand man. In other words, anything Vince won, he you know, he would ask Tony, uh, relay the message. And all that's on the tapes. And uh wow. as soon as they got them hey, hey, as soon as they got them tapes, they got rid of them, and they, and, you know, my attorney was Eileen McGann. Eileen McGann is the wife of Dick Morris. You know Dick Morris? The the political consultant. Yeah, and now he, he was uh, Clinton's right-hand man. He He's a conservative
0: who Clinton hired when he ran for re-election because he thought he needed that edge. And That's he right, did that, exactly. And then Dick Morris and Hillary hated each other. And Dick oh, yeah. Morris got pushed out, but then he also had that scandal. I don't even know if it's a sex scandal. It's a scandal where, was it they caught him with hookers and shoes? I forget exactly
6: what it was, but it was something. They were sucking toes. He was <laughs> sucking a uh, he was sucking a woman's toes. And I told him, I said, well, hell, y'all can't feel bad, anymore. maybe she liked it. <laughs> but Eileen, his wife, was my attorney. When we had to go to court a few times against uh, Hartford Police Department, they arrested me, and I had three guns on me, and they arrested me and charged me with interfering with them, and uh, we took them to court and sued them, and I think we got about $25,000 federal court out of them, false arrest, and let uh, see, it's a lot of things, a lot of lawsuits and things, but I, Eileen was a good attorney, very good, but she told me, she said, David, you're not going to get them tapes back if we turn them over. So she listened to the tape. And her paralegal listened to the tapes so they'd know what was on them and verify my story anytime I want to talk about them. So then they sent them in and they I got all kind of requests from Eileen, requesting them to turn them back, do this, do this. They said, oh, we sent them off and they was uh, unauditable. And she said, they was perfect shape when they left here. So. You know, they just, that's what I say, man. They tear that stuff up, and they tear you up. You go by the law, and if you gave the tapes up for discovery, you should be able to copy them for yourself. And they said, no, you can't do it. It's not admissible." you know. But anyway, that's— uh, But
0: anyway, that's going to uh, be in book two, but today we're going to talk more about book one, and of course, once again, book one, Don't Call Me Fake, The Real Story right. of Dr. D. David Schultz with John Cosper. Dr. D, let's go back to the very beginning. When did you first see wrestling and
6: what were your first impressions? I first seen it about 71, 72. And my uncle tried to wrestle way back when I was 12, 14 years old. We'd go down with him to the studio and watch him, you know, wrestle. But he never made it. He quit. It's too rough for him. And when I seen it, I I was running an oxygen settling welding truck because I was a certified welder. And I went by Herb Welch's uh, house in Dyesburg, Tennessee. Herb Welch was one of the Welch boys. Yeah. He was a bad uh, Southern champion. And, you know, he used to tell me stories about on the oil field where he worked and part time. And he would go in these towns and challenge anybody in town. You know, if they could stay in the ring within five minutes or two minutes or whatever. Nobody ever stayed in there with him. This guy was a super, super shooter. Anyway, I asked him to train me, and he said, okay, I'll do that. And after three months of torture, uh, I'd have to come home at night. The first three or four weeks, I'd come home from Dyesburg, Tennessee. I lived in Jackson, Tennessee at that time. And I'd have to blow my horn, have my wife to come out and help me out of the car. I could not get out of the car. I mean, my legs were hurting my back. I couldn't do anything because he stretched me so bad trying to get me to quit. That's where it used to be when you got in the business. They try to make you quit, and most people did quit. And if you stayed with it, then they would see you meant business, and then they would start helping you, you know, if you could be a rascal. So he taught me for about three months and taught me all. But really, he was sh- shooting on me all the time. And I didn't know that. I mean, he was hurting me. And then he bring guys in, pro wrestlers, to work with me. And they told him, hey, we got to quit coming down here because this kid's going to cause us to hurt as hurt well because we can't handle him. You know, because I was pretty rough growing up. And uh, I didn't know anything about wrestling, being controlled or whatever, entertainment or whatever. You know, I thought it was real. You weren't smart enough. Yeah. No, exactly. And then Herb told me one day, he called me out and said, boy, you ain't going to make a dime if I don't smarten you up. So forget everything I've showed you so far, and I'm going to show you how to be a pro wrestler. But don't forget this stuff I show you, because you'll need it all through your wrestling career, because people will try you. So he started off showing me that, and said, within three months, I was in the ring working, and I don't know how many times I had to fall back on his... Moves. He showed me how to hook people and how to lock them up and what to do to them. And I'd go to Japan first thing. They try you. If you can't take care of yourself, they'll eat you up over there every night. You know. And then different each eat up. All those places, they they would eat you up. I mean, you have to be able to take care of yourself and then, and then I got the reputation that you know I was pretty good. And you know. And then Ben started using me a lot of times is to hurt people or get them out of the business. He would come in and tell me, David, this guy here needs to be out of the business. He's, uh, I don't want him in the business no more because he was going around talking neighborhoods and harassing little kids in the yards and all, you know, he's just trying to be a hero or something. So, you know, I'd take him in the ring and, uh, you know, is accidentally he would get a dislocated knee or a dislocated shoulder, accidentally now I'm telling you. He wasn't wrestling no more, and then the word got out about me uh, that Vince was using me to do all that, and it wasn't that much of it, but every once in a while, one come in, everybody's scared of it. It's supposed to be pretty tough. Well, I I don't think I found one yet that is that tough. The ones that I did find was tough is already passed on. So, you know, they, there was some tough ones, but like I said, they're already the whole breed is already gone.
0: How much of an advantage do you think you had, though? I mean, when people talk about a lot of the Tennessee wrestling in the 70s, you know, a lot of the guys you think of, you know, especially the top guys like Lawler and, you know, you don't really think of him as being a shooter because he wasn't. You think about guys who come out of Florida being shooters, but how much of an advantage was it for you after all the pain of the first few months that you trained with Herb Welch, that he taught you all of these things?
6: Yeah, because half of these guys, I'd say three-quarters of these guys or 80% of these guys, never knew anything about a Hulk like the Oklahoma Tumbleweed or, uh, you know, how to hook a guy in a headlock where he couldn't get out. How to use a wrist lock so he can't get out. I mean, we can hurt him real bad by just a wrist lock. Standing wrist lock. I mean, separate your shoulder. And so, I mean, they don't know this because nobody ever taught them this. They, they taught them to go in there and fall on the mat and hit a guy and miss the guy six, eight inches. And they just never knew anything about real wrestling, how to how to do that, you know. And uh, there was a few in there that would try it, but uh, they just, I don't know, they just didn't know how to do anything. You know, you'd hook up with them, and uh, all of a sudden, the guy's on the floor, his eyes busted, bleeding, and, uh, you know, I mean, they had to run him to the hospital. he get eight or ten stitches, and he says, oh, uh, that was an accident. Yeah, right. was no accident. It was done on purpose because you was an asshole. You was trying to show off and you had to be put in your place. And you know, if you are like, like, you know, I go into the ring with a guy like Antonio Noki over in Japan. We had one of the toughest matches we ever had, both of us. And probably during that match, Noki had me hooked three or four times. And I also had him hooked three or four times, but we're not going to remain in a hooking position and give up in front of a hundred thousand people and mess the match up for our ego. Because you know when you're hooked. And you know when it's over. <laughs> but you can let that go and continue the match on. And nobody else knows. But you guys know. You know, so that was one of them kind of matches, me and him. It was a stiff match. And several times, you know, I had him where it could would have been all over. If I wanted to be all over. And also, he had me. It would have been over. All he had to do is just a little bit more pressure. And it would have been over, you know. But. We was professional enough to know you don't mess up the matches. You got 100,000 people looking at you. paid good money. Don't spoil it for them. It's entertainment or whatever they want to call it. I'm anything but a fake. I'm an entertainer, exhibitionist, a cartoon character, whatever they want to call me. But I don't like the word fake because I'm not fake. <laughs> you know, And people say, oh, y'all don't really do that, do you? Oh, no, we fall off that top turn, but We don't really hit that floor. <laughs> we got a little invisible thing. You, know, I, you didn't see that, people. He said, no, I, it looked like to me you hit the floor. I said, well, what are you telling me I didn't for? Well, you got up. Well, you know, people are, uh, people. just, they want to believe other things, but they see it, and they say, oh, my God, how he survived that. And Foy's Lawler, Floyd Lawler in Memphis, me and Laura was partners for a couple of years and, uh, you know, Gary's a good guy. Don't, uh, don't get me wrong. He's a good guy, but, uh, as him beating somebody in the ring. It'd have to be, you know, well, I don't know anybody that bad that he could be, <laughs> I mean, you know, he, uh, uh, I mean, you know, he's learned all, all these years, some things, but Gary never was a fighter or a. When I was wrestling with him, I'd have to take up for him at night, going, getting in the car. People pull guns, and he said, "David, this guy's got a gun. I sneak around, knock him out, and you know, we drive off." But things like that happen all the time. But Jerry's no uh, tough guy. I mean, he wouldn't have won all these matches. He talked about winning if he went in own the business. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. people don't realize that. You know, and. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee, you know, I started basically in Memphis with Nick Goulas and in Nashville, Memphis, all that area. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Laura was with Jerry Jerry. you know, saying who's going to win, who's going to lose. And it's okay. I mean, you know, entertainment and all that. But then when you graduate from that and you go to Japan and you end up in uh, Canada for three years and you end up in Puerto Rico, you end up over these countries where they think it's no joke and people are trying to hurt you. That's mean you don't see Lawler over there in any of them countries because they'll hurt him unless he's got a good kin with somebody and got all of it figured out before, you know. But he, you know, he's not a tough guy. He, he's a nice guy, I guess. I guess he's still alive, ain't he? He still is. Oh, okay. I thought maybe some of that plastic surgery got to him. I don't know. <laughs> you know. I told somebody that the other day. I said, damn, what happened to Lawler, man? They said, what, what about I said, it's plastic surgery. Him and Dundee both. They must use the same screwed-up guy.
0: Yeah, what What? Ha- I mean, a little off-topic here, Dr. D, but you are a doctor, so we can talk about this for a second. what is go- right. What is going on
6: <laughs> with the facelifts in professional wrestling? Uh, There's a bunch of them look like to me they had facelifts, you yeah. know. Uh, not me. Oh, they, I guess they think they're getting old and they want to look pretty or they want to have a young girl or whatever. I don't know. I don't have, I, I look just like I did 20 years ago.
0: No facelift. So you're, really. you're saying not you're on but... the record officially, you will not get a facelift.
6: No, never, never, never. Not me. I've <laughs> okay. never had a, no, no, no. Good looking as I am, they couldn't do that on facelift. <laughs> Make that that good. I tell my wife, I said, man, I look just like I did 20 years ago. She said, look in another mirror, David. And... <laughs> <laughs> so now I don't look in mirrors no more cause, or you know, pictures because I am getting a, I am getting a few years on me. And, you know, of course, my beard's snow white. My hair is snow white. And according to what part of my life you see me at, I've got shoulder-length hair. And my beard looks like a ZZ top. But I'm still pretty darn good. I still got one good fight left in me. And I'm trying to find somebody to take that out of me. But I can't find nobody.
0: Maybe we could have some recommendations. Uh, we'll talk a little bit off air. Got <laughs> <About> some
2: recommendations?
0: <laughs> I'll give you. There it is, part one of my discussion with Dr. D. David Schultz. I can't wait for you guys to hear the rest of that talk. Part two next week here on the show. But Dan, as we wrap things up, I want to thank you for being in the co host chair. You're going to be invited back pretty soon because there's a lot of other things I want to talk to you about that we didn't even get a chance to this week oh, on sure. the show. But as we wrap things up, is there anything you'd like to plug? How can the listeners stay in touch with Dan Farron?
1: Well, uh, basically, you can reach me uh, on uh, Dan Farron on Facebook or The Real Dan Farron on uh, Twitter. And also, uh, I think I I may be starting a Facebook page for my wrestling stuff. I think my my regular friends who aren't wrestling fans are getting bored of my post. Uh, They they don't quite understand that. (laughs) But I'll be doing that. But uh, also, um, it's a little early now, but uh, in June, uh, there's a book coming out, a horror anthology, that I have a short story in. And as it gets closer to that time out, I'll tell you guys where you can get it and you can buy it on Amazon and you can – wind up fucking those guys so you know we'll, we'll keep on doing that but uh listen brian it's a pleasure to be here today thanks a lot for inviting me uh, it's it's been a lot of fun
0: it's always great to have you on the air and of course let us know when that book comes out we'll make sure everyone knows about it. and congratulations it's nice to have a story Thank you. published that's a really cool thing One day I hope to have a few stories published, but, uh, more about that at a later time. As we wrap things up, of course, you could follow the show on Twitter at 605pod. You could follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. And you could follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcasts. You could follow the show on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super the central hub of all things social media for the Super Podcast. You get to see the Travis Heckel artwork, and Travis has been killing it lately. You get to vote for the top ten. Vote for the championship match. Get updates about when the show's coming up. Get updates about merchandise. Communicate with the show. If you have something you want to say to the show, the best place to reach me is to send me a message at Facebook.com slash super podcast on that topic of course there is the mothership facebook group if you already like the 605 facebook page and you want to join in the conversation to talk about wrestling tv movies whatever it may be with other 605ers you could join the mothership by going to facebook.com slash groups slash super pod talk also, if you want to get a Super Podcast t-shirt, we have logo shirts in black or gray. We have the Yomamba 605 shirts, as well as the polo shirts, sticker sets, magnet sets. And on the way, we have Arcadian Vanguard shirts, some of the sizes that just recently sold out. And by the way, thank you to everyone who's been ordering shirts lately. We have them coming up. We're restocking them right now. And we have some other shirt designs I think people are going to really be excited about that are going to be coming pretty soon. You can go to tinyurl.com slash SuperPodStore the official online store of the 605 Super Podcast. Once again, to support us on Amazon, tinyurl.com slash superpodamazon. By using that link, you support this show. Anything you add to your cart, we get a little bit of credit for. tinyurl.com slash superpodamazon. If you'd like to support this show, we don't have ads. We don't have lots and lots of ads. We don't jam sponsors down your throat. We do it the classy way. This is the show with Prestige. But if you want to support this show, if you appreciate all the work and effort that goes into it, and you like what we're doing, you can support this show on a monthly basis by going to patreon.com slash superpodcast, or on a one-time basis by going to paypal.me slash superpodcast. We are, of course, on iTunes, and if you are someone who uses iTunes, please... Write a review. Give us a positive review and a five-star rating. It really helps to show out. And, of course, if you don't want to use iTunes, you can go to 605pod.com to access every single episode of the show as well as our RSS feed, 605pod.com. Ramsor Records is the sponsor of the Top 10. Once again, congratulations to the Steep Canyon Rangers out in the open, number one, two weeks in a row. On the Billboard Bluegrass Charts, go to ramsorecords.kungfustore.com, enter the promo code 605 at checkout, and save 20% on all purchases. If there's anything you'd like to mail into the show, you can send it to the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey 07962. I also want to mention some of the other fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Of course, Ron Fuller Studcast. And if you guys have been hearing, I've been co-hosting recently, and thank you to everyone who's given me positive feedback for that. You can listen to that each and every week fullerpod.com or on itunes and everywhere else of course kentucky fried wrestling new episode up with jim Cornette, jerry jarrett travis eckle and more at kfrpod.com and breaking kayfabe with bowdrin and barry and boy do i love that show you can hear that show each week at BaldrinPod.com or with all arcadian vanguard shows just look at itunes stitcher podcast ad at google play wherever you find your favorite podcast. arcadian vanguard shows are there and of course the 605 super podcast is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network for the late dan farron i'm the great <laughs> brian last until next time tallyho.